theyeshiva.net. The Techtel family, close friends, also asked me if we can dedicate for the complete recovery, Rufur Shlema for their father, Rabbi Socher Shlema ben Chaya Fagel. For Rufur Kreva Bekarov. Amen. Okay. Reb Shais, Rabbi Taub, the floor is yours. So we'll officially uh, begin. Uh, tonight, we're going to be speaking about Rabbi Yoel Khan. Oliver Shalom feels awkward using uh, those words. And uh, we're going to do this in an interview format. Rabbi Jacobson has generously volunteered his time to share some of his thoughts and insights, personal reflections about a, uh, a figure who has, uh, whose reputation has, I, I would say it's safe to say that although maybe not many people can say, not many people, not as many people can say they knew Rabbi Oil on a personal level, although many, many did, uh, all over the world, people know of his, his reputation and I think are fascinated by his life and his accomplishments and would love to know more about Rabbi Yoel. So, and, and I just want to mention, in case anybody's wondering about how, we're, how I'm using the, 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 the word or the, the title or lack thereof, Rabbi Yoel, you know, there's a Tesefta Nadius which says, that Gogol Mirabon Shmoy, that there are different titles of rabbis. There's Rab, there's Rabbi, there's Rabon. And Gogol Mirabon, higher than them all, is Shmoy, is just using the name. The Rebbe once explained that for a Chassid, it's even more so because a title could get in the way of the most important thing that the whole Metzias, the whole existence and identity of a Chassid, is his Rebbe. And if you give the Chassid a title, it can cause a blockage, God forbid, between the chassid and, and, and the rabbi. So Rabbi Yoel is Rabbi Yoel, a true chassid. Um, and without further ado, I'm going to, I guess, kick this off with the, with a question. Uh, now, after I said everything about Godel Merab and Shmoy, Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak, <laughs> tell us a little bit about who was Rabbi Yoel. What was his life? What was he about? I think the it's obviously a very intense and serious question. And how does anybody summarize anyone's life, especially a person of, uh, of extraordinary intellectual and spiritual caliber? But just today I had a thought, and that is I once heard from Rabbi Ayel at a class that he gave. He shared a story that he himself heard from the Lubavitcher Rebbe, Shavuos 1964. That's Shavuos Tavshin Chavdalet. This is a story that the Rebbe said, Derech Agav, which means it wasn't part of the actual sikh, uh, of the actual talk that was printed later in Lekutei Sikh. It's a very famous talk of the Rebbe. Lekutei Sikh today, Lekutei Sikh is volume 6, Parshas Yisrael, about the the theme, the differences of the theme of Rabbi Akiva's life versus Rabbi Shmuel's life and how it's reflected in many arguments 
throughout Gemara between Rabbi Shmuel and Rabbi Akiva, who lived at the end of the second Beis HaMikdash. But in that entire very profound and extraordinary presentation of the Rebbe, the Rebbe threw in a story, a personal experience that he had when he was in Paris. The Rebbe lived in Paris from 1933 till 1941. And he shared a story. And he said, I once visited, which by the way, just for the record, was extremely rare. In forty more than 40 years of the Lubavitcher Rebbe's presentations, you can count on maybe uh, two hands, maybe three personal stories that he shared about himself. Extremely rare, for whatever reason. But then he shared a story. He said, when I was living in Paris, I went to visit a Polish Erov, a rabbi in Paris who came from Poland. The Rebbe said he was a Gresa Bal which means a really authentic halachic authority. And he said in Yiddish, and it seems like he was a great scholar at Gutgekent Lernen, which the Rebbe to give such a compliment on somebody. Obviously, he was a great Talmud Chachem, a great God. And the Rebbe describes his first-hand experience. So there's a woman walks into this Rav. He, he didn't say a name. He would very rarely mention a name, so that wasn't surprising. A woman walks into this rabbi, this great Rav, with a chicken. And she wants to know if the chicken is kosher or not kosher because of a certain question about the chicken. And the Rebbe says he watches how this Rav starts examining the chicken and then starts giving the wife, the, the woman, a lecture. The Rebbe said, he says, the Taz, who was one of the great commentators on the Shulchan Aruch, Rabbi David Segel, the Ture Zahav, says this about the chicken. But wait, the Shach, the Sif Sekoyen, <laughs> who was another great commentator in Shulchan Aruch, he argues with him. So it's not so simple to say that it's kosher like the Taz. So the woman hears this. She says, Rebbe, ich kennes an einlegen in Tepel oder nicht? Can I throw the chicken into the pot or not? So he says, wait, wait. There's a Haroinim after the Shach and Taz, later commentators, who also argue with the Taz. And in this area, halachic Haroinim. The laws like the Haroinim, like the other commentators, so it's not so simple what to do with this chicken. The Rebbe didn't say what the end of the story was, but he said as follows. He said, this rabbi was not trying to impress this woman because she didn't know who the shach was. She didn't know who the taz was. So his knowledge in these books would not impress her. Rather, he says, this rav, he lived in the world of Torah. He lived in the world of Torah. So when he saw a chicken, he instinctively went off on a tangent about the shach and the taz because that was his life. For him, the chicken, for the woman, the chicken, she came with the chicken, it was a question of how she's going to feed her family that night. For him, the chicken was just an opportunity to explore the great world of Jewish law, of the shach and the taz in, in Yeridea. And the Rebbe used this story to explain how Rabbi Akiva lived. And the story came to me today as I was thinking about Rabbi Yoel. The favorite topic of Rabbi Yoel Khan in years and years and years of listening to his, uh, sitting at his feet, listening to his classes, lectures and presentations, his favorite topic was the revolution of the Balshemtev and the Alter Rebbe, the Balatanya, and one of the greatest ideas in Chassidus, one of the greatest ideas in Judaism, but in Chassidus it became a central theme, and that is Einoid Malvada, that there is absolute oneness, there is absolute harmony, Everything is part of divine infinity. 
And Abiel would explain it and elaborate it and prove it and explain the ramifications and ask the questions and the contradictions and discuss it and explore it. And I realized today that really, whenever I walked into a class of Rabbi Yoel or had a conversation with him, it was just like that rabbi. The whole chicken was just an opportunity to be able to explore Torah. And I think for Rabbi Yoel, the whole world was just an opportunity to be able to explain Achtas Hashem, to be able to explain the oneness of God in the world. This was a person who for 90 years, 91 years, really lived in a transcendent universe, a universe of Torah, a universe of Jewish spirituality to its uh, in its full grandeur and harmony, uh, completely, completely sublime and aloof with all of the advantages and some disadvantages to it, as we may discuss. But the one reality was when you walked into a class, and I would sometimes come from situations and circumstances that were of a very different nature, you like were introduced into the world where the Balshemtiv and the Altarebbe reigned. And where the idea of Enoid Mulvadoi, of the oneness of God, was pulsating with uh, ever-increasing vibrancy. So I'm, I'm hearing from you that a, a, a biography, in the conventional sense, probably wouldn't do justice to really capture Rabbi Yod. Rather, we yeah. should probably speak about the world that he lived in. I guess the world he breathed. I'll tell you a story. It's, it, it was so, I saw this with my own eyes and it was like a surreal moment. He would give us classes almost every day. He would teach us for years. A, b- a bunch of boys, yeshiva boys. We, we uh, ate up his classes. We, 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 we drank them with great thirst. Uh, it put me on my feet in many ways personally in terms of understanding so much about Yiddishkeit and Torah and halacha, and pnimiyas and the world of chassidus, and the world of ashkafa, the world of machshava. I sat for years and heard classes from him, and asked questions, and got answers, and sometimes got screamed at, and got insulted, and got complimented, the whole gamut. Once, Rabbi liked to give metaphors, to explain things. He would always say, a marshal, a metaphor. Now his metaphors, I have to say, were abstract. They were not metaphors that Rabbi Sheis, you, or or yours truly, or others given their lectures and classes. His metaphors needed metaphors, and those metaphors also needed metaphors, which reminds us, of course, of the great teaching he would always quote from the Rebbe, back to the Alter Rebbe, back to the Magga, that it says that Shloima, right, communicated with 3,000 metaphors. So most people think it means he had 3,000 jokes for every class. And everybody knows 3,000 jokes is too much. A joke, two jokes, three jokes, not 3,000 jokes and metaphors and stories. So the Magid and the Alter Rebbe explained that the ideas were so deep <laughs> that every idea needed a metaphor, which needed another metaphor all the way to 3,000. Rabbi Yoel would like to give metaphors in his own way and style. Once, he was giving a class, and there was a boy there, a bacher, a friend of mine, who was a, a let's. How do you say a let's in English in, in this context? Class clown. Yeah, he was like a little comedian. He liked jokes. Now, Rabbi Yoel... Yeah, he was friend. <laughs> he was actually a friend. He moved on in life. He had a, developed an interesting career. But in any case, he liked asking questions that sometimes Rabiel got a kick out of, and sometimes he got upset about. And Rabiel is in the middle of teaching, and he says, So sometimes there's a person who's overtaken with Taivus Olam Haza. 
which means a person who's overwhelmed with addictions and cravings towards materialistic pursuits and objects and foods, etc. So this boy throws out a question. He says, I'm Marshall. Can you give us a metaphor? said, A Jew who's overwhelmed with addictions and craving. Now, you and me, we don't need metaphors for that. <laughs> you don't need metaphors. You need metaphors for other types of things, not for that, right? But this boy wanted, a, you know, in Yiddish it's called Reitzon. He liked to make it Lebedic, to instigate the teacher. So he says, I'm Marshall. Give a metaphor of a Jew who's overtaken with physical cravings. I kid you not, Rabbi Yoel goes into a meditation. He needs a metaphor. So he puts his hand on his forehead, Azoy, whoever is watching, he puts his hand on his forehead, starts sipping the coffee, which means you need even more meditation and concentration. One sip, another sip, another sip. Those days they would smoke, okay, till he quit. The doctor told him he has to stop, so he quit, but there was a lot of smoking. A few puffs, which means this is really deep stuff. And then he comes back and he says, yeah, I got it. He got a metaphor. And he says, I'm going to quote him. He says, Le Marshall, a hot lib chocolate. Somebody who loves chocolate. This was the metaphor he found for somebody who's overtaken by worldliness. Now for us, this was very funny. But it was such a uh, innocent and spiritual moment to be able to sit in the 19th and 20th century with a Jew who lived in America for uh, more than a half a century, probably did not know the telephone number of his own home, and he literally lived and breathed in the world of Einoid Mulvada, in the world of infinity, in the world of the divine, in the world of Torah, in the world of Chassidus, but with a brilliant mind and an extraordinary ability to explain and articulate to people who were serious and interested. And in that sense, it was really a not just a breath of fresh air, but a breath and a meal of transcendent air, of transcendent truth that he spoke about, like I, I would speak about the apples and the oranges and the ice cream on the table. I would like to hear, particularly because you have some personal experience uh, and interaction with Rabiel in this uh, framework. People are fascinated. There was a New York Times obituary which came out recently, and it focused on this a little bit. I think people are trying to wrap their heads around it, but it, it just it's so incomparable to anything, any frame of reference that's out there anywhere else in the world. Can you speak about the transmission of the Rebbe's teachings, the system of Chazorah, which Rabbi Yoel was, was the leader and the, at the forefront of, he was the, the, the Chayzer, the chief oral scribe, I think a lot of people even who have heard about the system aren't really familiar with how it works and with Rabiel's role in that system. Can you just bring us into that world a little bit. Sure. Very, very intense world, very fascinating world, and really a very extraordinary world. Just to describe to you a scene that will just give you the context and then we'll, we'll discuss the history of it. It's Simchas Torah. I think 1990, maybe 91, I was a yeshiva student, and I had the privilege of being on the team of Chayzerim, of the oral scribes, in the last years of the Rebbe's presentations. My brother, my older brother, Reb Simon, was there from the 70s, helping Reb Yoel and another group of people, and he brought me in later, in the late 80s. 
So this is, I think, 90 or 91. The Rebbe with Fabreng, Simchas Torah at night, before the dancing, before Hakafas, nine o'clock in the evening, after Mayriv, there was a long Fabrengen and a very deep Fabrengen, which means very loaded, intellectually stimulating, brilliant, profound uh, talks of the Rebbe on the night of Simchas Torah. Only one o'clock in the morning would the Hakafas, would the dancing start. <laughs> Most people, they do the Hakafas from eight to nine, you know, 10 o'clock, you're in bed. But, but one o'clock, he would start the dancing. The dancing But remember, the, the, the Fabrengen is going to be forgotten. Somebody is responsible to memorize it. And here you have to understand, most of the Rebbe's presentations, like all of the Chabad Rebbe's, were on Shabbos and Yom Tov. No recording devices, obviously, were permitted because of Shabbos. So everything had to be memorized and later transcribed. Who would do this? The Rebbe didn't give a five-minute speech. The Rebbe could speak for three hours, four hours. There were times that he went... I'm not exaggerating, for 12 hours. I heard this from Rabbi Yael himself in the earlier years. Even in my years, there were times the Rebbe went seven hours, eight hours, but three hours, four hours, five hours. This was natural. During Yom Tif, there could be four Fabregans. So you had to remember 10, 20 hours of talks over a few days. Okay? So here's the scene. The dancing ends. It's four in the morning. Everybody is beyond exhausted. Rabbi Yoel is already an elderly man. We go to somebody's house, the house of Rabbi Shalom Charitanov on Crown Street, because you can't do Chazor in 770. There's 5,000 people dancing. Nobody's, nobody's going to listen to a two-hour presentation by Rabbi Yoel Khan. It's four in the morning, maybe six people sitting in Rabbi Shalom Charitanov's house with some sponge cake. And he just begins, four o'clock in the morning, to repeat and really capture in words Everything he and we heard from the Rebbe. And that went till after dawn break, when everybody went to sleep and then came back the next morning for davening, hakafas again, and then another fabrengen, some chastair in the evening. And if it was Shabbos, it was a second one and then a third one and a fourth one. And really, this was just a moment as a yeshiva student. I was sitting there and marveling at the phenomenon, you know, at four o'clock in the morning, he was so completely dedicated to make sure that all of the extraordinary, profound ideas that the Rebbe shared, that some Torah, would never be forgotten. And that year, he went through the 17 verses of Atares, explaining each one very profoundly, and it was all transcribed, it wasn't forgotten. So really, this is something that occurred from day one of the Alter Rebbe's days, the Balatanya, whose own brother would listen to every discourse he said, then it was also weekdays. There was no tape recorders in the 1700s. And we transcribe it. From this we have the magnum opuses of the Alter Rebbe, L'Kutu Torah, and the whole set of Mamori Admir Azok and the discourses of Rabbi Shnei Zaman of Ladi, the Alter Rebbe, written by his brother, by two of his sons, by his grandson, by a great chassid, Rapinchas Reises. These was a team of scribes who would transcribe whatever they heard. This continued throughout the generations. Divine Providence had it that a young 20-year-old, Yoel Khan, born in Moscow, relocated to Israel at the age of three or four years old, happens to, in 1950, embark on a voyage from Israel to New York to go learn at the feet of the previous, the sixth Lubavitcher Rebbe, Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak Schneerson, who sadly passes away one day before 
Rabbi Yoel got onto that boat, but he didn't even know about the death of the Rebbe because the news didn't travel fast at the time. It's 1950. He comes to New York and he finds out that the Lubavitcher Rebbe, the sixth Lubavitcher Rebbe, passed away. It's the seventh Rebbe, the Rebbe, who's the son-in-law of the previous Rebbe, who gives advice to Rabbi Yoel that if the Rebbe told him to come, he probably knew what's going to happen. He certainly knew what's going to happen. He should stay. And he stayed. And from the first day that the Lubavitcher Rebbe assumed the leadership of Chabad, you had there this young 20-year-old who had a very keen mind. He was a great, great, what you would call a gun, which means he had a, 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 a keen ability to understand and grasp and memorize and transcribe and articulate and explain. And literally from day one of the Lubavitcher Rebbe presenting, Rabbi Yoel stood there and served as the chief oral scribe, memorizer and transcriber of these talks, for the next 42 years. And you have to understand that the Rebbe spoke not every, in the early years, not every Shabbos, sometimes once a month, twice a month, three times a month, all over the holidays. Rabbi Yoel, I think in 42 years, missed two gatherings of the Rebbe. Simchas Torah 62 and Shabbos Akiv this week, 1977. From it's 19- a surprise for Brain. 1950 till 1992, the Rebbe had a Shabbos. Shabbos Akiv was a surprise. He didn't know there was going to be a surprise. Right. He didn't know. Shabbos he Akiv, caught, the he asked the Rebbe, he asked the Rebbe, if he can go away for Shabbos, he and Rabbi Label Groner, the unforgettable secretary of the Rebbe who was taken last year, Erev Pesach, in beginning of Corona, they asked the Rebbe if they can go away for Shabbos to Yarchikala, a special gathering of learning, Torah, a whole Shabbos in Camp Gan Yisrael in Parksville, New York. Uh, created in 1974 by Rabbi Avram Shemtiv, and Rabbi Yoel asked the Rebbe if he can go. So the Rebbe said he should go, go with great success. Shabbos, the Rebbe decided to hold the Fabrengen. That was the one of two Fabrengens out of all the years, 1950 to 1992, that Rabbi Yoel Khan missed. Imagine, every other one, he was there beginning to end, and dedicated to memorizing it, grasping it, transcribing it, and sharing it. Okay, I, I want to ask you to explain a little bit more, because like I said, this is a very foreign concept to most of us. You've conveyed the stamina, like just simply the physical stamina involved, the mental stamina, the concentration, the focus involved in memorizing, pretty much verbatim, hours and hours and hours of of teachings and and also the the depth required because it's not just memorizing the words it's understanding what the devil was saying i think there's a piece here that needs to be filled in a little bit more you know there's being a chaser and there's being a maniach one who repeats the devil's teachings and one who a transcription isn't just a tape recorder transcription talk to us a little bit about the art of creating a proper transcript, a proper Hanukkah, as it's called? Wow, good question, Zip <laughs> You're making me think. Okay, so I think the first thing I would like to say is sometimes I read or hear that Nebuel had a photographic memory. It's not true. Nebuel did not have a photographic memory. People think he was like a tape recorder. He stood there. You have a physical tape recorder, you have a human tape recorder. And the words of the Rebbe just went into the tape recorder and then he repeated it like a tape recorder. 
It's completely not true. It has nothing to do, that's not what happened. He was not, he didn't have a photographic memory. His colleagues, his younger colleagues didn't have photographic memories, at least as far as I know. And in fact, the photographic memory would not do the job. And this is what people have to understand. The Rebbe's talks were extremely, extremely profound and extraordinary in the, in two aspects, quantity and quality. You see, a person is giving a class in a halach in the code of Jewish law, in a Rashi, in a piece of Rambam, in a Blat Gemara, in a, talking about a story, a minig, a custom, and you stick to your topic. The Rebbe's talks were a mosaic and a tapestry of literally every type of stream of Judaism. Kabbalah, halacha, niglech, siddis, pilpul, philosophy, machshava, musr, hashkafa, theology, philosophy, psychology, current events, Hasidic, in, Hasidic psychology and, and personal internalization. And then he can also mix in a little science and a little math and a little physics. And of course, contemporary events of what's going on in the world, in the world of education, in the world of youth, in American youth, in Israel, wherever it is. And all this could come together in an hour talk, an hour and a half talk, a 40-minute talk. Quoting from everywhere without notes. Can quote the Vilna Gon, Can quote a Noida Bihuda. Can quote, of course, Arambam, Arashi, Zoya, the writings of the Arizal. And everything part of the Jewish body of, of, of knowledge from Moshe, from Sinai, until the Rebbe's own generation. So first of all, and, and he would go from topic to topic, item to item. So this is simply in the quantity and the quality, the depth of it and the profundity of it and the originality of it. And this can happen for hours and every fabrengen. And, and you have to understand, the Rebbe did not tell a story for half an hour. He barely told stories or anecdotes or jokes. These were ideas and very serious. Rebuel was gifted with the ability to understand the Rebbe's words. He had also a great knowledge of the sources so that even if he didn't know that particular source, he can usually follow or at least research it later to understand. Most importantly, the Rebbe developed a style, an approach that was extremely profound, but you had to understand the sources and then see his approach. Rebbe Oil had that ability to what's called in Yiddish, chapen asicha. He was once sharing with the scribes, he once said, that, you know, people would mix into his chazara constantly and correct him. He would sometimes say, good, good, you're saying, well, what did the Rebbe say? Meaning, in the Rebbe's talks, there were two parts. There was the theme of the talk, the beginning, the middle, the end, the theme. What's the theme? What's the point? What's the key essence? What am I trying to convey? And the ultimate lesson and relevance. But throughout that journey, the Rebbe stopped at a lot of exits. Here he would throw in a story. Here he would discuss something in contemporary life. Here he would give a view about something that came up as a tangent. Suddenly he would discuss education, which had to do with one of the themes. But these were all exits, so to speak, the Rebbe took. He would explain a Gemara, he would explain a Maimer, he would give an example, he would give an illustration. Now each one of those pieces was incredibly rich. But very many people, once the Rebbe went off on his tangent, they went with him and they didn't, he wouldn't say, okay, now let's go back. He did that maybe 10 times. He would say, this was a parenthesis, let's go back. But he would really not do that. Rabbi Yoel had that ability to be able to to understand the Nekudu, the Tfisa. 
Now, the Rebbe sometimes would ask questions for a long time. The answer was very brief, very concise. So you also had to grasp that and understand that. So that was, even just the repeating it, it wasn't repeating like a tape recorder. You had to really get the theme, the build-up. He got the build-up very, very well. And he let that he got the flow. The Rebbe had an incredible, incredible flow. And he knew this is a parenthesis, this is a bracket, this is not a parenthesis. He also once shared with his team privately, he said that the Rebbe's mind works so fast that sometimes what the Rebbe was supposed to say in 20 minutes, he said now. Because in Chsidus, we have a lot about symptom. The teacher has to condense the infinity into very finite terms. But sometimes the teacher, for whatever reason, doesn't do that. <laughs> so sometimes the Rebbe, whose mind was working so fast, says something now that really belongs at the end of the talk, but he said it now. So it's so easy to get confused. Rebbe El had that ability for that structure. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so I, I, what you were saying is a tape recorder wouldn't have done the job. In other words, tape, no. if you would have just taken a transcript... You wouldn't have the, 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 like, like you were referring to, what's a parenthesis? What's a brackets? Where do you break a paragraph? How do you take a piece that's really from 20 minutes later and transpose it to where it belongs? Speak to us about that, that art of being an editor, structuring it and, and bringing the Hanukkah, the transcript, the real transcript, not the tape recorder transcript, but the, the properly edited transcript to, to, to its final form. Yeah. Incredibly, incredibly uh, powerful and difficult and, of course, very rewarding work. Because, as I said, the richness in terms of quantity of broadness was very, very fulfilling and rewarding. The depth of the Rebbe's teachings, revolutionary and also refreshing to the soul, and they spoke to the real concerns and anxieties of, of people today in the Rebbe's times. But you needed, the Rebbe was a very systematic thinker. Rabbi Yoel had a systematic mind. One of the things I think that really captured for him what was very, I think, meaningful for him was the Rebbe's systematic mind was extraordinary. The Rebbe, people know the Rebbe, you know, as an outreach activist and as a global leader and as a great lover of Israel, etc., all true. But the Rebbe really, years before he became a leader, his ability of systematic thinking, of categorization, of putting everything in its right category, in its right context, and then also seeing the universal unity of it, this type of incredible system of individual and collective together, of infinity and finite, of heaven and earth, was something that Rebbe Yoel deeply appreciated it because it was like the full gamut of, of the universe and of the Judaism's universe that both focuses on the collective and the individual, the finite and the infinite, the body and the soul, heaven and earth. So all of this you had to understand, but you also had to see the structure. So taking the Rebbe's words and putting it down on paper required a tremendous amount of learning, focus, thinking, rethinking, Arguments, disputes, counter-arguments, sometimes screaming. <laughs> what did he mean? No, he didn't mean this. Going back to the sources and then presenting a final product, a full picture, which has questions, 
attempts to answer the questions which are refuted, a first answer which is refuted, the final answer, a proof to the answer, an explanation to the answer, the spiritual dimension of the answer, and then the psychological, emotional, and practical relevance of the answer. Now, I always tell people, Lukute Sichais, which Rabbi Yoyal was the main editor of Lukute Sichais for many years, are called Lukute Sichais, which means the gatherings of talks. But it's not the talk the way the Rebbe said it. That's why I always tell people, listen to the tapes, because each one has an advantage. When you listen to the Rebbe's talking in Yiddish, the original, you'll hear humor, jokes once in a while, uh, uh, tears, the Rebbe will start crying, he'll tell stories, not often, but you'll hear the richness of his own soul coming out. You will not get that in the written word. You'll get some of it, he put his soul into it, but you can't get it in the written word the way you got it when you heard it live, or you can hear it today on MP3 or watch it on video. On the other hand, in the written word, you'll have a very clear, defined structure, but it will delete most of the things that he said in parentheses, in Derech Agav. And so people, there's, there's a unique richness in each one. And as they say, yesh bezeh, mashayim bezeh, v'yesh bezeh, mashayim bezeh. I, I want to interrupt you for a second because a lot of people might not realize we're speaking about this body of work sort of like almost as a monolith, the transcribed talks of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. But it's not so simple because first of all, there are sikhs and there are maimorim. We have to speak about those as as independent genres. But also, I think first, what I'd like to hear about more, people might not realize, there are the transcripts, the Hanachas, Bilti Muga, which were not edited by the Rebbe. And then you mentioned Lukut Esichas, and there's also Maimar uh, Malukat, which the Rebbe reviewed. And there was a process of review where the Rebbe supervised and, and essentially gave um, authorization to a final, to a final edit. So I, I think that process is something fascinating that people would like to hear about. So very, very briefly, and if you're interested in this, tune in, because you'll get here at least a general picture and a, a journey of a thousand uh, miles begins with one step. The Lubavitcher Rebbe's teachings and ideas were conveyed. Most of them were not conveyed. I just want to tell you, the Rebbe by nature was extremely introverted, he did not like to communicate. He did not like to speak. <laughs> I saw this over and over again. He would start a fabrengen. He was always uncomfortable in his chair. And the Rebbe told this to people. It's against his nature. So most of it stayed inside. It was obvious. But that which was conveyed was conveyed in various mediums. The first was private journals and diaries, which were only discovered after his passing in 1994. They're published today as Rishimus from the 1920s, 1930s, 1940s. The next medium was letters, Igris Kaidish. The Rebbe wrote tens of thousands of letters in Yiddish, in English, in Hebrew, and in Russian, and a few in other languages. Tens of thousands of letters. My assumption is close to 100,000 letters. This is before computers, and certainly before internet. Okay. And you're talking about just in English, there's probably more than 20 or 30,000 letters. Just in English. Did you know that? You're saying that are out there, not that are published. No, that are unfortunately not out there yet. In English, 
not out there yet. We have out there meaning they exist in the world, meaning not yet published. Yes, yes. Somebody told me eighteen thousand in English that they have, and then there's probably a few thousand they don't have. So then there's that whole world of letters, Rishimus letters. This obviously doesn't have to do with the world of Rabbi Elkanah. It was the Rebbe's letters? He worked with his secretaries and his own private journals. Obviously, he wrote himself. That was a second medium. There was a third medium. And that is some of the writings and essays he published on his own. Not many, but there are a few. There was a magazine called Koivitz Lubavitch in the 1940s that ever published there are a few essays that are, till today, incredible, just incredible pieces of work. If you want to know about Chiyas HaMesim, the resurrection of the dead, and who's going to stand up and who's not, the Rebbe's essay on it is just, it's just an essay he wrote in the 1940s. Similar essays he wrote about different topics in Halacha, in Kabbalah, in Jewish philosophy, in Exodus, and a few things that he published, a Haggadah with unbelievable commentary. Rabbi Zevin once wrote, if I was not afraid of the Hasidim, I would say that this is a scientific, scientific work of the highest level. That's what Rabbi Shlomo Yosef Zevin, who was a brilliant, brilliant writer and editor, editor of Encyclopedia Talmud, wrote once in Israel. But in any case, these were three and of the first, Hayoim Yoim, which is another work, compilations of his father-in-law's teachings and sayings and writings. And then, Talk about the sikhs and, and the then we have the last two called Sikhs and Maimarim. Sikhs and Maimarim, Sikhs are what you would say, public sermons. The word sermons is not really the best word, public presentations or talks. Maimarim are Hasidic discourses built on the Hasidic discourses of the six predecessors of Chabad, beginning with the Alter Rebbe, Mittler Rebbe, Tzamech Tzedek, Rebbe Marash, Rebbe Rashab, you know, I'm going to challenge you, and I'm going to say that calling a mimer a discourse is tantamount to calling tefillin phylacteries. Very good. Or calling a mishkan a tabernacle. Excellent. Thank you. Okay, what is a mimer? Don't tell me discourse. What's a mimer? What's a sicha? Really, tell me what's a mimer, okay. what's a sicha? Okay. So a mimer begins already in the time of the Alter Rebbe. And it's he's the one who creates the structure of the Maimer. A Maimer is, from the tr- in the tradition of Hasidim, a time when the Rebbe, the Rebbe, a soul that is an interlacing link between heaven and earth, will close his eyes, will wrap a handkerchief on his fingers so that there is something physical and tangible to hold him and down. There's a preparatory melody, a meditative a preparatory melody. melody, which is meditative meditative, allowing for mindfulness, for uh, inner reflection, and most importantly, suspending your mind from everything. No distractions, no intellectual ego, no anxiety. I know that's a tough one. But openness. And the Rebbe himself goes into a different state. You could see. It's a very emotional moment. The Alter Rebbe at his Maimarim would roll on the ground, roll on the ground. He would bump his head into the wall. He would start bleeding. They put cushions on all the walls in the city, Liazhin and Belarus. All the Rebbes would go into a trance. The Rebbe would say a Maimarim can go sometimes for an hour, usually 40 minutes, 30 minutes, 45 minutes. And it was like in a different, he was like in a different world and really presenting what they call Divri Elikim Chayim, the deepest esoteric dimensions of Torah, discussing themes like souls, angels, purpose of creation, relationship of God to the human being, the inner structure and the science of the soul, the science of the universe, the deeper meaning of a mitzvah, the deeper meaning of Torah, the entire structure of evolution from spiritual to physical, the manifestations of divine energy paralleling every component in human psychology and chemistry. This was basically presenting the extraordinarily profound, philosophical, theological, psychological, emotional, spiritual, and practical teachings of Chabad Chzidus, 
which goes through the seven generations, each one a genius, each one building on his predecessor, and the Rebbe being the seventh, building on all the six, and then adding many of his own layers and bringing it down. This was a mimer dedicated exclusively to the teachings of what you would call Chabad Chzidus, which is basically the spiritual science of the universe, of the soul, and of the, all of history. That's a mimer. But the Rebbe, in addition to a mimer... Maybe we should mention that if you hear a mimer, generally speaking, you can identify within a few seconds because there's a, there's a different cadence, there's a different tune. It's, it's distinct. It's a distinct sound. Very different tune. His eyes were closed. Everybody would stand up. Nobody would remain sitting. Everybody would stand up. The Rebbe himself, you could see that he is going through a very internal experience. You could see it. I mean, especially for people who had more sensitive eyes. Rabbi Yoel told, I once heard from Rabbi Yoel myself, that Purim once, the Rebbe said a mimer, a long mimer, and it was three o'clock in the morning, and he said, I looked at the Rebbe's face, and from his seriousness and intensity, I knew that he's going to be saying a new, a new mimer in 10 seconds. And that's exactly what happened. It was a mimer about Haman's defeat. Just interesting to know that Stalin died that night. Purim oh, this is the famous Pura. Yeah, but he told me that he saw on the face that there's going to be a mime, and it was hard for him to understand because there was a mime already in the beginning. The Rebbe wouldn't say two maimarim and a fabrengen. Besides, a few times, there was one Shabbos, he said three maimarim and one fabrengen. That was the Mittler Rebbe's yard site. The Mittler Rebbe, Rebbe David, the second Chabad Rebbe in 1960, 61. So he said three maimarim and one Shabbos. But that was very rare. But the Yoel said from the Rebbe's face... He knew that a mimer is coming. And you could see it. You could see that the Rebbe was, was, is, it was a, he was going through a very profound experience. And, and when the mimer began, the Rebbe was, had closed eyes. And by uh, Hasidim, they would say the expression, It's like the Shechina speaking. You mentioned historically that after Yudshvat, after the sixth Rebbe was Nistalik, after his passing, the Rebbe was fabreng, the Rebbe was saying sikhs for a year. But it wasn't until the Rebbe said his first mimer that the official yeah. leadership began. Yeah, the Rebbe also the first few years said mimerim with open eyes. Just like the Rebbe Rashab said with open eyes, looking at his son, the Rayats. The Rebbe said with open eyes and then he closed them. It's a little sad to say why, but the Rebbe said that the thoughts of the people sitting in front of him were confusing him in the middle of the mimer. So he started to close his eyes and they remained closed. There was a mimer that he would say sometimes on Shabbos that didn't have the melody of a mimer, but it had the theme of a mimer. He would wrap his napkin. There was no preparatory song, but he would begin, and you saw he had his eyes open. He looked in a certain direction towards his left. He would speak very monotone, so to speak, but it was really because it was a mimer. And nobody would stand up besides his brother-in-law, the Rashag, Rabbi Shmaryo Gurari, who passed away in 1989, he always knew that the Rebbe started a mime, even though it didn't have the melody, and he would stand up himself in shul. And this is sort of a subgenre. This is not. Right. This is a subgenre of within my marim. This was a subgenre, but it was the same style of my marim. But the Rebbe chose it should be with a different tune. I think part of it was he didn't want to bother everybody to stand up always. It may be a reason, but I'm not sure. Um, and it was a very different style. The Maimarim didn't have the style of the Sikhs. The Rebbe was not animated in that sense. Okay, but what, what, what is the style of the Sikhs? You, you, okay, you explained six, eloquently what's six. a Maimarim. What are the Sikhs? Because okay. would you say After we discussed that 95% what a is, of the Fabrengans yeah. were Sikhs? 90% of the Fabrengans were Sikhs. And also the Rebbe stopped saying Maimarim with a song. He stopped saying Maimarim in 1985. 
And without a song, he stopped saying my marm a few months after his wife passed away. The last mimer he said was Shabbos Chukas, 1988. And since then, he didn't say my marm besides two times surprises in 1989 when he said a mimer. I just wanted to mention that the last years, for whatever reason, the Rebbe did not say my marm. Rebbe Oyo, by the way, was very pained by that. Uh, he would, he would, you know, it was very hard for him. It represented for him something that was very uh, painful. I would say for many people, okay, so there's no Maimar in Baruch Hashem, the Rebbe is talking, but for him, the fact that there were no Maimar in the last few years were very, uh, it was not easy for him. Anyway, what about everything else? The Rebbe had so many Can I ask, presentations. I know, we're, I know we're live, so maybe I should uh, censor myself, but is there any truth to the fact that Rebbe Yoel was, I didn't hear this, I heard about it, that Rebbe Yoel made a connection between the passing of the Rebetzin and the, and the fact that there were no more Maimorim? Is that okay to speak about? Yes. Um, I never heard this from him. I heard I did hear it from other people. I should just mention that the first stage in stopping the Maimorim was when the Rebbe stopped saying Maimorim with closed eyes and with a song. As I said, the last one was, I believe, Shabbos Bereshis, Tav Shem Mem Vav, end of 1985, and that was in the middle of the court case, the, the, the very famous court case that began in 1985 when the grandson of the of the sixth Rebbe took many books from the library of Chabad, Agudas Chassidei Chabad, and there was a court case which questioned the entire legitimacy of the Rebbe as a successor, and the Rebbe stopped saying discourses with a song. After the Rebbetzin passed away, um, um, after the Rebbetzin passed away, he still said for a few months, in the middle of that summer, he stopped. I never heard this from Rabbi El directly. I did hear it from other people. But if I'm not mistaken, as far as my knowledge, it's all speculation. Which means there may be a connection. The Rebbe stopped something else after her passing. No more Fabrengans in the weekdays, only Shabbos. The last Fabrengan of the weekday was the 15th of Shvat, 1988. A few days later, she passed away on the 22nd day of Shvat. There was no Fabrengan afterwards. Never again. Only talks and only Shabbos and Yom Tif. So that's also very telling what happened. That was right after she passed away. Even Purim, Purim that year, every year there was a Fabrengan. That year Purim there was no Fabrengan. No more till the end. But every Shabbos there was a Fabrengan and there were many talks. There was one Sukkot that they put the Rebbe Stender at the place of the Fabrengan. They wanted him to sit and he said, it's not a Fabrengan, it's a talk. So this was also after her passing. Uh, you know, a lot of these things, I'm not sure uh, every, anybody really knows the reason. At least I don't. Even though there's different ideas you can say and different speculations that have been presented by Hasidim over the years. I'm sure some accurate, some more accurate, some less accurate. But I do want to describe what a sikh is. A sikh is a talk. It's a talk. Every other topic besides the direct presentation of the ideas of Hasidus Chabad were put into the sikhs, which means... The Rebbe can talk a sikha about the portion of the week, the Torah portion of the week. Discuss its theme, discuss a story, discuss a mitzvah, discuss a detail, discuss a lesson. He can talk about the holiday of the time. Pesach, Shavuah, Sukkot, Hanukkah, Purim. He may talk many. He may discuss a whole Rashi, a whole Rashi on the Parsha, like he did every Shabbos. Two talks, that's in the sikha. He may discuss a section in Zohar, or his father's commentary in Zohar. He may discuss a whole chapter or Mishnah in Prikayavis for an hour. That's a sikha. He may discuss a whole shir in Rambam. Maybe a half an hour, maybe an hour. That's a sikha. He may discuss the situation in the land of Israel, Eretz Yisrael. 
That may be an hour, two hours. That's a sicha. He may discuss education. He may discuss kiruv. He may discuss shlichus. He may discuss changing the world. He may discuss the nature of morality in the United States of America. He may discuss things, everything under the sun, connected to Jewish life, sometimes connected to civilization, connected to any theme in Yiddishkeit or Torah, timely events, and all forms of scholarship. And sometimes he will dedicate a sicha to explain the maimer. Sometimes he'll dedicate a talk to discuss an idea in chsidus. But the sichas were much different. The Rebbe's eyes were open. He was speaking to the crowd. The Rebbe moved his hands a lot under the table. He would make with his hands a lot during a sicha. The Rebbe could, if I could say this once in a while, crack a joke in a sicha, start laughing, start crying, tell more stories, go off on different tangents, discuss conversations of people, discuss the mindset of people, discuss world events, discuss events in Israel. He can go, there was like a freedom in Sichas, and of course he can discuss a whole hour, he can discuss a siyum, a siyum on a mesechta, which will be sugis in Gemara, Shas, Paskim, Rishonim, Achroinim, Rambam, Torch, Lchanaruch. In a Maimer, it was focused to the genre of pure spirituality, chsidis, language of Chabad chsidis. Okay, so now everybody is overwhelmed. <laughs> Tell us now, you have Rabbi Yoel Khan is responsible for recording, transmitting, and remaining faithful to all of this. Yes, remember, remember, in one, in one Fabrengen, there could be a mimer for an hour or 50 minutes, which is in itself, which is in itself incredibly profound, because the Rebbe in the middle of a mimer would start going fast, and I'm telling you, was it difficult? And remember, he was revealing here, you're talking about the top secrets of Kabbalah, this is not small talk. This is not small talk. You know, this is, you, you miss a word. You miss a word and you, you miss it. And then you could review 10 sikhs. Besides the Maimarim, there's 10 full presentations. Each one could be 20 minutes, 40 minutes, 50 minutes, an hour and a half. And you have to record it all and then transcribe it over the next week. Because by next Shabbos, there's going to be another Fabrengen. <laughs> and if the holiday is on Monday night... You have two days, you have two days. And the women who would like help from their husbands, it's Erev Shabbos, it's Erev Yom Tif, I should say, this whole team, especially Rabbi Yael's wife, sacrificed a tremendous amount, allowing their husbands to live on the Rebbe's schedule to some extent. Okay, talk to us about the process. If I open up, if I open up my modern Malukat, I see a finished project, a finished product. Tell me about the blood, sweat, and tears, especially from Rebbe Yoel, that went into presenting this finished product. Okay. So the Rebbe finishes talking. Let's say it's Shabbos afternoon. He began 1 o'clock. Earlier years, he began 12.30. One, my years, it was 1.30. And then he would go maybe till 4, till 5. There was a time he went, times he went till 6. There was times he went till 8. But that was very, very unusual. But 5, 6 was not unusual. Later years, it was much shorter, 3, 30, 4. So Rabbi Yoyal would, uh, would, would, would stand there. He would concentrate. As I said, he did not have a photographic memory, but he had an incredible mind to be able to know the sources, to grasp the Rebbe's presentation, and to grasp the structure within the Rebbe's presentation. Right after Shabbos, a few minutes after Shabbos, this team headed by Rabbi Yoel, would come together in 770, which is, of course, the place where the Rebbe spoke and worked. And he had a place on one of the tables. He would sit on a table. 
you have to understand that Abiyoyal, all his classes that I was by, he wouldn't have a chair and sit at the head table. There was no such a thing. He, he loathed that. He would sit on a bench between two boys. You understand? That's how it was. He did not, if you put a chair at the head table, he did not like that. Till later years, you know, they forced him to start uh, behaving more regally. But in those days, he would just sit with, he, he needed, he just needed coffee. Somebody had to keep on bringing in the coffee. <laughs> and he needed, uh, for a certain amount of time, cigarettes. Till that stopped. So Mitzayi Shabbos, he would sit down. Yes, there was a lot of coffee and a lot of cigarettes. And he would begin. He would begin. It was very special to hear. There could be anywhere between 10 people and 50 people, sometimes 100 people. There were people who would actually write down Bachrim, who would take notes as he was talking, so they would have it no, no, no notes. And he would go through the whole Fabrengen. It could take a few hours. There were arguments. People interrupted him, said, Rabbi Yoel, no, that's not what the Rebbe said. Sometimes Rabbi Yoel would go, eh, eh. this was the, eh, eh. Sometimes Rabbi Yoel was so confident that, you know, there's a story, Rabbi Zevran, about Rabbi Chaim Brisker. Somebody once quoted a Rambam. Rabbi Chaim Brisker said there's no such a Rambam. So they brought a Rambam, and they saw he was right. So Rabbi Chaim said, don't think I know the whole Rambam, but I know that such a thing the Rambam could have not written. It's not that I knew the Rambam didn't write it. I knew that the Rambam could not write it. Sometimes, Rabbi Yoel, he was in that mode. Like, the Rebbe couldn't say this. It was like, meh. It was like you're saying, you don't know what you're talking about. He was usually much kinder, but sometimes he would get, you know, uh, more intense. But there were arguments. Sometimes he would agree. <laughs> sometimes he would agree. Sometimes he said, I don't remember. And he would let somebody else take over. You have to understand, if Rabbi Yoel didn't understand something, he often would not repeat it because he was not a tape recorder. He told me a few things that he heard from the Rebbe. I said, what did the Rebbe explain? He knew the questions. He said, I didn't understand. So I said, so just tell me what the Rebbe said. He says, I can't. I didn't understand it. So he was the opposite of a tape recorder. If the Biel didn't understand it, he often would not repeat it. He would start saying it, and then he would say, I'm sorry, I don't understand. You also saw his honesty. Like, if he didn't understand, he just didn't understand it. And if you would explain it to him, he says, it doesn't make sense to me. And he says, I just don't get it. He would sometimes write a note to the Rebbe in the middle of the week. And he would say, we didn't understand this and this. Sometimes two notes, three notes, four notes. And the Rebbe would often give long answers. Long answers. A page, two pages. Long answers to explain it in writing. Sometimes next Shabbos, or over the next few weeks, he would explain things that were not explained then. So the Rebbe... Just a little bit more about this. Uh, about the back and forth. About the, the Haggad. The system of getting the Rebbe's yeah. edits. Okay. So the Rebbe would finish... Um, it would take sometimes shorter, sometimes longer. Sometimes there were strong debates. Sometimes there were things that remained a little bit unclear. He would say, I don't understand. He could get dramatic. Uh, uh, I'll just give you an interesting example. It still bothers me till today. I heard from Rabbi Yael once that the Rebbe told over the story. You know the famous story, Rabbi Sheis, that the Alter Rebbe Shloyme Kalina came to the Alter Rebbe and everybody put in salt into the dishes and Rabbi Shloyme Kalina took one spoon of soup and he put it, he cast it away and the Alter Rebbe finished the soup. So he asked the Alter Rebbe, how can you, how can you eat the soup? It's so salty. Because the Alter Rebbe wanted to know why he's not eating. He said, how do you eat it? The Alter Rebbe said, from the day I came to Mizrich, I did not, I did not, I do not taste any more the taste of food. Okay. This is a famous story. There's a famous Sikh in Lakuti Sikh's volume, Yud, Yutas Kislev, Ayishlach about this story. 
Rabbi Yoel told me that once in the 1960s, so I couldn't remember it because I wasn't born then, the Rebbe asked a question and he said, it would seem that this story would not fit with the Alter Rebbe. Because the Alter Rebbe's idea was Chesidus Chabad. And Chesidus Chabad is about the transformation and sublimation of the entire world and all of the individual, individual taste buds and skills of a person rather than its suppression. So for the Alter Rebbe, it would seem that he would taste the flavor in every individual food. That's a question. The Rebbe is asking, the Lechayr, it's not the derech of Chesidus Chabad. The word Sadikim, who were transcended the world. They didn't taste. You could give them flavor. You can give them whatever you gave them. They were like divine. But he said, but the Alter Rebbe's Chidosh was to find the divine within every flavor. So he should have tasted the food. I heard this from Rebbe. So I said, Rebbe, what did the, did the Rebbe answer? He said, yeah, the Rebbe answered. I said, what was the answer? He said, I didn't understand it. So I said, Rebbe, could you just tell me? Tell me, me what you didn't understand. Tell me the Rebbe's words. I, 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 maybe I had a chutzpah. I said, maybe I'll understand. Tell me the Rebbe's words. I, I can't. And he said, I'm not trying, like he said, I'm not trying to be cruel and selfish. I didn't understand it. So he really, he really had to understand. And that's why there were a lot of arguments, because sometimes people understood differently. <laughs> I have to say, you know, with all, Rabbi Yoel was a genius, but sometimes some of his students felt that he was wrong. <laughs> And, and there were arguments, there were, there were intense arguments. Obviously, Rabiel was the chief editor, the chief scribe, so he was the, he was the, what you would call Paisakacharan, you know, he had the, the rights of veto, he had the rights of veto. Then came the work of uh, transcribing. That happened over the next week. In the early years, the 50s and the 60s, Rabiel did this himself, sometimes with the help of, of other students. In the 1960s and the 1970s, they formed groups called Vad HaNachis Atmimim, of boys, yeshiva boys, who would either do it with the help of Rabbi Yoel or assist Rabbi Yoel. And that's how it remained for the later years. There was a group of students who would transcribe the Sichis first in Yiddish for many years, and then later in the early 80s, 80s there were also the writers in Hebrew, Lashon Kaidish, and they would write it, and they would often ask Rabbi Yoel for guidance and advice. There was often a process where if certain ideas were not understood, Rabbi Yoel would write in a letter a note to the Rebbe, and the Rebbe would often ignore it. But very often he would give out answers. Sometimes the answers were very sharp. Sometimes the answers were very intense. Sometimes the Rebbe was upset about people not uh, thinking about the concept. He once wrote on a letter on a, one of these questions, did you guys think about this for more than five minutes? He wrote once... Uh, I think you should, with this question, you should consult a five-year-old boy and he will explain to you. Uh, the Rebbe once wrote uh, on one of these questions, uh, go home and try it with cardboard and you'll see that I was right. He was talking about the kapoiris, the lid of gold, that if it wasn't a tefach, it would it would cave into the urn. And that's why Rashi has to write it. So the writers of the Sikhist are asking him all these questions. So he said, go home and take a piece of cardboard and do an experiment and <laughs> you'll see that I was right. So these answers were the early years with Rabbi Yoel, and then it was the people working with Rabbi Yoel. And sometimes, as I said, the Rebbe, over the next few weeks, would clarify things. You'll see in a lot of the sikhs, they're not from one sikh. So this is what happened that week. But none of this was edited by the Rebbe. None of this. None of this. So this is all sikhs that were written based on the grasp and the ability of the memorizers and the transcribers to understand. Are the things missing? Yes, there are things missing. This is not verbatim. 
There's things missing because people didn't always remember. People didn't always understand. And as I told you, the structure was not always so easy to grasp. So sometimes the Ebbe would say a lot of things that were tangents and some of them may have been missed or sometimes something was unclear. Sometimes they'll write a parenthesis, he said something but they didn't get it and Rabbi Yoel didn't get it. So they'll write, it's unclear. So none of this is edited. Today it's published in 150 volumes. Sichis Kaidish in Yiddish and Teres Menachem Hisvaduyus in Hebrew. It's approximately 150 volumes, unedited talks of the Rebbe from 1950 through well, we 1992. Clarify what unedited means. It doesn't mean unedited in the conventional sense. No, edited by the writers and the transcribers who did a magnificent job. There are works of scholarship, but you mean works the of great scholarship. Give, yeah, I should, but I should say, I'm going I'm to say this, it'll always say Bilti Muga, which means the Rebbe did not go it through. Sometimes there were disagreements, you know, sometimes... You know, I could see one of my colleagues write something and I felt that he didn't understand it right. There were disagreements sometimes. Sometimes the richness, the richness and the intricacies in the Rebbe's presentations were not conveyed so well in the written word because it is based on the well-intended, but the mind and therefore the limitations of the writer and his prisms. It's brilliant, it's great, it's scholarship, but you have to understand people are people and every student captures the truth the way he captures it, even though he's trying his best to convey the full truth. So give us a glimpse of Rabbi Yoel and his involvement in the Haggah process and getting oh. the Rebbe to give a final approved version now, for Yoel, It's very impressive, I should tell you. In recent years, they discovered a lot of the recordings of the old Fabrengans that Rabbi Yoel did not know existed. And I sometimes compare a tape recorder where you hear the Rebbe word for it and the Bioyal's transcript in the 1950s from memory. And there it's remarkable to see what a good job he did. You could see that he missed things. You could see. The Rebbe elaborated, but you could see that he captured the soul and he got so much of it. Not fully, not 100%, but he got so much of it. You appreciate it much more because you can actually compare it. Shabbos, you can't compare it to a tape recorder. But some of the old Fabrengans came now out in recordings like Purim and, uh, and Hanukkah and Yotas Kislev and other, other Fabrengans. So, so this was all not edited by the Rebbe. In the late 50s, it wasn't easy, but the Rebbe agreed to start editing some pieces, some fragments of his talks. This is 1958, and then it continued through the 1960s. And it continued through the 70s and the 80s and the early 90s. Every Shabbos, Rabbi Yoel, and then there was a team called Vad Lafatzasichas, would prepare from the Rebbe's talks of previous years a theme on the Parsha or the holiday. So let's say it's Parsha's Bereshis. They may take, Rabbi Yoel may take a Rashi that the Rebbe discussed on Parsha's Bereshis five years ago or ten years ago or two years ago or last month and prepare it edited, fully edited with a structure, delete all of the tangents, sometimes delete a lot of things that were not directly relevant, prepare footnotes and references. This was called Lakute Sichis. It was given into the Rebbe to edit. The Rebbe edited it very, very heavily. And this became the 39 volumes of Lakute Sichis, which begin in 1958, continue in the mid-60s, late-60s, and continue for most of the 70s, 80s, and early 90s. 39 volumes with close to 1,600 full-edited sikhs. Each one is a sugya in Yiddishkeit. It could be in Halacha, Nigla, Chsidis, Pilpul, Rashi, Rambam, Hadronim, Siyumim, Shas, Poiskim, Pkiyas, Iyun, Nigla, Chsidis, Kabbalah, but each one is a full-fledged shir. Incredible sikhs. These were, these were what Rabbi Yael and then his students 
took. Sometimes they could combine a few fabrengans if the Rebbe spoke about one theme. Sometimes the Rebbe spoke about something for a few shabbosim. The Rebbe would make six siyumim on shas throughout the year. Five or six on different mesechters of the whole shas. Most of them were published in Lukudei Sichas. He would sometimes continue the next few Shabbosim. So these were compiled into a structured Sichas called Lukudei Sichas. Lukudei Sichas gives you a glimpse into much of the Rebbe's genius. But I always tell people, 90% of the Rebbe's talks did not go into Lukudei Sichas. Or maybe 80%. I, I think for people who don't understand this world, when you're talking about a system where the Rebbe's editing the transcripts. First of all, the, the transcripts that Rebbe's editing have already been thoroughly worked through and edited and many times the sources, the footnotes yeah. have been added. Yeah. And, and as you as you yourself mentioned, sometimes the Rebbe wanted a more thorough transcript. The Rebbe didn't, felt yes. that it hadn't, they hadn't adequately put enough work yes. in. The Rebbe was very upset. The Rebbe, once wrote, the Rebbe once wrote on top, and this was not a compliment. Listen to what he wrote. He wrote, this is a transcript, word for word from the tape. And for the Rebbe, this meant this was a disaster. Because <laughs> you can't write the way you speak. When you speak, you repeat, you go off on tangents, you emphasize different points in different places. When the Rebbe you know, wanted the Rebbe to write... You know what you're reminding me of? It's almost like what the Rambam said about Ibn Tiba. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I think you could say this about Rebbe Yod. I mean, they have to have the knowledge in the three. You mean that? That literal translation is not a faithful translation. Literal. The more literal it is, the worse it is. And by the way, if we're talking already, I have to say a lot of, you know this well, a lot of the English translations of some of our greatest works are, are really inaccurate. Not because the writer was inauthentic. He was. It's too faithful. It's too faithful. Yeah. It's very hard, hard to explain that. It's like a paradox. No, listen, if you translate Tanya, if you translate Sadik, righteous, Bainini, intermediary, Russia, wicked, technically it's accurate. But I don't think it allows anybody to understand what the Tanya is saying. Uh-huh. You, wrote, you wrote the maps of the Tanya. By the way, you mentioned the map of Tanya. I want to tell you something. There's one, the map of Tanya was my first attempt at trying to be involved in Avatsa Samayamis. So I have one involvement with Rabbi Yoel that I can share. Uh, by the way, many times I ask Rabbi Yoel questions, and he would tell me, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. He loved, Rabbi Yoel loved saying that. <laughs> I don't know that he loved saying it, but... <laughs> it he said it. He certainly said it. I don't know. Right. So he also, I should say, he also sometimes was not in the mood. I sat for years by his classes. Sometimes he was in the mood, and when he was in the mood, the class was, was, was a masterpiece. Sometimes he was not in the mood. Maybe he was exhausted, maybe something happened, and he would go through the class. It was still maybe much better than any other classes. I, huh? I took it that he had a lot of important ideas he was sorting yeah. through. <laughs> My question didn't necessarily have to be number one on the agenda. <clears throat> Excuse me. So what did he tell but you about I'll, the I'll, map? I'll tell you about the map of Tanya. He, he, he blew my mind. I mean, it blew everyone's mind. But I, I, I attempted to give the whole Kutambaram, Gan Prokim, the whole 53 chapters of the first volume of Tanya in one skira achas, in one pictorial representation. For those who haven't seen it, it's very hard to understand what I'm even describing. But if you've seen it, anyways, there's one, there's really only one major structural change 
from the from the first draft to the final draft, and that was Rabbi. We presented it to him, and uh, Rabbi David Oladar from Kahos was involved in. in I wrote it in English, and then trans- Rabbi David translated the Hebrew. So they showed it Rabbi Yo, and he says, "No, the Simcha Prokim, you have to change." There are chapters in Tanya that deal with emotional well-being. A lot of people don't realize but Tanya deals with emotional well-being for, for, for an, an extended amount of chapters. So I had originally that emotional well-being is 26 through 31. 32, of course, famously, Pedic Lave, the heart of Tanya, is obviously Israel, loving your fellow Jew. And then I had Mashiach starting in 33, a dwelling place for Hashem in this world starts in 33, Continuing through 37. Rabbi Yel saw this. He says, no. 33 and 34 are also about simcha, are also about joy. I said, no, no, no. 32 stopped it. 32 stopped that, 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 that flow. He said, no, it's, it didn't stop it. It paused it because it's a maimara muzka. You understand? Everyone knows that chapter 32 is, is, is parenthetical. Historically, it's a fact that the Alter Rebbe inserted, if you know the Madura Kama, you know, the, the original edition of Tanya didn't have a chapter 32. The, everyone historically knows that chapter 32 was placed after the fact. But for Rabbi to be able to say it as a concept, it's a pause. And because it's a pause, right after it's finished, it picks up again. And yeah. 33 and 34 continue to talk yeah. about Simcha. So right. I countered. I said, no, no, no. But 33 and 34 are about Mashiach. But you a dwelling place for God in this world, which are the subjects of 35, 36, and 37. He said, no, 33 and 34 are about the joy over the dwelling place in the, in the, in the lower realm. So it, it, it's a continuation of the topic of joy, which was 26 through yeah. 31. And the discussion of a dwelling place for God in this world proper doesn't begin until 35. So that was one little comment, yeah. which he didn't open a book. He didn't go look up some, just he looked at it. Yeah. That, like you said at the very beginning, that was the world that he lived in. He could yeah, he tell you that world how to get from chapter had... to chapter in Tanya, like you could give me directions how to get from your house to to, to, the, to the airport. Yeah, and he had, I sometimes call him the the the, the Reb Chaim Brisker of Chabad Chassidus. You know, the Brisker Derek is very much to compartmentalize, to dissect, to focus in, to zoom in, to zoom out, structure to get down to the core, broad bones of the topic. Reb Chaim did this in Rambam and in Nigla, it's known as the Briska Derech. And Reb Yoel's classes, from my perspective, did that in, in the world of Chassidus. <laughs> they say that the Rebbe Rashab was the Rambam of Chassidus, and I feel Reb Yoel was like, Chidushi Reb Chaim Halevi ala Rambam, if I may say so, just my own. Uh, I, my I, own we've been talking over an hour now about Reb Yoel as Chayzer and Meniach, as repeating and retaining and, and transmitting the Rebbe's sinus. It's We've been talking over an hour. <laughs> I want to change gears. I want to change oh, yeah, gears. Yeah, yeah. We, did, I, we didn't even begin here. We, we didn't, didn't even begin. begin. I, I, I want to I change gears. I want to talk about now Rabbi Yoel as a scholar, which is different than Rabbi Yoel as the transmitter and the one who retained faithfully the Rebbe's teachings. I want to talk about Rabbi Yoel as, if I could say in crass terms, but maybe in terms that the, the, 
the audience might un- understand or relate to, a professor of chassidus, as the, as the foremost expert in these teachings, as a teacher, as a mashpia in the yeshiva, uh, giving public classes, his work in Heichel Menachem. Talk to us about that world. Rabbi Yoel is the teacher. Right. Okay, so forgive me that I'm going to say this in the beginning. I just, I feel, I, I like authenticity. At least I, I hope that I like authenticity. So I want to say one thing about Rabbi Yoel's classes. I learned a tremendous amount from Rabbi Yoel. Number one, how to build a shear. Number two, how to understand many concepts. Number three, how to present many concepts. Um, and therefore I owe him a great debt of gratitude. And I went to his funeral and... Uh, after the burial in the Montefiore Cemetery, a few feet away from the Rebbe's burial place, I, uh, when the people dispersed, there was a lot of people, so when the people dispersed, I went over to the fresh grave, and I said a capital till him, and then I just said, I said to Rebbe, oh, thank you. I just felt that I and we owe him a, a, a great debt of gratitude, because I think, you know, Rebbe classes were not perfect. The one thing that I think they lacked was... Um, and this was not a lack. For me, it was a lack, just for me. The Rebiel did not bring it down to uh, my uh, frail, mortal, uh, insecure, traumatic, psychological, anxious world. He, he knew kept, that you would. <laughs> yeah. Rebiel kept it Rebiel kept it up there uh, brilliantly. And he had certain things, you know, that uh, which I felt were certain limitations. And teaching Rabbi liked to stick to the same texts. I didn't appreciate that. I tried always to bring a new text. Sometimes I succeeded. Sometimes he got upset at me. But uh, I'm not mentioning this, you know, to understand that, you know, we're dealing sometimes like with certain things I just couldn't apply. I, I didn't get it. Like I, I wished he could bring it down more. I wish he could bring in more diverse, diverse topics. But he did not. He did not. Like Rabbi Adin Steinsaltz died last year, Rabbi Adin Evin Yisrael, right? A scholar of tremendous proportions. You know, when you listen to his lectures, when I listened to his lectures, there was anthropology and zoology and botany and psychology and, of course, a little philosophy and some good cynicism and all that. Rabbi Yoel would stick completely to the to the source material and he would not be A purist. A purist. And you could not get I'll, him. I'll tell you something, by the way. A Satmer, younger man, came to me and he told me that he learned Tanya and he told me that one time after the shear, he went to Rabiel and he asked him <laughs> the source for something that Rabiel had said in the class. So Rabiel told him, this is what this, this, this Satmer Chosid told me, and he, he was very taken with this. He said, he asked Rabiel, what's the source? He said, I don't know, but it's, it's Chabad. He says, you're sure it's Chabad? He says, yeah, because I'm a chadish bin an innovator. I'm not. And in friends for, and in let's call it foreign texts, I never looked. So by deduction, it must be a chabad source. Now, if somebody yeah. doesn't know how to take that, by the way, they wouldn't know that Rabbi Yoel was a baki b'shas. Now, maybe it was a Baki Bishas through Lakut Esichas, but it was a Baki Bishas. So, uh, but, but a purist, I mean, talk a little bit about that. The, yeah. the, the devotion to yeah. the, the subject matter in, right. in, a, in, 
in a very, in an unusual way, because normally intellectuals, if I could stereotype for a second, intellectuals like exploration, they like to dabble, they like, you know, the thrill of something innovative. Rabbi Yerl was very laser focused in an yeah. unusual way. Yeah. So I'll, I'll, I'll bring out, I think, a few points which are relevant that come to mind. Number one, um, I'll share something I heard from him once, Purim. I think this was Purim 95, who was sitting in somebody's house, or Fabrengen, and he shared the following story, which I thought was very, very powerful. He was close to a man named Reb Aaron Chaim Halevi Zimmerman. Reb, Reb, Reb Chaim Zimmerman, who was considered one of the Litvish of the last generation. He was a nephew of the great Reb Baruch Ber Leibovich, the great student of Reb Chaim Briskid, Rosh Hashiva of Kamenitz, the author of Bircha Shmuel. Reb Chaim Zimmerman was a genius. He was also very eccentric, but he was a genius. He wrote the Sefer Agan Asar on, on astronomy, on the international dateline Kavatayrach. I heard from Reb Yael directly that Reb Chaim Zimmerman, who was a great Litvish Agadl, Great gone would come visit the Rebbe in the early years. He told me that he once saw that he stopped the Rebbe in the street. The Rebbe was coming from his home, and they started to engage in this conversation. They walked into 770. They continued. They walked to the Rebbe's room. He said the Rebbe stood with the key in the door for a half an hour. Rebbe Chaim Tzimmer was running back and forth by the elevator and that little room they call Ganeid Natachten, running back and forth, arguing with the Rebbe. He said, I heard the whole conversation. They went through Bavli, Yerushalmi, Rashi's, Toysvus, Yerushayinim, Acheroinim. He was, he was on fire. Rebbe Chaim was on fire. He was screaming. He was hollering, arguing with the Rebbe. The Rebbe would wait, calmly respond, very calmly, with a Rashi, with a Toysvus, with a Yerushalmi, with a Bavli, for a half an hour. Finally, he said, Rebbe told me finally Reb Chaim refuted the Rebbe and the Rebbe said but what about this Toysvus and the Rebbe quoted the Toysvus and Reb Chaim was quiet Reb Chaim was quiet he said for him. I have no refutation and he went out of the room and he, then he tells me Reb Yael told me that Reb Chaim Zimmerman told him he says I am so upset at Rabbi Chadukov Rabbi Chadukov was the chief secretary of the Rebbe I am so upset Reb Yael said why upset Rabbi Chadukov he says he allows that women and men and children go into the Rebbe to speak about foolish, superficial things. Don't you understand that he is a Chad Bedar? He's one in a generation and teaching Torah. He should be giving Shiurim all day. I should be sitting in his room all day. Not children asking blessings, <laughs> blessings for their life. So Rebiel says, this Purim, he was talking to a few of us. And he says, I once visited a Chaim Zimmerman. It was late at night. And Rabbi Yoel visited Chaim Zimmerman. And Chaim Zimmerman is excited. He says, I got a letter from the Lubavitcher Rebbe. A le- personal letter. And the Rebbe described in a few lines the essence of Seder Kachim. The essence of Seder Kachim and Shas. Seder Kachim is, is, is the whole system of Mishnah and Gemara about Karbonis and the Beis Hamikdash. He described the essence, the, the quintessence. So Rabbi Yoel says, I asked him, can I see the letter? It was exciting. So he says, Do Kent's catch him? Do you know the whole catch him? Do you know the whole catch him? Real says, No. So he says, So you won't appreciate the letter. I'm not showing the letter. I'm not showing the letter. Rabbi Yoel says, Tell me about the letter. Tell me about the letter. So Rabbi Chaim Zimmerman told him as follows. He said, What is learning? What is learning? 
You think that learning is the way the Achroinim learned. No. Learning is the way the Rishonim learned. He says there's a big difference. He says the Achroinim, which means later generations and contemporary commentators, he says they learn a piece of Gemara. They're learning. They're learning another piece, another piece. Then they have questions. So they start answering the questions and they get into a whole analysis and a whole idea to answer the questions. Okay. He says that's not how the Rishonim learned. He says the Rishonim the Rambam, the Rajba, the Rosh, the Ran, the Nemuka Yosef, the Ramban, the, the great Rishonim, the Rif, and of course the Ga'inim and the Tanoim and the Maram, the way they learned was very different. He said they had, this is what I remember from Rabbi on the name of Rabbi Chaim Tzimimim, they had four or five quintessential ideas about life that their entire philosophy revolved around. These ideas were quintessential ideas about God, about the world, about the universe, about the essence of Torah, about the essence of wisdom, the essence of the soul, the essence of morality, the essence of halacha, the essence of shas. These were like four or five central ideas that everything revolved around, and very deep ideas that manifest themselves in every aspect of reality, beginning with halacha. And that's how they learn the Gemara. They learn the Gemara seeing those essential innate ideas that are at the core of all universal wisdom and all spiritual wisdom and all legal wisdom and all Torah wisdom. Now, the Rambam or the Ramban have a question. So they address the question just to get rid of that question. But there is an essential, undefined, intangible infinity of wisdom that they see immediately, and every Tana has his shita and his derech. And then he looks at Jabiril and he says, and the Lubavitcher Rebbe learns Torah like that. And the Lubavitcher Rebbe learns Torah like that. But I'm not showing you the letter, because you won't understand it, because you don't know Kachim. By the way, till today they haven't found the letter. But then... Hanselman turns to the Bjorn, who's a big Litvisher Rosh Hashim, you have to understand. He's not a Hasidic Jew. And he says, I look at this letter, go call. He calls up Rabbi Chadakov. <laughs> the Bjorn started to laugh. He calls up in the middle, it's one o'clock in the morning. And he says, go into the Rebbe and tell the Lubavitcher Rebbe that Chaim Zimmerman says that he's a Chad Bedara. He's one in a generation. And tell him that Chaim Zimmerman doesn't throw around compliments. If Chaim Zimmerman says he's one in a generation, he's one in a generation. Now, Rabbi Chadikov wouldn't do this. I don't think he did it, but maybe he did. I don't know. But Rabbi Yoel certainly got, Rabbi Yoel certainly got a kick of it. Then he turns to Rabbi Yoel and he says, I have to tell you, that half an hour that I stood outside over there, his room arguing with him, I was right. He was wrong. His last toysvis, ooh, that was strong. That was powerful. I couldn't refute it. But he said, but you know what? I'm still right. <laughs> I'm still, why am I saying this to you? I'm saying this to you because Rabbi Yoel tried to convey this path in learning. Rabbi Yoel, in his own way, tried to convey this path in learning, and that's why he appreciated the Rebbe so much. Because he felt from the Rebbe, Rabbi Yoel was a genius on his own right. <laughs> Rabbi Yoel was a genius. He could have been one of the top Rosh Hashivas. But Rabbi Yoel saw in the Rebbe's mind the ability to capture Torah in an unusually profound way and also be able to unify all aspects of Torah into those core ideas. And for him, that was not only refreshing, but it rung for him, I think as it rings for many of us, with, with that ultimate uh, imprint of truth, of, of elikus, of divinity, of infinity. You know, you know to call it. back to something, to, to, I want to call back to something you'd mentioned earlier about, you described 
being a chazara, where, where Rabbi El was repeating the Rebbe's Fabrengen, and somebody would interrupt and say, no, the Rebbe said different. And Rabbi El saying, the Rebbe couldn't have said that. I don't know the Rebbe if he couldn't said, have that's said what he that. Meant. He meant much that. much deeper yeah. than just, it right. didn't fit the context of that right. talk. Right. He did not like the technical. Sometimes people would get technical with him. It was... And, and, you know, sometimes I have to say, sometimes I appreciated that because I wanted to know exactly what the Rebbe said. But sometimes he didn't fall for it. He's like, he's like chitzonius, like you're busy with the externalities. <laughs> there was somebody who would criticize him. No, the main thing is Isis Harav, just repeat like a tape recorder. <laughs> and Rabbi El appreciated that, but he wanted the theme. He, he wanted he wanted the essence. And... Uh, and he was he was extremely focused on that, and he and he tried to convey that taste, and he understood. I want to I want to lead you in this direction a little bit because obviously the Rebbe spoke so many thousands of hours. The Rebbe was communicating communicating a message. It wasn't it wasn't for fun. It was the Rebbe had a message. Talk to me, at least in your view, and your you know without any responsibility. Just your own impressions. What do you think? What did you gather from Rebbe Yoel's teachings, both transmitting the Rebbe's Torah, but also as a teacher in his own right? What did you gather to Rebbe Yoel were like the core ideas, the big ideas of the Rebbe's worldview? I mean, I can think of some, but I'm more interested to hear you. Okay. Um, obviously, this is a very, very loaded question. I should say it's a very infinite question, meaning it's important to say this, that we can discuss hundreds and hundreds of sikhs and maimarim printed, published today, edited by the Rebbe or unedited by the Rebbe, each one conveying a, a, a splendorous idea. But I, I, would, I would like to touch, to touch on a few notes. I do want to say... I, and by the way, just just to insert here, you say every sicha has has some type of you know bombshell. I would go further than that and to say, you learn a sicha, the Rebbe will relegate to a footnote at the bottom of the page a chidush that had any Rosh Hashiva come up with that, <laughs> he wouldn't stop talking about it the rest of his life, right? So there, there's bombshell after bombshell. On yeah. every square inch of the page. Very, very, very rich. Unbelievably rich. But, but, but what I wanted you to do is the opposite. Not the richness. Talk to us about the big ideas, the essential ideas right. of the Rebbe's Torah, the Rebbe's worldview, as right. Yoel was able to gather yeah. it and frame it and, and transmit it. So, so, so I will say this. That Give me three. Time- I, I'm going to challenge you. Give me three big ideas. Got it. Okay, as a just a con- as a context on what I'm building it out on, our best time with Rabbi Yoel was Friday night. You see, the other classes were seven thirty in the morning, or eight o'clock at night, which were great, but they were limited because nine o'clock was was Shachris and and nine thirty was Meiriv, but uh, Friday night was unlimited. <laughs> he would come after Lichtsenden to uh, Bismedrush and cry the Koilil or seven seventy. And sit for hours and learn. He would teach a sicha, one of the classic sichas of the Rebbe Lakuti sichas. And I sat there for quite a, a few years and learned a lot. 
And I have to say, I never said this publicly, I'm going to confess my sin. Rabbi Yoel, after an hour and a half or two hours, when you would ask him a tough question, he would look at the clock. And if you would see that it was getting close to 7.38, and the Bachim have to daven Meirim and go home and, and eat, uh, go, to the, go to the meal, go home, he would quit the shin, he would say, eh, another time. So uh, I got frustrated with that. So I, I, we, we sat in a, in, a, in a room in the Koylil on Union Street, and the Bachim didn't have watches, but there was a clock on the wall. So before Shabbos, I would come and I would steal, I would steal, <laughs> I would steal the clock. Or I got a cue from Rabbi Avraham HaMalach, from the Alter Rebbe, this Rabbi Malach, I turned the clock backwards. So Rabbi would ask what time it was. <laughs> Either there was no clock. <laughs> so he would say, okay, let's go further. Or the Bachim would give the wrong time. So we could get another hour. And those Shabbosim, really, we learned hours by him. Hours. And he explained to us so many concepts and ideas in Yiddish. And we would ask questions uh, uh, you know, again, sometimes he was in the mood, sometimes he was not so much in the mood, sometimes he was sharper, somewhat, sometimes he was more benign. But I'm just mentioning this as a special memory. Okay, uh, the big ideas. Give us some yeah, big ideas. Yeah, molded us. Essential I think, ideas. I see, I, I think, I think at least some of the essential ideas were as follows. Number one, that every single thing in Nigla, from the biggest to the smallest, from the most grand to the most intricate, meticulous, and detailed nuances in Halacha, in Gemara, in Mishnah, Bavli, Yerushalmi, Rambam, Shulchan Aruch, Rishonim, Acheronim, in Nigla is a mirror, is a reflection of Kabbalistic, mystical, spiritual, Hasidic, philosophical, theological, transcendental, and spiritual ideas. And that there's a seamless flow between the esoteric and the revealed part of Torah between the Nister and the Nigla, to the point that it's like a soul and a body, where the soul without the body is not concrete, and yet the body without the soul is missing that that full life. Do you and, remember and any specific vitality. examples of this, specific illustrations of this concept? Specifically, something that Abiel shared, the marriage yes, between uh, Nigla and Nister. Absolutely. I just remember one thing he, sa- he told us in a shir. At the end of the shir, I remember he told this to us, and uh, I think he got this from non-Chabad sources. I think he told me afterwards he got it from non-Chabad sources. And if I'm not mistaken, I found this in the Sefer Beis Yaakov from the Ishbitzer. <laughs> if I'm not mistaken, I, this was many, many years ago. So, uh, you know, I guess he did look sometimes. If I'm not mistaken, maybe I'm wrong, but this is many years ago. But he once said something beautiful. He spoke about the conflict between philosophy and Kabbalah between Rambam and Ariza. The Rambam stream officially was rational. The Rambam was a rationalist. Maimonides, a rationalist, philosopher. Murray and Nebuchadnezzar, guide to the perplexed. And the Kabbalists were mystics. You know, the, the philosophers didn't have a romantic relationship with God. You don't talk about God. God is abstract. God is transcendent. And that was amazing. And, you know, for the Kabbalists, there was intimacy and there's the spheres and the world and we affect the world and there's a groom and there's a bride. Celebedic and Freilich. And he was once talking about the, the this two streams and the fact that the Alter Rebbe synthesized between the two. He believed that that ultimate Jewish philosophy and ultimate Jewish mysticism are not in conflict with each other. They they really come together. And the Biyoyal, and this was very surprising for anybody who's familiar with all of the literature about the conflict between Kabbalah and philosophy. And then Abiyo said something. He said, you know, take a look at Marin of the guy to the perplexed. Chapter, section three, 
the Rambam gives a reason for all the mitzvahs, sometimes very rational and strange reasons that many others got very upset with. For example, the Rambam says the reasons for sacrifices is because the Jews were pagans and they liked to sacrifice children. So God said, you know what? Just kill animals instead of children. It was like maturing the children. And the Ramban is very upset at the Rambam. Ketoris, we burn incense because there was a horrible smell. It was a deodorant for the Beis HaMikdash. Like these are the Rambam's reasons. The Ramban gets very upset. Rabbi Yoel said... People don't understand that Alter Rebbe showed that the reasons in Meir Nevuchem are the earthly manifestation of divine transcendental reasons articulated in the Ariza. So we were looking at him and I was like, like, really? He said, yeah. The Rebbe said that it says in Zoya that we burn Ktairis to remove the Ruach HaSitra Acher, the spiritual impurity. But for the Rambam, there is unison. So the spiritual impurity, the spiritual bad odor is reflected in the physical bad odor. And the Rebbe says, I want to tell you something. The Rambam gives a reason for every mitzvah besides one. Do you know which one? Well, one of the people there knew, Lechem HaPonim. The Rambam says, Lechem HaPonim ain't time you do. We don't know why we offer 12 loaves of bread on the altar and eat it every Shabbos. The We don't know the reason. And the commentators are very perplexed. The Rambam found a reason for everything. You don't shave your beard. You know why you don't shave your beard? You don't cut your payas? Because the pagan priests used to cut their payas. He found a reason. He couldn't find a reason for putting bread on the Mizbeach. Rabbi smiled and he said, and now read the Arizal's song for Shabbos afternoon meal. Asade lisudasa. The Arizal writes, Yigalalon taima. The Bisraisa Nami. Please, Hashem, reveal to us the reason of the 12 loaves of bread. That reason doesn't know the reason. And then Rabbi El said these words. He said, Let me explain it to you. The reason there could be a reason in Meirin of Vuchim is because there's a reason in Kabbalah. And the rational, scientific, practical universe evolves from the spiritual, metaphysical universe. If there's no reason in the Arizal, there will be no reason in the Rambam. Because Meirin of Vuchim is ultimately a reflection of the ultimate truth. I'll just give you one example I heard from him. Those who are into these topics appreciate here the 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 focus on the unity. He once told me we were standing in the hallway. And I asked him about the argument between the Alter Rebbe and Reb Chaim about Torah Lishma. You know the argument? The Alter Rebbe says in Tanya chapter 5, Torah Lishma is, yeah, you learn L'kasher Nafshoi Lashem. To be aligned with Hashem. Through Torah ter- is an act of intimacy with Hashem. That's Lishma. Reb Chaim Valajan, the great student of the Vilna Gon and a contemporary of the Alter wrote a work called Nefesh Achayim, and in, in section 4, he, <laughs> he says, no, not like those who think that Torah Lishma is about thinking about God. Torah Lishma is, you learn Torah because of the intellectual pleasure of Torah. It's so beautiful, it's so rich, I love every word, I just love it. That's Torah Lishma. Yes, of course, it's spiritual connection, it's the deepest connection, but he praised and extolled the virtue of learning Torah for the intellectual stimulation and brilliance. <laughs> so somebody asked me that week about that at a shir I gave him Barapak, so I discussed it with Rebbe on Shabbos. 
So sometimes he wasn't in the mood, he wouldn't answer. But then he tells me, he says, I'll tell you a story. He says, there was a Jew, he went to two yeshivas for Shavuos. One was a big yeshiva, he mentioned the name. And then he also came to Labavish, to the Tzemach Tzedek, for Shavuos. And then they asked him, is there any difference? He says, there's no difference. In that yeshiva, they asked on Shavuos, Rosh Hashiva said, why do we say Torah is man Hashemayim? Why do we say Torah is from heaven? Torah is so brilliant. Who cares if it's from heaven or not? It's so brilliant. Agimoris, who cares if it's from heaven? And then he explained, but still, the greatness of Torah that is from heaven. He says, then he comes to the Tzamech Tzedek for Shavuos. Tzamech Tzedek starts the Mimer. Torah is min ha-shamayim, min ha-shamayim, dibarati but I don't understand. Shamayim is Eish and Mayim. Eish and Mayim is Chesed and Gvura, which is Zah. But Torah comes from Hashem's Chachma, from Hashem's essence. So why do you say Torah is min ha-shamayim? Torah is not from Hashem's Midas. Torah is from Hashem's wisdom and core. The man says, in both places, they both said that Torah min ha-shamayim is, is, uh, doesn't seem so relevant. And the Samachetic explained why. Yeah. And then Abiel told me as follows. He said that he once heard from the Rebbe at a Fabrengen. I never saw this, but he said, he told me, he heard this from the Rebbe. And the Rebbe said that the reason that Torah is so pleasurable and delightful for the human mind, the reason Torah is so geschmack when you get it, it's because Torah is tainug ha'atzmi from atzmos ein soif. Torah is the essential delight of Hashem in his core which transcends everything and everybody. It's pure infinity. And because Hashem is truth, so on every level of reality, you're going to perceive truth. So therefore, even when you come into the world of human pleasures, Torah is going to be the ultimate pleasure. But the reason that Torah is going to be the ultimate pleasure is not because the ego likes Torah, because Torah was written by brilliant people or by a brilliant God. The real reason is because Torah is the essence of pleasure, because it comes from the source. So it's manifested in, in, in human pleasure as well. And he said, and suddenly here you see the unity of everything. A Jew is learning Torah, he thinks intellectual pleasure. At the core of that is, 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 is divine infinity. That type of unity in everybody and everything, in every sugyan and in the world, is, is I think one of the profoundest aspects. It's not just in ideas. Rabbi Yoel once told us, Yutas Kislev Tavshin Chafei, 1964, the Rebbe quotes a medrash, Pirkei the Rebbe says, Dogon. Yeah, Yitzchak plants grain. So the medrash says, V'chizora Dogon Chas V'shalom. Yitzchak planted grain, heaven forbid. No, Zara Tzdaka. He planted grain in order to give Tzdaka. So the Biel said, the Rebbe said, Chizara Dogan Chas V'shalom. Was it a sin to plant grain? It says, <laughs> Planting grain is a sin to feed your family, to grow produce. I mean, all the mitzvahs, trumas, maestras, pay, aleke, chikhe, bikurim. It's all, it's, all, it's all from your plants or uh, not bikurim as fruits, but all the other mitzvahs. So the Biel said, the Rebbe said, the Chizara Dogan Chas V'shalom. The Ovois were a conduit for, in, for infinity, for Enoid Mulvadi in the world. Everything for them was, like it says in Tanya, that their whole life was a Merkava. They were chariots for Hashem. So, so they, they planted grain. <laughs> they planted grain. They lived in the world of grain. They lived in a world where everything was divine. Every moment was serving Hashem. Was Bechizara Dogen Chas V'Shalom. So the Medrash says, yeah, Zara Tzedakah. What's the Medrash saying? Not that they didn't plant grain. That for them, the grain 
was a vehicle for divine revelation, for divine service. It was an opportunity for charity. So you're, it's of you're, course you're bringing us life. back <laughs> to the beginning, the story of the chicken, the Shaila about the chicken. Shaila about the chicken. That type of unity, both in thought, in action, in reality, is something that is continuously manifested. Uh, I remember once uh, Rebiel taught us the Rebbe's famous Sicheshvuas Chavav 66. Uh, I'm sorry, yeah, 66 and 64, both printed in Chelek Vav Yisra. He tells the story of Rabbi Akiva. You know that one? Brachas HaMachalaf, Rabbi Akiva's body is being mutilated by the Romans. Brachas HaMachalaf, they are scraping his holy body with the iron combs, and he's saying Shma. And the Talmidim say, Ad Khan, come on. How do you say Shma now? How do you say Shema. Rabbi Akiva says, my whole life I was waiting to love God with all my soul and to give my soul to God. And now I have the opportunity. And when he said Echad, his soul ascended. And the Rebbe said, why did the Talmudim ask him Ad Khan? They could not understand that Rabbi Akiva is saying Shema Yisrael when he dies. Then the Rebbe says in his inimitable expression, Even a yeshiva boy who learns Rambam, chapter 5, knows that at certain times a Jew gives up his life. Like, the, the students of Rabbi Akiva didn't know that Rabbi Akiva could say Shema Yisrael when, when he's being killed. And the Rebbe said, and the Rebbe, the Rebbe Yoel explained it to us beautifully, the Rebbe said, that uh, I remember when he said it over, you could see that he was reliving, reliving the sicha. The Rebbe said they didn't, they understood the Rabbi Akiva sacrificing his life for God. When the Rabbi Akiva was saying Shema Yisrael Hashem Alekeinu Hashem Echad, they felt that he saw in the experience the oneness of Hashem. They said, Ad Khan, how could you scream Echad? You're dying, but you're being murdered by the Roman tyrants, by the Roman dictators, by the Roman cruel leaders. How can you say Hashem Echad, God is one, when you see what is happening to you in this world of God? How can you say Hashem Echad? That's a question or a question. And the Rebbe said then, and he connected it with another 10 statements of Rabbi Akiva in Shas. But the point was, that Rabbi Akiva said, the famous Mechilta, Al-Hain, Hain, Va'alav, Hain, that he said, the way he understands life is that there's no negativity in life. There's no evil in life. Everything is an opportunity to serve God. Sometimes Hashem wants you to serve Him by engaging with the positive, and sometimes He wants you to serve Him by engaging with the negative. But it's all part of oneness. It's all part of Dveikas. He says, for me, this experience is simply a mitzvah of a haftas Hashem alekecha It's an opportunity to love God with all my soul. He sees oneness and the opportunity for oneness in everything. Even in a very painful moment, it's an opportunity to find the ability to transcend, to grow, and to become one with Hashem in this moment. It's one thing to learn it from the page. It's another thing to live it. Love it, yeah, love it. I think that was uh, that was one major major component. Another, I would say, another very powerful component. Okay, was, so you're going on to another point. But I just want to, how? It, give me the, give me the one sentence. I hate to put you on the spot like this, but you just eloquently explained a certain big idea that I was told that Abiel transmitted 
Give me the one sentence version of that. <laughs> I can give you the one sentence of Yoyo's language or Rabbi YY's language. You have to choose. <laughs> so, you know, you talked about the 3,000 Shalom of Shlema Melech. I'll do both. So if everything you're saying is true, then hopefully, if you're a Talmud, so it's like, it's just, just the same point. Very good. Different levels. That's it. So say it in Atsilas and then say it in Bria. I see I'm not in Bria. The Rambam was in Bria. Rajbi was in Atsilas. The Bial tried to take a stroll through all of them as much as he can. Tell me in Rabbi language and then tell me in your language. The same same one idea. Yeah. In Rabbi language, it would be as. The Nikuda von Lav is Eichhein. The Nikuda von Schlilla is Eichhiov. Altes Achtos Hashem. Altes Einoid Molvade. Amol Drixech is der Einoid Molvade. Durch der Nicht. Und Amol Drixech is durch der Yeh. Basically, it was a translation in Yiddish of what I said earlier that everything is part of divine oneness. The question is how it's manifested, how it's processed. But there's no compartmentalization in life. There's absolutely no division in life. Uh, versus another view in Yiddishkeit, Rabbi Yishmael, who does embrace diversity and compartmentalization. And it's expressed throughout all of Shas. Now, you hear this, it's, 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 it's overwhelming intellectually and emotionally. The way I would translate it, if you would ask me to give a lecture to secular Jews about this, it would really be the ability of how do I look at the traumas, the adversities, the challenges I face in life, in my own system, in my own mental health, in my loved ones, in, in my environment and in the world? I could live in a world of, of, of division, of dichotomies, of compartmentalization, of brokenness. Or I could see and look at every moment of brokenness as an opportunity to simply reveal a deeper light, a deeper oneness. Now, when you say it like that, I'm going to be frank with you. When you say it like that, if someone were to come up to you and ask you, who taught you that? And you said, Yael Khan. I think for many people, that would be a big jump. So I I think maybe it would be helpful. I am criticized often by people who say, uh, where did you learn all this language? And, and, and the truth is, I would sometimes ask Rabbi Yael, my brother told me, Simon, that he once asked Rabbi Yael, you know, how do you apply Tanya psychologically, emotionally? And at one point he told him, it's not my field, I'm sorry. But, but when, you, when you heard Rabbi Yael, you learned by Rabbi Yael, he was trying to articulate chassidus, and every word of chassidus is ultimately applicable, and not just applicable, its main mission statement is a calling for internal and universal transformation. So if we cannot bring it down to that world, we miss the point. Rabbi Yoyal's two favorite words were the words quoted hundreds of thousands of times in Chabad and by the Rebbe, which is to be able to fuse the infinite and the finite, to be able to fuse ultimate reality with your condition today. <laughs> so when, when, when you... That sentence that you said a minute ago, which doesn't, yes. didn't sound at all like Yelka. But you're telling me that's what you got or one of the things yeah. you got from... That's one of the things. That's one of the things I got from him. Until today, till today when I learn a sikh in Lakuti Sikhis, 
if I learned it from him, or even if I didn't learn it from him, you know, I think about <laughs> how to learn it, how to understand it, how to get it, and then how to apply This is, what I want to this is exactly it. what I think people want to hear. The words are obviously your own words. Tell me about the thought process. Tell me about the way of thinking. The Sometimes you might call it a derech halimud, but let me just say it in plain English. In plain, in plain English, like there's there's someone who t- tells you what to say. You know, most of our education today, unfortunately, is regurgitating. You know, memorize these facts, take a short answer test, and tell us the right answers. And then there's a teacher who teaches you how to think. Tell me about the style of thinking that you believe you got from Rabbi The style of thinking. What does that mean to think like Rabbi Because obviously the words you're using are different words. But tell me the thinking, the style of thinking. Beautiful. The first time, great, great question, Rabbi Tal. The f- <laughs> we should do this more often. The first time I heard Rabbi Yoyal live, Rabbi Yoyal, I have to say, when I was a little kid already, my mother, God bless her, would listen to Rabbi Yoyal on the telephone. He had themes of Yiddishkeit, 1983-84. A brilliant series, 50, 100, 200 classes about central ideas of Yiddishkeit. My mother would listen to it, and then I'd listen to it. It was once a week. But the first time I heard Rabbi Yoyal live was a birthday party. I was a young Bacherol. A classmate of mine was a relative of Rabbi Yoyal. He made a birthday party in the yeshiva dormitory. So we got Pepsi, Coca-Cola, and potato chips. You know these dormitory birthday parties? Huh? You know, 10 o'clock at night, right? We're eating and eating potato chips and then Coca-Cola, very healthy food, sitting around schmoozing. Who walks into this birthday party? Rabbi Yoyal Khan with the long, impressive white beard divided into various strands. And he's going to, he's going to, oh, he came to party. Rabbi Yoyal, Rabbi Yoyal wasn't a party man. He sits down. Okay, so he's going to fabreng. He looks at all of us kids, some of us, you know, ADD, ADHD, really not interested. It's 11 o'clock at night, you know. Rabbi Yoyal starts off and he says, what is Chachma and Bina? <laughs> Now, we all heard Chachma and Bina a hundred times. You grow up in a, in a Chabad Yeshiva, you learn Chachma and Bina. Chachma is the epiphany, right? Chachma is the flash of inspiration. And Bina is taking the seminal idea and, and developing it and building it into a mansion, like the mother who takes the sperm and the egg and turns it into a fetus. Okay, we all knew that, and it's amazing. Rabbi Yoya looks at us, you know, sips the coffee, just the way he opened it. I was, I was a young kid. I was a young teenager. But it really opened my eyes to the richness of chassidus. The Biel started this way. He said in Yiddish, whenever there is a relationship between two people and two realities, you always have to ask this question. Who is dominating? The first party in the relationship or the other party in the relationship? That's always the question. Do they both compromise? Does one overwhelm the other? Does the second overwhelm the first? And then he says, what is wisdom? Wisdom is opening yourself up to a new idea. That's a relationship. Those is ayachas. Those were his words. Sayachas. He didn't use the word relationships. I just have to say this. He didn't know what the word relationship means. I'm using the word relationship. He used the word yachas. Yachas means a connection, a relationship. Yichas. Lineage. So he says, an idea is a relationship. It's coming into your system, and it's new. You never had it before. It's an epiphany. He says, who's going to dominate who? Who's going to define who? 
Are you going to define the idea or the idea is going to define you? He says, that's why there's Chachmah bin. In Chachmah, you melt away in the presence of the idea. It defines you. In Bina, you define it. It becomes part of you. He says, and this is true in every relationship. Now, then he went on to explain Chachmah and Bina. Till today, this is a paradigm for me about how to address relationships. Marriages, friendships, parents and children, of course, God and the Jewish people. But it, 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 it showed you the, the, the fullness, the, the richness, the broadness, the expansiveness. You could read Chsidis, yeah, Chachma is an idea, Bin is developing the idea. But then what is Ayin and Yesh? Ayin means you're opening yourself up to no thingness. In other words, you're transcending the ego of selfhood and you're opening yourself up to infinity. And then he would explain to us how there's Chachma on infinite levels. There's Chachma in the human brain. There's Chachma in the animal brain. There's Chachma in Asiyim, Yitzirim, Briyim, Atzillus. But in every place, Chachma is the ability to melt away in awe. Koyachma, and just say, what? And, and Bina is the assimilation into self, integration, which is critical because Chachma itself is elusive and nebulous. But... Chachma in Bina, you will never ever grasp the truth and the clarity of Chachma, which is why you need Das. This was, he was talking on a 15 year old, 16 year old, in Yiddish, abstract, transcendent, but he used the word relationship. And it guides me, it guides me how to, you know, don't, don't just say an idea, get to the core of it, understand it in context, see it as part of the system of Yiddishkeit and of Chassidus, which is the spiritual science and physics of the universe, which is the spiritual physics and science of biology of the soul. You know, so if, if it's okay, I yeah. want to just offer a possible interpretation of something you said earlier. You had a complaint, if you could even call it a complaint, but you said you wished that perhaps... Rabbi Yoel could have brought the ideas down a notch or two. And what it sounds like now, what you're describing is, he didn't need to bring it down a notch. He gave you the paradigm. He gave you the rules. He gave you the system. And you were very capable of then running with it and bringing it down to the next level. And, uh, you know, tain lechochem, v'yechkem oid. So you took, he gave you all the building blocks and the rules how to put the building blocks together and you you brought it down. So he didn't even need to dumb it down, so to speak. In fact, if he would have used time dumbing it down, he couldn't have given you more of these paradigms. So he probably made the right decision educationally. Yeah, listen, he lived in a very... uh... He lived in a, you know, in a very transcendent, sacred world, and he remained there. <laughs> you know, it was, there was sometimes times that were very turbulent, uh, times of politics and times of confusion, and you would walk into his class, and he was waxing eloquent about Oirein Soif, Tzimtzum, Kav, Rishimu, Bligvul, Gvul, Akudim, Toyu, Tikon, Atzilis, Malchus, Ein Soif, Atzmus, Giluyim. 
the world of, of infinite divine oneness, where the Baal Shem Tov is alive and the Alter Rebbe is alive and the Tzemach Tzedek is alive and the Rebbe is alive and, and, and you know, and God's infinity fills the world and he's right there. What I'm, what I'm suggesting to you, throwing your own words back at you, <laughs> is, as you said, in Rabiel's name, if it's not in the Arizal, it's not going to be in Meir Nevochim. And if it's in Meir Nevochim, ultimately it can be traced to the Arizal. Rabiel was telling you exactly what you wanted to hear. He was just speaking it on this level. It wasn't a different world. It wasn't yeah. a parallel universe. Yeah. It was the same exact universe you know, I remember, on a higher level. Yeah, I remember once, I remember once he, uh, he came to Yeshiva and he gave us a shear about Rosh Hashanah and Yim Kippur. And he gave over in a beautiful way to young boys the famous sikhs of the Rebbe of uh, Tishrei uh, 1962, 1963, the three levels of Rosh Hashanah, Yim Kippur, Sukkot, there in Lekutei Sikhs, volume 4 and volume 19. And he said the three types of relationships between the Jew and Hashem. There's a relationship through mitzvahs. And if you don't do the mitzvah, you're fired, you're gone. There's the relationship where, no, I will always forgive you. I will always forgive you. And therefore, you can always do tshuva. I'll never throw you out. That's the second relationship. You can always come back. And there's the third relationship where you're never disconnected. You're always one. You don't have to do tshuva because you were never separated. That's the sicha. How do I say it today? Rabbi Yoyal, I remember he said, he said, let me give you an example. Right? This was his example. If you work for a company, he didn't use the word company. If you're employed by somebody and you don't fulfill the contract, you're fired, right? But if you're a child in the company, if your father is the boss, he'll let you come back even if you didn't show up for three weeks, right? Right away, you have here the concept. For some people, Judaism is a business. God hires you. There's a checklist. Nine to five. There's a punching clock. Shachris, Mincha, Mayriv, Shabbos, Yom Tov, Halacha. Punching clock, you go to paradise. You break the contract, you're gone. No mitzvahs, you're gone. You're not part of the deal. That's a certain level of Judaism. Some people live on that level, and it's a true level. But you're also a child. You can always say, Tati, please let me back in. That's a second level. And then there's the third level, where you could never be fired, you could never leave, you could never be separated. You're a chelik elikami mal mamish. You're mamish. You're mamish inseparable. You know, so the Biel would give these these metaphors that opened us up to the ability to be able to apply the Rebbe's teachings, the teachings of Yiddishkeit and Chassidus to different audiences. Now, Shays, takes these three levels, Rosh Hashanah and Kippur, isn't it a most amazing lecture about three layers in a marriage? Three layers in a relationship with your child, right? You're doing all the Zooms, all the workshops for parenting and, and, and trauma healing and lectures. Three relationships with yourself. Rebbeil didn't, wouldn't t- talk to us about Shalom Bayez, sorry. But as you say, the paradigms are all there. Do I sometimes make mistakes? I'm sure I often make mistakes, you know. It's part of uh, the human nature, <laughs> You know, I, I, this is fun. I, wa- I want to I wanna do another one of these. Tell me, <laughs> this is very spontaneous. We did, not, we did not prepare for this, but tell me something. I'm going to reverse it. Tell me something that sounds 
totally new age, like, this is not even a Jewish idea. You took this from a self-help book. Well, you're making stuff up. Tell it to me in that language. And then tell me how it's really a Rebbe idea. And let's see if we can recognize it. I know I'm putting you on the spot, but... Uh, yeah, no, it beautiful, it, it, it's beautiful stuff. You give, you give us one? Yeah, I'll give you okay. one. Okay. Rabbi Yoel once taught us, the Rebbe gave, on, this is an amazing masterpiece of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, Yutas Kislev, 1975. He gives us his Hadron on Rambam. The first Hadron he makes on Rambam. It's published today in a pink, in a pink... Uh, wait, wait, but get, let, let, let me do it. I think it'll be more Gishmak. Tell it to us first in Graba Asius, and then reveal the Hadron. Wonderful. <laughs> when people are facing deep stress <laughs> or anxiety, or the key buzzword today is trauma. Now, the word trauma, you would not hear on Abiel's mouths because he didn't know English. And he also didn't live in that dictionary, right? It wasn't part of his milieu and his language, just like it wasn't part of my father's language, even though my father, Allah Vashon, was a seasoned journalist. When you're facing trauma, there are ways of dealing with your stress and anxiety through what they call today CBT, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, in which you can analyze it. But this is only trauma that is verbal, meaning it came into you through language and therefore it can be expelled through language. Talk therapy. Uh, Talk Talk therapy. therapy. But there are experiences that we call today in psychology pre-verbal. Pre-verbal. This means the space of a person that's pre-names, pre-definitions, pre-words. There's no words for them. There's no verbal words. And therefore they come in as deep experiences that transcend any definition, any language. The worst thing to do is impose language on them. (laughs) What you have to be able to do is you have to be able to go back into that space where you don't define yourself or you don't define your world. You have to go into your pre verbal self and find healing from that space this is a very very profound process it's not a simple process because in the verbal self everything is defined and therefore you can attack it through definition you can counterbalance it through definition but in the pre-verbal space there's no words for it so you have to go here into the space of infinity and within a person so to speak a place that is extremely pre-verbal and it's very scary it's very vulnerable i have to be able to transcend all my definitions of self because definitions are a later stage in human development my story my narrative my narrative my story i created language for it and that's how i operate and process but can i go to the place of a pre-verbal self where there's no language so i'm coping through the language, but I'm yes. not ultimately healing it till I go deeper than the language. Much deeper okay. than the language. You got this from a psychology book. You're, you're, there's no way this is from Chassidus. All right. I challenge you. I challenge you. How is right. this from Chassidus? Right. Now, anybody who hears this, this is classic pop psychology, not pop. This is good psychology stuff. And today, you know very well that all most of the trauma therapies are not anymore verbal. They're not interested in conversations. Somatic therapy, cannabis therapy, energy therapy, energy coding, muscles therapy, right? 
it's, it's, it's all pre-verbal. It's pre-verbal. The trauma sits in the body. The body sits to, sits, keeps the score, etc., etc. All these ideas, all these teachings. Okay. But here we come. Anybody opens up Lakuta Tayyid. And the Biel would teach this to us all the time in his language. You open up. There's hundreds of my martyrdom of the Alter Rebbe in Lakuta Tayyid. Where he will constantly say these words. Constantly. He'll say as follows. The whole world was created from words and from letters. Today we call it DNA. Everything is divine words. But really, but really, that's all the way the divine energy is condensed and limited and everything has definitions and compartmentalizations. Really, Hashem Himself completely transcends words, therefore transcends stories, therefore transcends every articulation. So every single part of the world, you can trace it back to a pre-letters, pre-words, pre-verbal state where it's just a manifestation of infinity. And, and it's there's the a paradox brain. here because on one hand, the world is made from letters. Made from words. Yeah. And yet, if you go deeper... Yeah, yeah. so the Alter Rebbe says, and therefore we have to always make a choice. I can either impose words on the world and it's basically change your mind, change your find. If I use the narrative of words and verbalization, I see a world made up of words and verbs and ideas and concepts. Or I can every moment choose to trace the entire universe back to the divine infinity before it's condensed and manifested and, and uh, filtered and restricted through words. And then you're opened up to an infinite experience. This is all in language of Ein Soif, Maimarim, Diburim, Oisius. Rebuel would explain these ideas at length. At length, using Hasidic language, Hasidic allegories, Hasidic metaphor. He had his metaphors with the rocks and throwing of the rock. And he would speak about gravity and he would speak about how you define reality and existence and how perspective changes existence. But all in language of spiritual transcendent vocabulary of Kabbalah and Chabad Chassidus. But the moment you tune into history, he was a brilliant builder of classes. There were structures. So I, this is the two things I learned. First of all, how you build a class. Rabbi Shea wrote to me a day or two ago, he says, we need structure. This class needs structure. It's not just a biography of Rabbi Yael. And I was smiling because Rabbi Shea said, I love structure. And I was thinking, you love structure. Rabbi Yael was allergic to something that didn't have structure. If you repeated a sicha and you didn't have structure, he was allergic Everything had to have structure. And by the way, by the way, it has its disadvantage too. Because he always kept it in structure. There were sometimes guys, you know, cowboys, bohemians, who would, the Rebbe had structure, but the Rebbe can also, you know, destroy structures. <laughs> the Rebbe was not struck, he was structured, but he could destroy structure. Rebbe Yol was a very, very big chassid and fan, fan of structures. I learned how to structure, but you also learned the vibrancy of ideas, the ability that every idea you really need to appreciate, meditate on, think about, internalize, learn how to articulate it, find your audience. You know, he would speak to 14-year-olds and he would change his language. He would speak to 20-year-olds, he would change his language. He had his language, but he would change it. So these are all uh, these are all great things. I have to say something to you. I have to say something to you that uh, it, was, it was one of those uh, game changers for me, one of those shiurim. He was teaching us the Hadron of the Rambam. The Rebbe's classic Siyum HaRambam Tafshin Lamed Hey. This is before the Rebbe instituted learning Rambam. He learned Rambam on his own. The Rebbe was a very big expert in Rambam. Everybody knew all the years. And he made a Hadron Rambam. Yutas Kislev 70, 
five. It was an hour and a half. Hadron on Tamid and the Rambam, and then he continued it for a few, for a month afterwards. It was published ten years later for the first Siyam Harambam of the public Shir in the Rambam. The Rebbe then asked a question. The opening of Rambam is that the foundation of all foundations is that Hashem is the primary existence and He creates everything and everything comes from Him. The second halacha in Rambam is, if somebody entertains the idea that God doesn't exist, nothing else can exist. So the Rebbe said, once the Rambam said that everything exists only because of Hashem, obviously if there's no God, <laughs> nothing exists. Because if everything, if time is a creation and everything is nothing, nothing doesn't create something. So if everything comes from God, obviously if there's no God, what does the Rambam have to give in halacha this idea? By the way, if you're an atheist, nothing else would exist. And then the Rebbe says, why does the Rebbe say, yalala das? like if you have an aliyah in your das, like if you become more mature and knowledgeable and you think that God doesn't exist. Rebbe should say, if you have a delusion, if you have a doubt, if you have a thought, what's the yalala das? It's like a compliment. If you have an aliyah, if, you, if, you're, if, you're, if your mind ascends. And then he said, it's all in one word. He should have said in Hebrew, If somebody thinks that God doesn't exist, what does it mean if somebody thinks that he, that, that God, yeah, that God, that God doesn't exist, the Ramah emphasizes that he twice, God, God, he doesn't exist. In Hebrew, the who is superfluous. So Rabbi Yoel, he said, he said, let me show you something. He said, there are hundreds of Maimarium of the Alter Rebbe that explain this concept. And the Rebbe sought in two halachas of the Rambam. The Rebbe says that the Rambam is addressing, not atheism, the Rambam is addressing a revolutionary idea in Judaism. You could define God as the engine of existence. It's called Matsurishan. He is the soul, the consciousness of creation. He is the creator. He is transcendent but he is the creator of the world. He is the battery, the engine of the universe, of the cosmos. That's Matsurishan. In Chassidus it's called Memale Kalalman, the engine of the universe, the DNA of reality. The Ramos says, What happens if you grow up and you say, Shehu Enoi Matsu? Shehu Enoi Matsu doesn't mean that he doesn't exist. Then he would say, She'enoi Matsu. Shehu Enoi Matsu means that he is in a state of Enoi Matsu, meaning God, God is a non-existential existence. God is not the engine of the universe. God should not be defined as physical or as spiritual or as transcendent or as the soul or as the creator. These are all humbling, denigrating terms for God. Even the word God is, is, is godless and, and pagan. Shahu Einai Matsui. God is a Metsiyah's built-in Huh? Transcendent, undefinable, completely. Yeah, undefinable, even by the word undefinable. Don't tell me he's, he's the, the essence of existence. He's the DNA of my reality. Please. That's, the Ramam calls it in, in the Moira, in the God of the Blacks, Metsiyah's built-in Metsiyah's Nimsa. An existence that is a non-existential state of existence. So the Rambam says, Then nothing would have a defined, tangible reality. The reason there is reality as we know it, because God allows himself to become a defined reality, so to speak. A transcendent, infinite, defined reality that becomes the essence. These two states are one of the foundational ideas of Chabad Chassidus. Mamalek Kalaman and Saiv of Kalaman. The Rebbe says... The reason the Rambam puts these in as the opening of the Mishnah Torah is because the Rambam says this is the foundation of halacha. The Rebbe puts it in a footnote. 
Rabbi Yoel taught us how to think about this. I'm going to say it to you in a minute because I want you to understand what an impact this, this, what an impact it had on me. The Rebbe says, Halacha, Judaism, is based on two truths. Number one, the world exists and it's divine. Number two, ultimate reality, ultimate reality can't be defined even by existence. Because the truth, the source of everything, can't be defined as Metzius. The Rebbe said, the first truth is the foundation of halacha. Halacha means there's a blueprint of how to eat, how to sleep, how to get married, how to live, how to, how to live as a Jew. That's, there is a divine purpose and meaning of existence. That's halacha. Why is the second truth the foundation of halacha? That's the question. And the Rebbe says as follows. The first truth alone doesn't allow you to change the world because you're stuck in definition. Only when you go to the Einoi Motsui, only when you can appreciate the divine that is absolutely infinite, you're not defined by the world and therefore you're not in a spall. You're never stuck. You're never, you can only change a system when you're out of the system. As long as we're part of definition, we can't really change the world. We can only do cosmetic transformation. Complete transformation where the world becomes completely one with infinity could only come when Halacha Osa has the concept of Enoi Motsi. Now, when I heard this from Rabbi Yoyal, <laughs> this is a personal confession, I have read a little earlier Rabbi Soloveitchik's brilliant Halachic man, Rabbi Yosha Ber Soloveitchik. His thesis is that the Halachic man is not the mystical man. The Halachic man says, don't speak about Atzillus, speak about this world. Halach is about this world. God wants to change this world. That's what halach is about. Not transcendence, not spirituality, not spiritual thirst and longing. He distinguishes between his father, Reb Moshe Soloveitchik, his father, Reb Zedra, Reb Chaim Soloveitchik, and the Alter Rebbe, the, the mystic. The Rebbe had a very different approach. Halachak and mystic makes holistic. As the Vilna Gaon writes in 100 places, there's no two streams of Yiddishkeit. There's one stream of Yiddishkeit. In that shir, in that moment in Rambam, we have this fusion. Halacha that is based on soiviv is delusional. You're living in a, in, in, in a non-concrete world. It's not the world of Shulchan Aruch. The world of Shulchan Aruch has in it blood and oxes and thieves and liars and thugs and, and murder and violence and war and, and agriculture and money and everything else that halacha deals with. That's the world of very real, physical, concrete reality. The whole world of Chabad, Chassidus, and of Kabbalah, of Soiv of Kalalman, transcendence, infinity, was sometimes thought as an extracurricular activity for the mystics among us. But the Rebbe showed in the Rambam, and the Yoel explained it to us, no, it's only in the fusion of Mamali and Soiv, which as Rabbi Yoel would say, he would get very upset when we would say there's different aspects of God. No, there's one God. But in our experience of ultimate reality, there is existence and there's transcendence of existence. Yiddishkeit creates that balance that allows us to take existence as we know it and allow it to become a transformed reality where it becomes a conduit for infinite existence. Because Matsui and Enei Matsui are really one. I don't know if any of this is, is understandable in such a short presentation, but these presentations, these ideas for a young, impressionable student like myself were not just exhilarating intellectually, 
but they gave my Yiddishkeit such a, I don't know the word, a broadness, a depth, an expansiveness, a freshness. You can't find this stuff anywhere. <laughs> you know, there's, there's great spiritual mystics, but, but that, that fusion, that fusion between the most minute, detailed, technical nuance that, you know, I sometimes watch people, you'll forgive me, you know, OCDs who use halacha as a crutch for their mental challenge of being obsessed with details and missing the big picture. And then there's the people who run away from the small picture and they just want the big picture. And then there's the people who just get into the nuances and the details. And everybody's struggling with this today. Uh, Rabbi Yoel taught us very beautifully how the Rebbe personified in his mind and in his life that very profound fusion of the deepest, infinite, endless truths manifested in a tiny genome in one of the 70 trillion cells of the human body. No, Rabbi Yoel did not use the word genome. Uh, the Rebbe did. <laughs> but, but as the Rebbe once said, in your saliva or in your, your here, you have the DNA which has in it your entire, your entire self. And Torah is a person, Adam. In the smallest detail of Torah, you have all of it. As the Rebbe used to say, the whole sun is reflected in one cup of water. It captures it. When you get to that point of, of etzem, of DNA, in the smallest vart in Rashi, or Pasuk, or Mitzvah, Halacha, or Taisvah, or Kivege, or Rishon, or Acheron, or Sifrin Shulchan Aruch, you have the full intensity of, of divine infinity. That fusion is, 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 is one of the very found, one, one out of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of foundational ideas of the Rebbe. Okay. I, I want to ask you about, okay. So we spoke about this idea, which maybe I'll call Achdos, how the highest of the high and the most practical of the practical are all one thing and how every aspect of Taita isn't even there aren't divergent aspects. They're all manifestations of a singular essence. And on all reality, for that matter, it's all oneness. It's all, I mean, really, the term oneness can be very abstract. And the way that uh, you're speaking of it is you're giving a lot of, you're giving a lot of articulation to that idea of oneness. I want to totally change gears and ask you about another big idea. And, and I'll say it with a little bit of a preface. You know, in Chabad, we're probably very, probably most famous for Avos Yisro, which is interesting because Chabad is Chok Das. Chabad is about a, a school of mysticism. It's about the deep teachings, which Rabbi Yerl was very much a part of the, the chain of transmission of those deep teachings. But Chabad is known for Avos Yisrael and about loving a Jew and, and every Jew is, is, is precious and a Jew is a Jew is a Jew. Okay, but people don't think of Rabbi Yerl as somebody who is part of that project. But I would argue that much of the way that... Well, let's just start with Shluchim and then maybe we'll expand it. Much of the way that Shluchim understand who a Jew is, 
is because of explanations that Reb Yoel gave regarding Jewishness. I remember hearing him talk about, it blew my mind, the idea of a Jew is not what happens when a person reaches perfection. A Jew is a different category, just like a plant isn't when an inanimate object reaches perfection. It doesn't graduate to become a plant. It's, it's a different category. And every Jew is essentially under that, included under, the, under that rubric of that, of that category. Now, I'm, I'm just giving this as an example. You can add the depth to it. But I think it's important to explain this idea of, of Jewishness, Jewish identity, um, the preciousness of a Jew, something that everybody equates with Chabad. And I think Rabbi Yoel gave it, gave it oisius, gave it, gave it articulation. I mean, could, could you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, Rabbi Shays, you bring back a memory that I haven't remembered for many years, and it literally just came up as you were talking. It was one Shabbos, and Abiel was talking to a few of the yeshiva boys. He liked schmoozing with the chevre. Some guys he liked schmoozing a lot with. And he was once schmoozing with one of the, a few of the boys. And he, he just, he dropped a line. He said, I heard this once from the Rebbe. I never saw it. I never saw it printed. He said, I heard it from the Rebbe. The Rebbe said as follows. Creation of the world Creation of the world is stupendous. It's splendid. It's, it's, it's miraculous. It's supernatural. How can from nothing become something? Right? How can ayin become yesh, ex nihilo? That's, that's wondrous. Nothing or no thing, Hashem, creates a yesh, a, a physical, concrete reality, at least from our perspective. But the Rebbe said, but that, it has at least a description. Ayin became yesh. Nothingness or no thingness became somethingness. The Rebbe said, the real Pella is on a Shama. The real wonder is a soul. And I have to say it in Yiddish. He said, the Neshama is Ayin. Severta Yesh, Abisabliped Ayin. Thus is the Pella. A Neshama is Ayin. A Neshama is divine. It's no thingness. It's not matter. It's divine. It becomes a yesh, it becomes a reality, it becomes a soul. We speak about a soul. It becomes the core of your personality, your engine, your consciousness. But it remains ayin. <laughs> In chsiddis is a language. Elokus nasa nivra. It's a nivra. Neshama shenasata bi tahoira hi ata barasa. You created it. But before barasa, the Alter Rebbe says, is tahoira. It's pure. It's beyond creation. And it remains that way. It's ayin and yesh simultaneously. Nebiyoyal said... I said, could you explain it to us? Can you explain? He says, I'm just telling you what the Rebbe said. Now, I want, I want to use that as a paradigm for the question you raise. There's no question that one of the key ideas in Judaism, but one that became emphatically emphasized in the teachings of the Baal Shem Tov and his students throughout all of the branches of Chassidus, and even more emphatically emphasized, explained, elaborated, developed in the teachings of the most recent Lubavitcher Rebbe, the Rebbe, is the idea of the infinite, absolute, non-negotiable sacredness and value of a Jew that is true under all circumstances and under all conditions, 
one of the most uh, powerful articulations of this truth is as always in Chabad, in a maimer of the Alter Rebbe, Lakuta Torah, Rosh Hashanah, maimer called Shir Hamalas Mimamakim, where he writes that there's a level of the Jewish soul that is always one, Echad Yochid Meyuchad, it's always one with Hashem, it can't be separated. And he says, how can I say this? It says, V'nichrisah HaNefesh. It says, the soul gets cut off. The soul gets cut off. How do I say that a soul can't get cut off? And then the Alter Rebbe, who's the greatest, one of the greatest going in Halacha and in Nigla says, no, that's the level of Yaakov. The level of Yaakov, which is the way the soul is manifested throughout the body, that could be cut off and the person doesn't have that, the, that spiritual consciousness. But the level of Yisrael, the superconscious level of the divine soul, is echad yachid meyuchad b'chal oifen. It could never be cut off. There's no such a thing that you're cut off. As I said before, the third level of Yitzumah shal yoy mechaper, Rabbi used to tell us that he heard from the Rebbe, the halach is Yitzumah shal yoy mechaper, it's a machleikus and gemara and shvuas yud gimel, if Yim Kippur needs truva or not. Rebbe says, no. Rim Kippur itself does the atonement. And the Rambam quotes Rebbe, but he says you have to do tshuva also. So even the Rambam, Lahalacha, says that the day itself atones. And Rabbi Yolosha said, the Rebbe once asked, how can a day create atonement? How does that happen? You didn't apologize. How does a day create atonement? And he says, because the day brings out that space in you where there's no separation. So there's no atonement because you never sinned. The reason you sinned is because you don't know yourself. And this was one of the Rebbe's great ideas. Sin comes from alienation of self. That's why the word for repentance is tshuva, which means return to self. If you knew who you are, if you felt yourself fully, you can't sin because you are the divine ambassador in this world. You are the Ein Seif in this world. You are a manifestation of Hashem in this world. And as a result of that, this is who you are. Could God sin? You can't sin. You're a chelikalikamimah. But because of my traumas and because of my pain and because of my addictions and because of my stories about myself, I don't know myself. So if I don't know myself, I need to numb my pain. I need to numb my emptiness. So sin comes from, comes from insanity, the Gemara says in Saita. The Rebbe would always quote this. Why? Because it represents the truth that the Rebbe articulates in the Laws of Divorce, chapter 2, that sin is an aberration to your innate identity. And it's not just an aberration to your innate identity. There's a part of your identity that even when you sin is not involved in it because it is Hashem. It is Hashem. And you're going to go back to that space. These ideas were things that the Rebbe breathed. He lived with. He articulated. He understood anti-Semitism this way. He understood this was one of the great reasons that the Germans hated the Jews so much because they felt this holiness even in the atheistic left-wing communist Jew for whom Karl Marx was God and Stalin was God and Lenin and Trotsky and the whole Politburo, they were the deities and they hated Judaism and and the Germans looked at these Jews who despised Yiddishkeit and they saw in them Jews who were as Jewish as Rebel Hanan Wasserman and Rebbe Nachem Zemba and the Baba Virov and the other six million Kedoshim because they were, they, the, the Tumah Tumah is allergic to Kedusha. And Hitler, Yamach Shemoy, the Rebbe once said this Purim, he could feel, he could feel the Kedusha in every Jew that is infinite and absolute. And, and therefore he needs to exterminate that Jew as a way of exterminating God. 
The Rebbe taught this. He he breathed it. He communicated it. Rebbe Yoel, as 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 a loyal and dutiful chayzer, would explain this, would articulate this, would teach this, and this became the paradigm. The paradigm today that has ultimately been inculcated into so much of Klal Yisrael, Chassidim and non-Chassidim, this essential love and essential connection and essential unity, which again, it's a fundamental doctrine. You'll find it in Gemari and Kiddushin, you'll find it in Medrash, you'll find it in Zayr, but the Baal Shem Tev, the Alter Rebbe, other Hasidic, all the Hasidic masters, and other great giants, but especially in our generation, the Rebbe, they turned this, they, 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 this became like such a important and central and, and vital point. Rebbe Yoel used to tell us, I had the privilege of being there. Uh, this was a historic moment. Simchas Torah, 1986. The Rebbe is sitting and he's sobbing like a baby for close to a half an hour. I had the privilege of being there. And what is he sobbing about? It's the last Rashi on Chumash that the Rebbe is explaining. The last Rashi on Chumash is that the last thing the Torah says about Moshe is Le'ene kol Yisrael, which Rashi sees as the idea that Moshe broke the luchas in front of everybody's eyes, as he says in Parshas Ekev, And the Rebbe wants to know why Rashi has to choose an interpretation that causes us to see that the last words of the Torah are so negative. Instead of the last words of the Torah being positive and inspiring, the end of the whole Shas is changed. Rashi and Taisfah say to finish with something positive. The whole Chamisha Chumsha Torah ends on the lowest possible note. Moshe broke the Luchas. He didn't give the Torah. He didn't split the sea. He didn't take us out of Egypt. He didn't give us the mana. He broke the Luchas. Say that earlier. And the Rebbe says, how can the end of Torah be about the breaking of Torah? Right? Good questions. And another 10, ten questions on the Rashi, which is not for tonight. You could learn the Sikha, Lekutei Sikha's volume... Um, Parshas V'zai Sabracha, volume 34, Parshas V'zai Sabracha. The Rebbe's point was this. The greatest quality of Moshe Rabbeinu was that he took the luchas, which were priceless, which were divine, and he broke them. Why? To save the Jewish people who would now not be accused of adultery because, as Rashi says, the famous metaphor, Moshe destroyed the marriage evidence, the marriage contract. So they didn't commit adultery because they're not married. So he saves the Jewish sinners from annihilation by breaking God's most precious gift. And this is the conclusion of the whole Torah. And the Rebbe for a half an hour, crying, but not just crying, hard to describe, describes what a Jewish leader is, what a Jewish shepherd is, somebody who's ready to take the most precious thing in the world, something Hashem gave him, and without even thinking, he destroys it. Why? Because of his endless and limitless love to the Jewish people. I remember the Rebbe said that Rashi uses the words, Nesoi Libai, his heart uplifted him. And the Rebbe said, this is not an intellectual idea. This was not a bizarre mathematical equation. Moshe's heart, Moshe's heart was beating with infinite love. And you would think God is upset. Hashem is upset. You destroyed my Torah. So Rashi finishes the last words, the last words of Rashi of the whole Torah. Hashem says, thank you, because you just got to the essence of Torah. The essence of Torah is, the essence of Torah is that it allows the Jew to be who he or she 
is always and will always be. The essence of Torah is that it brings out and allows us to manifest the true essence of the Jew, which is one with Hashem. And the last word is Sheshibarta, because in that breaking, you have the greatest quality of Moshe Rabbeinu and the essence of all of Torah. It's a long and powerful discussion. It's also a deep discussion in Sugius about a Neshama and about Torah and a whole ton of the Belio and a Machleitis and two approaches. It's, it's a whole sugi. It's not just this little vart I'm telling you. But these types of presentations, which were not one or two or three or ten, they were in the hundreds over the years. I still remember we were sitting with Rabbi Yoel, Lekutei Sichas 15, Lech Lecha, four levels of Ahava, four levels of love. Adam, Noyach, Avram, and Moshe Rabbeinu. Again, he spoke about it in terms of Adam, Noyach, Avram. He didn't say four levels of love, you know, with those flyers, Rabbi Yoel Khan, four levels of love. No, that did not exist. He spoke about Adam, on Noyach, on Avram, on Moshe. But he explained to us for hours the level of love that Adam understood, the level of love that Noyach understood, the level of love that Avram, the great Avram understood, but nothing in compared, nothing in comparison to Moshe Rabbeinu. And the Rebbe goes through, and his last conclusion is that real love is that you're not, you don't have an agenda. I'm not loving you in order to bring you back, in order to convince you, in order to persuade you. The love is as infinite and non-negotiable as God's essence itself. So these, all of the Rebbe's outreach, all of the Rebbe's miracles, all of the Rebbe's activism, all of the Rebbe's institutions, all of the Rebbe's public activism and leadership and guidance for a half a century, which changed the Jewish world, it's all an outgrowth of his Torah. It's all an outgrowth of his thinking, of his presentation of Torah, Halacha, Nigla, Gemara, Chsidis, Torah Shibiksav, Torah Shibalpeh, Kabbalah, Machshava, Chkira, Musa. There's not a single activity, approach, idea that the Rebbe implemented, executed, inspired others to do that didn't emerge and grow out of, from a Toysvis, a Rashi, a Rambam, a Shulchanoruch, a Perik Tanya, a Posek, an aspect, an approach, a Rambam, something in Torah. It was all rooted in his, in his Torah. And that's what the Rebbe did for most of the day and, and most, most of his life. That's my short answer to your question, Rabbi Taub. Okay. And I'm not exaggerating because this is, this is one of, you know, what, what a Jew is, what a neshama is, how you look at a person, how you look at a child, how you look at any Jew, religious, secular, is one of the things that the Rebbe, the Rebbe spent hours and hours and hours, hours to, uh, to show, to show the hash, real hashkaf of Torah a Jew. He would also, Take all the sugyus and Gemara. Some of them are very negative, you know. <laughs> Some stories are very strange, and 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 it seems like you're dealing with petty people. And the Rebbe just had a way of <laughs> zooming in and and bringing out a quality. Like afterwards, it's like, oh yeah, yeah, it's it's obvious. But he had that that ability just to be able to see the world and the Torah world from a prism, a prism of obvious so. You know, Rabbi Taub, you know well from your lectures, as I do, that people will often challenge different ideas of the Rebbe, like, 
Who says this is the right approach? Don't Chazal say this? Doesn't it say this in Reishas Chachma or Sefer Chassidim or this, which is very opposite? And, and, and it's true. In, in Gemara and in Medrash and in Shachanarch, you can find everything. The question is who you are. If your paradigm is that God loves us, that God is crazy about us, that each of us is an infinite manifestation of God, if that's your paradigm, that was the Rebbe's paradigm, everything was in that context. Everything. And if I don't have that paradigm, it can often become very confusing and I can sometimes misconstrue misconstrue the hashkafa of Torah on how you look at another Jew. And I should say, do, historically, there were also different approaches. And you could say, Elu ve'elu divre chaim. There were different approaches. <laughs> you're, you're, you're backpedaling. We don't have to talk about the other approaches. Don't worry about it. Okay. The other approaches, can they, they can have their uh, proponents. Let, let, let me ask you something else. So we spoke about the... One idea is the depth of unity between all aspects of Torah and all aspects of reality. That was one idea we spoke about. Now we just spoke about how to understand the essence of a Jew. True Jewish identity, way beyond just something uh, cultural or or even religious. A, a, A metaphysical idea. Okay. These are all very exciting ideas. I want to ask you... We also spoke about... The Matsui and Enoi Matsui, Soiviv and Mamale, the transcendent infinity and the concrete imminent manifestation of the divine as the two foundations of Judaism. You want to talk we about can the Matsui? We spoke about that. We can speak about all of this infinitely. Okay, so I'm, here's what I want to do. I'm just inserting here, that as speak, another conversation. If you want to speak about the Matsui and the Enoi Matsui, then here's how we're going to do it. I like before. When you gave me the uh, the flyer version, you know, the five levels of love, whatever, and then you backtrack five languages of love, five, five languages, languages of love, of whatever it is. Okay, now so I- you, <laughs> you can you can give me the uh, let's call it the street version of the matzoi ve'ena matzoi in. Really down to earth. Give it to me in the version where we're never going to believe it comes from Exodus, and then show me how this is a concept of Exodus that Abigail taught. Yeah, I just have to say this. I have to say this because I'm going to forget. It, and you brought it up, Rebuel. You know, Rebuel was he would tell stories, but his classes were not stories. They were they were serious classes. But he once, I think he was once fabrenging with us. And he told us that he once went on a flight. I don't know how many times in his life he was on an airplane, certainly in the earlier years. It wasn't his thing. Much, much more in the later years. In the later and, and, years. Which is yeah, remarkable. After, we didn't even speak right. about this, but in his 70s and like 80s, years. he's yeah. really, he started traveling the world. Yeah. yeah, it's true. It's true. You know, you have an Auschwitz survivor, an Auschwitz survivor, Dr. Edith Ager, you know, from La Jolla. She published her first book at the age of 90. It's called The Choice. An amazing book, Dr. Eger. She's a descendant of Rabbi Akiva Eger. She was in Auschwitz, a Hungarian Jewish girl, lives in California. She's a therapist. Rabbi Yoel began traveling after the Rebbe fell ill and after the Rebbe's passing. This is the mid-90s. Yeah, He was no youngster. He was no youngster. And he was traveling in his 70s and mostly in his 80s, as you said. 
he would travel to Israel a lot and other parts of the world. And he gave over, you know, what he heard all the years and uh, he inspired people and he taught people and thousands of people came to hear him. But you have to understand the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, he didn't go anywhere. <laughs> he was Yeshua La Yomish You know, from my youngest, youngest years, literally, it was like he was an icon. The Rebbe came in and sat down and Rabbi Yoel had his place. He never moved. He was in the same place, that same long, impressive beard, that same hat that wasn't always, you know, in the best shape, and his hand in the same position. This was the gesture, looking at the Rebbe, and just just taking it. I'll never forget. There was a Jew. He was a precious Jew. We loved His name was Rabbi Yisrael Duchman. His son, Rabbi Shalom, runs Kailul Chabad. Rabbi Yisrael Duchman had a heart of gold. He was a very Vadameyid. He wasn't the biggest Talmud Chacham. He wasn't a scholar. He was a warm Jew. He was once sitting, he would sit on the stage where the Rebbe sat, and the Rebbe is giving this deep, deep hadrin, this deep explanation in a sugya and gemara. I'm telling you, it was very complicated. And Yisrael Duchman is smiling. He's smiling. So somebody asked him afterwards, Rebbe Yisrael, did you understand what the Rebbe was saying? Why were you smiling? He says, I did not understand a word, but I was looking at Yale. And I saw that Yael is kvelling. Yael is melting away in ecstasy. I saw that Rabbi Yael was melting in ecstasy. I knew that my Rebbe is doing a superb job. That's, an, that's enough for me. I did not understand. I did not understand. You were about to tell a story about Rabbi Yael on an airplane. <laughs> yeah. So Rabbi Yael told us that he once in the 60s, he traveled on an airplane with another person who didn't go on airplanes, Rabbi Chadakov, Rabbi Chayim Mordechai Isaac Chadakov, the personal assistant or secretary of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. They're both on an airplane traveling from New York to Montreal to go visit the president of Israel, a man by the name of Schneir Zalman Shazar, formerly Rubashov, who came from Demir in Lithuania and came from Hasidim of, of the Alter Rebbe. His name was Zalman Shazar. He was the third president of Israel. Rabbi Chadikov and Rabbi Yoel are on a plane. Now I should say, if you knew Rabbi Chadikov, he, <laughs> he was the personal assistant of the Rebbe. He was an idealistic human being in a very, very unique fashion, very different than Rabbi Yoel. They both had a common denominator, and that is they did not live in the Olam Haza, in the physical world that we live Rabbi Chadikov lived on the Rebbe's schedule. He was completely dedicated to education. These were not people who, and Rabbi Yoel was, was lived in Chesedis and in Torah. Rabbi Yoel tells us we could not fasten the seatbelt. Uh, how is it, Rabbi Shays? You know how to, fastening a seatbelt for you comes easy? Huh? My wife, does it, my wife does it in a split second, and for me, the flight attendant has to come and get upset. It's not always so easy, but I figure it out. But Rabbi Yoel says, I cannot fasten my seatbelt, and Rabbi Chadikov can't fasten the seatbelt. And there, the plane is waiting, and none of us could fasten the seatbelt. So I come up with an idea, okay? Rabbi Yoel's brilliant idea. I have an idea. Instead of me doing it for me and you doing it for you, let me do it for you and you do it for me. And Rabbi Yoel says it worked. I, <laughs> I, I managed to fasten Rabbi Chadikov's seatbelt and he managed to get my seatbelt in and we were ready to go. And he, Rabbi Yoel smiles as Rabbi Chadikov turns to me and he says in Yiddish, ah, upon him, as zubinden atzveiten is a sachigringe. It's much easier to tie up another person in chains than to tie up yourself. 
what we call today confirmation bias. <laughs> you know, it's much easier to project. You're the problem. Uh, I, I know how to control you. I know what you have to do. I can tie you up and put you, put you in a certain box. It's harder for a person to really be introspective and discipline themselves. But Rabbi Yoyalov was like, Rabbi Chadikov was like a split second. He knew everything is a lesson in life. The fact I couldn't fasten my own seatbelt. Rabbi Yoyal had to fasten my seatbelt because it's very easy to tie up other people. It's much harder for me to tie up myself, to judge myself, to be critical, to be honest with myself and so forth. Um, and Rabbi Yoyal was telling this to us, you know, about, about how we have to work on ourselves, how we have to re- refine our midas, how, how, how you have to be able to, to, to know when your zealotry and your critical opinions of another person is not really about the other person. It's about your unresolved tension and your unresolved insecurities. He didn't use these words. And your unresolved fears, or what he would say, you know, your good old Yetzirah, your, 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 your toxicity, your own brokenness that, that you have to work on. I'm just, uh, I'm just sharing it came to mind. And I thought it was a very, uh, it was just, it was just a very good lesson okay, in life. Hey, matzo bene matzo. Ah, matzoi vene matzoi, matzoi vene matzoi. Okay. Give me, give me the down-to-earth version first. Yes. We're and then down, take me back down to, to the, the version. Theory. Okay, so I'm giving a lecture to uh, 300 secular couples who are married. And they would like to hear about marriage, about love, about romance, about relationships. <laughs> Nothing of which I heard from Rabbi Oyal ever. Because he wouldn't that, not talk about this. Well, let, let, let me just interject. Nothing you heard from Rabbi Yoel in those words. Beautiful. I like it. I like it. So I'll ask them and say this question. Let me ask you a question. What do you think the purpose of marriage is? Is the purpose of marriage self-fulfillment, self-actualization? That my wife or my husband should really understand me and help me achieve my goals and be the best person I could become? Or is the purpose of marriage self-transcendence, self-negation? Ask not what your wife can do for you. Ask what you can do for your wife. Ask not what your husband can do for you. Ask what you can do for your husband. What is the essence of marriage? What would you tell your children dating what they are looking for in a marriage? Is it an opportunity to give? Is it an opportunity to receive is it both is it neither and so forth and this is an important question um rabbi chase there's the zoom in lakewood with our friends usher parnas and coach menachem right so one sunday night one sunday night there was a rabbi who spoke about marriage and his main theme was it's not about you it's about your spouse stop quetching that he doesn't treat me right just think about his needs the organizers call me up the next day and they say, there are hundreds of people who are angry, who are hurt, who are upset. He's an abuser. He's an alcoholic. He's a, he's a, I'm a sugar He's a narcissist. 30 years I'm thinking about him. When do I start thinking about myself? Could you come on next Sunday and talk about self-care? <laughs> right? I, I'm giving you an example. Who got it right? Who, who got it wrong? Now, now I'm going to go back to Rabbi Yoel. <laughs> okay? I'm going to go back to Rabbi Yoel. It's really Motsui and Einoi Motsui. And here is the big question. Is the purpose of Yiddishkeit 
to find yourself in God? Or is the purpose of Yiddishkeit to lose yourself in God? Which one? Is the purpose of Yiddishkeit to find yourself in God? Which means to find how God helps me become the happiest, most serene, most fulfilled person. And if God does not do that for me, it's not the God that Judaism wants you to cultivate a relationship with. Or no, the ultimate religious Jewish experiences lose yourself in God. What, what Rabbi Yoel would call bittel, what Chassidus would call bittel b'mitzias. Rabbi Yoel loved speaking about bittel. And he would discuss how there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of levels in bittel. Bittel means self-nullification. Me? In the real presence of reality? Where is the room for ego? There's nothing but God. Lose yourself in God. Now, I want to say something, and that is, Motsi and Enei Motsi tells us that one without the other is wrong and sometimes abusive. And one without the other is missing a major component of Judaism. And it goes both ways. So what's Motsi v'Enei Motsi? Motsi means that there must be an element where I have to find myself in God. You know why? Because God is not just the God of infinity. God is also the God that represents the truth of my psyche. Every neuron, every nerve cell, every cell in my body is really divine energy. If I just, if I just escape to the infinity of God, I am not finding the truth of God the way he's manifested through the vehicle called Yosef Yitzchak Jacobson, or Shays Taub, or Yosef Schaefer, or the other wonderful people, souls who are here with us. Every individuality is not only nice, and not only tolerable, but important, and critical, and vital, because there's something about the divine energy that will only flow through your personality, and your talents, and your resources, and your gifts, and your individuality, and your features, and your skills. Every person is an indispensable note in the divine cosmic symphony. The Rebbe would always say, the Mishnah says in Sanhedrin 38, every person has to say, the world was created for me. It's not narcissism. It's basically that there's something at stake in my existence that nobody else can fulfill in the history of civilization. Not in the past, not in the present, not in the future. There's something that you and you and you and me have to contribute to all of history that nobody else could contribute because it's the light that's coming through your brain and your soul and your life story and your virtues and your challenges. That's Matsi. <laughs> but that's only half of the picture. Then there's Enoi Matsi. And Enoi Matsi is the ability to lose myself in God, not just to find myself in God. It's the ability to be open to absolute transcendence. It's the ability and the security and the confidence to be able to go to the pre-verbal world, to the pre-verbal reality where everything is a manifestation of infinity and where I don't need to exist in order to exist. Because the greatest burden of existence is that I have to protect my I, that I have to exist. It's the greatest burden. The, the most serene state of existence is when I don't carry the burden of self-consciousness, of self-awareness. I don't have to exist. I can just be a channel for infinity. Now, this can be abusive if you don't understand it. If I tell this to the wrong person in the wrong time, what I'm basically telling me, oh, you don't need to exist. Your existence doesn't mean anything. So you can be a shmata. You can be a doormat. And let me tell you, Rabbi Shays, there's people who misconstrued Bittel and used this 
as an excuse to abuse themselves and abuse others. They think that bittel means you're a doormat, you're a shmata, you're a nothingness. You get abused, of course, you deserve it. You're nothing, only God exists. It's one of the worst distortions of Judaism. Einoi matzoi can only come as something that transcends the matzoi because the matzoi is in a good and powerful place. And then you invite and you open yourself up to a you that is higher than finiteness and therefore is a channel for infinity and therefore doesn't obstruct infinity. It's not running away from a self that you hate and you despise and therefore you find in God's infinity an excuse to hate yourself and not deal with your own pain because then it's not even a relationship with infinity it's just avoiding and it's coming from my fear of not trusting that there is love that fills my individuality so (laughs) I'm just very briefly trying to show the link between a very very powerful point that is so relevant for people today and people struggle with this in all circles and demographics with one of the great great ideas in Chassidus that Rabbi El would teach us in very spiritual abstract terms but as you said created the paradigms to be able to understand, to be able to understand, Rabbi Yael once said, it was so beautiful to hear that he heard from the Rebbe. The Rebbe said, Rabbi Hanani ben Akash Yoimer, Ratzah Kodesh Baruch Hu Lezakas Yisrael, the Fichach, Hirbalem Tayro Mitzvahs. Rabbi Hanani said, God wanted to uh, give us merits. So he gave us a lot of mitzvahs. He gave us a lot of mitzvahs because he really wanted to give us merits. So Rabbi Yael said, the Rebbe asked, like, what's this idea here? That he gave us a lot of mitzvahs to give us a lot of merit. Really what? Like really, he just really wanted to give us one mitzvah? Or really he wanted to give us zero mitzvahs? He wanted to give us six mitzvahs? But then he said, let me give them 613 so they can get more, you know, more rewards. Huh? Let me come up with a few more. Let's come up. Like what is this? Like, like it's really God says, you know what? I really don't care. I really don't need this. But you know what? I know you guys like ice cream. And for every mitzvah, you get ice cream. So let me give you 613 mitzvahs. So every week you can get 613 bars of spiritual ice cream. Is that it really? Like that's what Rabchananya Manakashi is saying. And, and what's, what, is this a revolutionary idea? How does he know this? Like, did God tell it to him? You know, interest, very interesting questions, which Rabbi Yoel articulated that he heard from the Lubavitcher Rebbe. I remember before the Rebbe, the Rebbe said the answer that he heard from the Rebbe. I didn't hear this from the Rebbe. I heard this from Rebbe who said he heard it from the Rebbe. It was before my days. So Rebbe said, he would say, the Rebbe, so the Rebbe said something very interesting. When he said interesting, it meant that it, it opened up new vistas. And listen, listen to the explanation, okay? And this is Rebbe words. Rebbe words, and then we're going to bring it down. The Rebbe said, I'm using his words with, with a literal translation into English. Rabbi said as follows, what is a mitzvah? You could look at all the mitzvahs really as one, one point. And what is a mitzvah? A mitzvah is the inner, intimate will of Hashem. Who is Hashem? I don't know. But I know Hashem is the ultimate source of everything, and this is His will. And that's what a mitzvah is. And I don't care if there's 600 mitzvahs, 900 mitzvahs, 1,000 mitzvahs, 10 mitzvahs. All the mitzvahs are one thing. Every mitzvah is the same. It's God's inner intimate will. Sometimes it's not to fat, not to eat on Yom Kippur. Sometimes it's to wrap tefillin, to shake a citrus, to eat matzah, to blow shoifer, not to eat pork. Okay? Fine, to leave the corner of my field in Eretz Yisrael for poor people. But the theme is not so relevant. The essence of the mitzvah is Hashem's will. That's one perspective. Rabbi Yoel said, there's another way of looking at it. And that is every mitzvah is here in order to help you develop 
your own mindset. Make you a better person. The Medrash says, the mitzvahs are letzarif esabrius. To make you a mensch. Davening, learning, tzedakah, Shabbos, Yom Tiv, Mikveh, Pesach, Sukkot. Read Sefer HaChinuch. You want to read in our times? I'm saying this. Read Rav Shem Shunrafalahersh. Read all these types of works. They're there to make you a better person. Better husband, a better father. People will talk about Shabbos, right? What is Shabbos? What is Shabbos? No cell phones. You talk to your kids. No television. No malls. No internet. You spend time. You eat gefilte fish. Rabbi El didn't give this example, but he said, what's a mitzvah? A mitzvah is the individual contribution. Here, every mitzvah is different. Every mitzvah is unique. Every mitzvah is distinctive. Which one is true? Says Rabbi El, the Rebbe said like this, Ah, Amr Rebbe Yochanan ben Akash Yom, Ratzah Kadosh Baruch Hu says Yisrael. Lezakis doesn't only mean to give merits. Lezakis comes from the word, Zach. Hashem wanted that people should be refined individually. They shouldn't only transcend their self, they should transform themselves. Hirbalehem doesn't mean in quantity he gave them more mitzvahs. No! Hirbalehem means he gave us a perception of Judaism that's about diversity. There's not one mitzvah. There's many mitzvahs. It's not about serving one singular God. No. Every mitzvah is about personal refinement. There's many, many diverse mitzvahs. Why? Because the ultimate purpose is not only self-transcendence, but to be able to realize that it's about the fusion of the ultimate infinite transcendence with your individual identity as a person. That's matzoi enoi matzoi. Soivev mamalei. Bittel, Metzius, Bligvul, Gvul. Ultimately, the fusion of realizing that self, that oneness with God is never about self-denigration. Never. Because that means that doesn't, it's not only bad for psychology, okay? This is what I learned. It's bad for Judaism. Because it means that God is not memale. God is hu matzi. Which means, if I'm giving a class, and the people come out of my class understanding that their lives don't matter in the sense that they're just doormats and rags, I'm not just doing a disservice to them emotionally and psychologically. I'm doing a disservice to Judaism. Because I'm completely denying the foundation of Judaism that Hashem is matzi. In other words, that Hashem is the vibrancy behind every thought, behind every cell, behind every emotion, behind every experience. And therefore, you have to be able to cherish and appreciate what is going on in your heart and in your soul. Knowing thyself from a divine perspective is as important as knowing God. You know, when you, when you speak about all these paradoxes, you know, the, yes. the seeming contradiction... Is it A or is it B? And then it's always both or C. Or it's 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 never a limited one perspective. It's always always the bigger perspective. <laughs> what you're reminding me, there's something that Abiel would often say, maybe as often as he would say, I don't know. <laughs> when people would ask questions, almost like gotcha questions, like, hold on a second. You, you tell, by the way, I'm not even going to finish it. You tell me when someone would say, hold on a second. Didn't you just tell us last week that such and such means this? And now you're saying it means something completely different. What was the answer? 
Everything's relative. What do you do? Could you, 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 you're catching me defining one term differently in one mimer or in one page, and then on another page it has a new definition. Things, things are fluid. Context is everything. Context is everything. One ter- terms are not rigid. Terms can mean different things and must mean different things in different contexts. So that's part of the infinity of Torah's language. So which can, someone who is not familiar with the infinity behind it, it sounds like a dismissive answer. Well, I don't know. I changed my mind. I, just on a whim, I decided, you know, it, it's a, it better to define it this way. In this, there's, a, there's an infinity behind it, which I don't think that people who are unfamiliar with this type of limud, this type of study, can fully appreciate without explaining it in depth. I, 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 can you talk a little bit more on this the, the, this appearance of relativism, which is really speaking to this infinity behind every every word? Yeah, uh, so it's a, it's a beautiful question, and I'll tell you, <laughs> I'll tell you what it brings to mind. Like everything, you know, it triggers it triggers thoughts and memories. Um, I also have to say this was so enriching to me. Um, uh, it, it, it taught me so much. It was once in the summer. And of course, tomorrow night, Chafav, the 20th of Av, is the yard site of the Lubavitcher Rebbe's father, the great Gon, the great Makubul, the rabbi of Dnepro Petrovsk in Ukraine, Rebbe Levi Yitzchak Schneerson of blessed memory, who passed away, Chafav, 1944, in, in Kazakhstan, where he's buried in Almata. He was exiled by the communists. Now, he wrote, he wrote, when he was in exile in Kazakhstan, his wife, Rebbe Tzinchan, Rebbe's mother, she developed on her own ink from herbs so that he would be able to write ideas of Torah on the few books that he had. And those manuscripts she managed to smuggle out of Kazakhstan and send them to America to, and, and hide them in Moscow. And they were sent in the 60s after her death to the United States of America through the Israeli Mossad and the Rebbe got them. And for him, this was such a gift. It was, he hasn't seen his father since the 1920s and his father died in 44. And this was like manuscripts that he got from his father's writings in exile. In fact, the writings of his father when he was sitting on his throne of the rabbinate in Ukraine were lost. We still don't have them. Hopefully we'll find them one day. The only transcripts that we have of the Rebbe's father is from what he wrote in exile. And the Rebbe published them in the late 60s and the early 70s. And I have to say, those who know these books a little bit, they're called Lekutei Levi Yitzchak and Torahs Levi Yitzchak. They are from the most complex uh, books in, in Torah. And for the reason is, the language of these books is incredibly complex and intricate Kabbalah. But he explains so many different sugyas and shas and halacha and chsidis in language of Kabbalah. So you have to really know the code language of Kabbalah to understand the works of the Rebbe's father. It's also filled with numerology, filled with mystical anthropomorphisms, filled with gematrius, filled with Kabbalistic terminology and language of, of the Arizal and the Ramak and the, and the Zohar. And it's really, it's, it's not reading for a regular person. Even somebody who knows Shas by heart, Lukuti Levi Yitzchak, you have to know much of the writings of Kabbalah. Rabbi Yoel knew Lakuti Levi Yitzchak very well, very well. Now, he was not a, some teachers, I should say this nicely, they like to show off what they know, and not necessarily in an egotistical way. 
sometimes in an educational way. You know what I mean? You want to impress your students. You want to inspire your students. You want to engage your students. You want to stimulate your students. So you throw out a book here, an adjective here, a story here, a vart here, an insight here. First of all, you know Rabbi Shays, it keeps the crowd attentive because people have ADHD on steroids. So every 10 seconds, you got to change the subject and bring in another theme, another aspect. If not, you lose half the crowd. Rabbi Oil didn't believe in any of that, right? He could speak about something for two hours. And if you weren't interested, <laughs> that's fine. Sometimes the classes had a very, very few boys. And by the way, there was no difference. Rabiel could speak to 10,000 people and he could speak to three boys, two of them who were sleeping with the same stamina, <laughs> with the same vitality. Sometimes I walk into a lecture, it's a thousand people. Okay. As soon as I walk in, you know, there's four people and three of them are there by mistake. They came for the minion. So it's a different feeling. Rabiel walked into the room, right? There's two people, five people, six. He sat down on the bench. He had his coffee and he went, he went on a trip, but I was talking about something else. I forgot. Yeah, yeah. You, you, when you said, I remember what seeing him in a soccer with a bunch of, uh, and he's having a sikha from Helek Dal of the Kutisikhas as if it came out this week. With the same excitement, it's hot off the presses. Yeah, yeah. I, I didn't understand that. I would always I wanted he should teach Friday night new sikhas that he never taught, because I knew the other ones already. I wanted to hear new ones that I didn't understand. He wouldn't agree. He's like, What do you need? Let's go back to the basics. So sometimes what I would do is I would tell the other boys, You're not making the copies. I'm making the copies this week. I would make copies of the sikha that I wanted. I put them down on the table. He would come, he would say, What's this? There were no other copies, so there was nothing to learn. And he liked to learn text, text-based. So you had to learn the sikha that I prepared. Sometimes he got a little upset. I was very happy with that because I got to learn new ideas that I was struggling with, and he had to explain these new sikhas that he didn't touch. So there were a lot of sikhas I learned. <laughs> these are my sins that I have done as a bacher. Um, I've done worse the sins, but these thing, are the better yeah, sins. The these are the copies. Better sins. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I took away the clock. I changed the clock. I made the copies, but I got sikhs that other people didn't hear. But we, our, our, our group heard those years. But what I wanted to say is this. He knew the Rebbe's father's works very well because he knew Kabbalah very well, but he didn't show it. He, and he didn't study Kabbalah as a discipline in and of itself, but he went through the Rebbe's father's books and he knew much. I don't know that, I know all of it, but he knew much of it. And it was once time the Rebbe's father's yard site and he told us this. And, and I'm saying this as an answer to your question, a short answer. He said that there's an argument. He was quoting the Rebbe's father. Then I learned it in the source, and I was amazed because I would have never understood it, and I was so happy that he, he gave us the presentation. And I still learn it pretty often. It's like, it's like 20 pages of infinite brilliance, and he just told us like six lines of it, but he gave me the foundation, the paradigm. The Rebbe's father quotes a huge argument between Abaya and Rava in Kiddushin, which means in English, a marriage that halachically does not allow itself to be consummated. Is it a legal marriage or is it not a legal? Do you need a divorce or not? It's an argument of Abaya and Rava. Abaya says it's a good marriage. Rava says it's not a good marriage. In all of halacha, besides six places, the law is like Rava. This is one of the six Ya'el Kegam where the halacha is like Abaya. So Reb Levi Yitzchak says... That the Gemara says in Brachas, Memches, I think it is, that Rabbe, who was the stepfather of Abaya, once had a meal with Abaya and Rabbe's children. And it came to benching. And he wanted to make a Muslim, but they're little kids. So he asks them, do you know who do we bench to? So they say, yeah, to Hashem. 
So Rabbi says, where is Hashem? Where is Hashem? So I guess if they were living after Uncle Moshe, they would start singing. Hashem is here, Hashem is there. Hashem is truly everywhere, but this is Abaya and Rav, so it's the fourth century after the common era, so it's a little before Uncle Moshe. So Rav points to the ceiling. Rav points to the ceiling, to the rafters. He says that's where Hashem is. Abaya takes his uncle Rabbi outside and he points to the skies. Hashem is in the sky, not in the ceiling. He points to the sky. So I learned the Gemara many times. And I thought it's a very cute Gemara. And Rabbi says, Butzen, Butzen, Makatfe Yediyah. Which means the genius of a person you could see even as a little child. But Rabbi Yael said, why did he point to the ceiling? Why did he point to the sky? Most people would say, who knows? Who cares? The ceiling, the sky. Hashem is there. Who cares? Outside, inside, right? Comes Rebbe Levi Yitzchak, the Rebbe's father. And the Rebbe continued this path in his teachings brilliantly. And the Rebbe's father says, you think it's semantics? No way. It's two different understandings of Yiddishkeit. Where is God? Is God in the ceiling or is God in the sky? You want the words of the Rambam? Motsui, enoi motsui, mamale, soivev. The words of Reblevik? Makif hakaroiv, makif harachak. If you point to the ceiling, the ceiling is high, but it's accessible. I can take a ladder and I can climb to the ceiling. I can touch it, I can feel it, I can paint it. The skies are inaccessible. Is Yiddishkeit about makif hakaroiv or makif harachak? Makif hakaroiv is like a garment. It surrounds me, but it still suits my body. Makif Arachik is like a home. It surrounds me, but it's completely beyond me. The, the heavens are remote, infinite, distant. The, 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 the ceiling is above. It's aloof, it's sublime, but it's accessible. Which one is divinity? Which one does halacha tap into? And the Bureau says, the Blavik says, what is marriage? Kiddushin Shalaynim Sirulabiyah is marriage that can't be consummated. In other words, there's a relationship, but it never becomes intimate. We never become one. We never become integrated. So what type of relationship is it? What does it mean we're married? There's no intimacy. It means it's transcendent. Rabbi Yoyal's words, not transcendent. Rabbi Yoyal says it's makif, it's not pnimi. It's Rabbi words. The question is, is that a marriage or not? Rava says it's not a marriage. A makif that can't be internalized in intimacy is not a marriage. Abayi says it is, because for him marriage is about an infinite reality that doesn't have to be internalized. And then Reblevik shows 20, 30 sources in Shas where they're arguing about this. What is infinity? What is God? Now, God is everything, but the question is, how do we define God in halacha? What does halacha address? Abayi says, you need a divorce. Rava says, you don't need a divorce. Reblevik shows that they have arguments about divorce that reflect this argument about marriage. It's called Gilui Das Begitta. And he explains why the halach is like Abaya. Abaya lived till the age of 60. Rava lived till the age of 40. That's what the Gemara says in Rosh Hashanah, according to the version of Ben Hananel. Mem is a square, 40. Samach is a circle, it's 60. You know there are squares and there are circles. Rebiel didn't say that. Rebiel said, a square is makif karev. It's accessible, it's definable. A circle... Is makif harachik, it's endless. That's abaya. Abaya is av, father. What's father? Chachma, the sperm, the seed, the ayin, the nothingness. Ra- Rava is large, expansive, broad. Rav- Rava is bina, it's tangible, it's concrete, it's not ayin, it's yesh. 
And suddenly, hundreds of, 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 of shiurim, of discourses about these levels of reality converge together and you realize that all of Yiddishkeit or so much of Yiddishkeit is really the exercise in this extremely delicate but rich balance between taking yourself very seriously and not taking yourself seriously, between taking yourself seriously and taking the cause seriously, between working on yourself, refining yourself, listening to your own voice, tuning into your intuition, trusting your heart, appreciating your individuality, and finding yourself in God, coupled with the freedom and the emancipation to say, and if I really want to touch myself, I reach that space where I become a selfless conduit, where my eye merges with the infinite eye of Enoi Matzi, of Makif, of Makif Harachik. And the real relationship is the relationship that acknowledges the truth in both of these realities. Because, as Rabbi Yoel taught us, if you go to the real essence, there's never a division. <laughs> so the entire paradigm that there is polarization a polarity between the two is part of our limited perception where there is above and super above, where there is the tangible that is sublime and the sublime that is intangible. That is part of our definition. And in the ultimate, ultimate definition, there is complete fusion and synthesis. So therefore, when we sever the two, it's not just we're doing an injustice, we're also ultimately denying ultimate truth which will never embrace infinity over finiteness and will never negate infinity because of finiteness, but ultimately will understand that the two are really one because the source of everything is one. You know, there's a theme. There's, there's a theme here. We started off. I don't want to, I don't want to do the opposite of what you did when you stole the clock during uh, the Friday night cheer, but I will mention that it's over three hours that we're talking. And I do have to ask you, Chase. you did write to me yesterday that this class has to be for one hour sharp, and you even chastised me a little bit with, 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 with love that my classes often go for a few hours, and you said, listen, I'm not telling you that you run out of material, but I am telling you that the crowd is not capable of of listening. So you wanted it an hour sharp. So well, what really happened? You're, reveal, you're, you're revealing the behind the scenes. But I don't deny it. This is 100% accurate. That was our, our discussion. But can I can I tell you some of my, uh, my psychology behind that comment? Yeah, sure. <laughs> I figured if I would tell you, we have to keep it to an hour sharp and have a solid three hours. That's what I saw. <laughs> it's a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So you also stole the clock, like I did for the Bioil. <laughs> so actually, I did steal the clock. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, not to steal the not to. Okay, I did steal the clock. At any rate, when we're talking in the very beginning, when we started off, one of the things we said is, you know, a, a biography in the conventional sense of Rabioil. You know, he was born here, he moved there, he lived here. You know, this is this. He he lived on this street. This, it doesn't do it justice. Uh, it, the, the biography is, is a conceptual biography. You know, the ideas, the world of deep Hasidic thought that, that he lived in. And uh, 
I, I think, you know, we, we keep coming back to one idea, the idea of, of paradox, the idea of infinity not being able to be nailed down to one perspective and, and the, the necessity for contradiction and that contradiction really isn't a contradiction all, and all that stuff that sounds like double talk to someone who's not familiar with, with this type of, uh, this type of worldview. I, I, I want to suggest yeah. that this, this paradox perhaps is the answer to a question that you could ask about Rabbi Yud. And, and, and we sort of mentioned these two things. You know, we spoke about the chayzer, the yeah. funnel, you know, the, the, the faithful conduit. Yeah. And we spoke about the genius, the scholar, the teacher. You know, so which is it? Which is the real Rabbi Yud? Yeah. And, and this itself is, is, is the answer. Right. <laughs> and I should say that I think throughout all of his years, at least what I observed as a humble student, was Rabbi Yoel always maintained a certain, if I could say this in, in, a, in a very respectful way, a certain childlike simplicity and faith. There was something about him that remained very childlike, very innocent. You know, he could speak to a bocher who was much, much younger than him <laughs> and sometimes speak to him for hours and, and just like without any, any qualms. In fact, if you went over to him and you used any term that might have demonstrated respect, he completely dismissed you. And it wasn't with shtick. It was like as genuine as it gets. There was a part of him that remained very simple in a sense of very childlike, very innocent, very pure. A part of him that really was like a, like a child in that sense, with, with the pshittas, with the, with the muna of a child. And I think that ultimately informed a lot of his teachings because throughout everything, he ultimately remained very loyal, you know, to <laughs> Yerushamayim, to the fear of God and to faith in God and to doing what God wants and to obeying the Ratzon of Hashem and knowing where you ask questions and where you don't ask questions. Uh, he was once teaching a shir, it was a very deep concept about if you give reasons for mitzvahs, and I started to ask some questions, and he gave like a, a bolt. He's like, enough with your philosophy, he tells me in front of everybody. It didn't feel comfortable. He said, enough with, the philo- enough with your philosophy. Genugma de philosophia. Like, enough with philosophy. Like, we're learning something. And he went on. Later, he comes over to me and he apologizes. And he says to me, he says, the question was a good question. But it wasn't, it wasn't for the audience. The question was not for the audience. So I told you enough with the philosophy. I wanted to move on. It was interesting that he felt the need to apologize. but uh, And I felt better, of course. But there was a part of him that was extremely what you call, you know, the Erlichkeit von an Erlich 
He had the, the simplicity of a, of an Erlichayid, of, of a, a very observant Yerushamayim, a God fearful Jew who understood that Torah is real and mitzvahs are real and God is real and Yiddishkeit is real and, 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 and Yerushamayim is real and his job is to educate people with Torah and mitzvahs. So this really anchored him completely. You know, many others with great minds, they go, <laughs> they go in different ways and then sometimes they integrate things from other worlds and other circles, maybe sometimes positive, sometimes not so positive, you know, it's debatable. But with Rabbi Yoel, it was really, as you said before, there was a, a just a, a purity there, you know, throughout his entire life. Like, if you turned him into a, some type of glorified uh, teacher, he was completely allergic to it. He, he like, didn't even understand it. it. It wasn't like, it wasn't a struggle for him. Some people struggle with their egos, you know. <laughs> they struggle with their egos. Am I egotistical? Am I humble? Do I care? Do I not care? I never saw it as a struggle. It was just like, by him, uh, it was a pshittas, it was simplicity. Like, he wasn't a metzias to make him ice metzias. He didn't, he didn't look at himself as a, as a glorified entity that he would have to struggle with the fact that he's really, you know, just a messenger for God or a chayzid of the Rebbe. It was as organic and as natural as breathing for him. Like, <laughs> I'm just doing my thing. I'm a teacher. I'm a transcriber. You know, he obviously had his opinions. He had his perspectives, but it was all part of, uh, you know, this is my job. This is what I do. I teach and I learn and I try to understand and I try to give it over and I try to do the right thing. We, we always, we always, uh, we always saw that in him. And he, there was a certain level of struggle that he would not address. He would address paradox, but he would address it more philosophically. Um, uh, the paradox in the human spirit, anxiety in the human spirit, I didn't hear him address many times. Again, we would have to use his paradigms to, uh, uh, to address it, uh, to address it in our own world. I remember once asking him, we were learning Friday night, a sicha, uh, uh, volume 15, Lakuti Sichas Parshas Vayeshev, where the Rebbe asks why the Rambam, I'm sorry, why the Torah doesn't speak about Olam Haba. You know, the famous question of the Chayvah Salavavah is there's 10 reasons. Why does the Torah not mention afterlife? In fact, the Rambam explains that the reward of mitzvahs in this world is the main focus of Torah because it just allows you to do more mitzvahs. But the ultimate reward, Olam Haba, the world to come, is completely not addressed in the Torah. And the Rebbe discusses different aspects of this back and forth, back and forth. And then he brings out one very powerful point, and that is that... Uh, when the Torah speaks about physical reward, it's not the way we understand it as compromised and condensed reward, as some commentators explain, but it's much deeper than that. Because a mitzvah is the ultimate truth, so from every, any angle that you will look at the mitzvah, you will see that it's good. He gave the example, the Rambam says, that for a child you give candies and nuts, a goizim, in order to inspire him. So the Rebbe said, you're not giving the nuts to say that all of Yiddishkeit is about getting ice cream or getting nuts. It's much deeper than that. It's because a mitzvah is the ultimate truth of godliness. So even in the world where nuts are important, the mitzvahs produce nuts too. <laughs> even in a world where candies are significant, the mitzvah gives candies too. That's the idea. It's not reward because we reduce the mitzvah to physical, immature rewards. It's because the mitzvah is everything. It's Hashem, and Hashem is everything. So from any angle you look at it, you want to look at things from the perspective of money, 
There's money there. You want to look at it from the perspective of, 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 of satisfaction, there's satisfaction. You want to look at the perspective of candies, there's candies there too. That's the I like idea. Like the Nefesh Chaim says, learning is geschmack. Right, learning is geschmack. But it comes so, from a higher truth. So, so I asked her, I was sitting there, it was Friday night, I still remember. I asked her, I said, I have to ask a question. First of all, who cares if... If reward is about the nuts or reward is about infinity manifesting itself through nuts, you think the kid cares? He just wants ice cream. He doesn't care if the ice cream is coming from infinity or it's coming from the ice cream store. That's number one. You mean, who's this beer for? <laughs> yeah, who is explanation for? Besides a philosophical abstraction without any relevance to life. I didn't use these words. I said, I just said two words. Like, how does it affect anybody in Avoid? My second question was, I said, when I was raised... I was taught that there were two streams in Yiddishkeit. One philosophy in Yiddishkeit was, what does it do for me? Me, everything is me, 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 me. I become big, I become big. And another philosophy was, you know, to paraphrase the Alter Rebbe, uh, it's, uh, they say the name of Kennedy, but Lahavla comes first from the Alter Rebbe. Ask not what you need, right? <laughs> Ask what God needs. It's not about me, it's about the truth. It's about the MS. And I always learned that Chassidus, brought out the idea that it's, it's about truth, it's about transcendence, it's about you being a conduit for God. It's not about, you know, ego and self-consciousness and I'm going to get reward, I'm going to get Elam Haba. And, uh, but suddenly I'm, we're learning here the Sikha, Vayeshev, where the Rebbe says, no, when you discuss the physical rewards or the emotional ones of a mitzvah, that is everything. And I remember Rebbe Yael thought for a moment, and he said, and he said this on his own, and this was very unusual for him to say. There are people who talk about kashras in terms of health and hygiene. He said it in Yiddish. He says, there are people who talk about mikvah in terms of shalom bias, in terms of having a better marriage. He says, there are people that talk about mitzvahs in terms of psychological or very practical benefits. In fact, nothing to do with God. Even if God would not tell me to do it, a good therapist would tell me to do these things because it's good for the marriage, it's good for the home, it's good for the psyche, it's good for life. And Abiel said as follows, and you know what? It's true. But you know why it's true? It's true because the mitzvah is ultimately about the ultimate truth. It's about a relationship with the source of reality. And therefore... It's manifested in every level and angle of reality. So if you want to look at marriage from a very practical perspective, yes, the mitzvah is going to enhance the marriage. Shabbos is going to enhance the marriage. But you can also study Shabbos from the level of psychology or the level of spiritual emotions or the level of transcendence. He used the words, you could study Shabbos on a level of Asiya, Yitzira, Briya, Atzilus, Lifne Hatzimtzum. And then he said, Every sefer you'll read will give you a different Shabbos. Darizal will explain to you the value of Shabbos in Hatzilas. On Shabbos, the various spheres are merging in a whole new way. Other Svarim will explain to you Shabbos on a level of Bria. They'll explain to you from a spiritual consciousness state. Other philosophies will explain to you on a level of Yitzir, emotional spirituality. And other philosophies will talk about Asiya, what Shabbos does for romance for intimacy and the Bible said and they're all right you know why they're all right because Atmos is everything because the truth of Hashem is manifested in every angle of reality so I turned to the Bible I said great great I got it 
He says, I'll tell you. When you're teaching Yiddishkeit, you're teaching about kashras. I don't care if you say that it's about health. It's all about health. It's all about dieting. Mikvah is all about marriage and relationships. Nothing else. That's fine. Depends on the crowd. But if the teacher doesn't know the MS, that it's all about enoid malvadai, it's all about ultimately, because this is the will of God, then ultimately those concrete reasons will be tarnished. When the concrete reasons are fused with the transcendent truths, that truth will flow and they will come closer to the MS. But when you become detached and the mitzvah ultimately becomes about self-actualization without realizing that the self is a conduit for the divine, he says then you're going to sever the two and then the ego could sometimes create a lot of distractions and toxicity. So this was a very, very powerful lesson and paradigm about understanding how on one hand, you can go to all the places you need to go in order to speak to people's hearts. You're convincing me more and more that Rabbi Yael gave you exactly what you complained that he didn't give you. Because you, you, you said you wanted him to bring it down more. He gave you a license. Uh, to bring it down. And he explained to you how to bring it down. And he explained to you that ultimately bringing it down, if it's done right, I guess what I meant cheapening it. It's not, it's not, it's not, you're not being unfaithful to it. You're 100% right. You're 100% right. I guess what I meant was that um, I need to always do a lot, a lot of work for application <laughs> well, that, and internalization. Okay. Okay. And uh, it was not given on a golden platter. That's what I meant. <laughs> Paradigms, yeah. Paradigms, yeah. You say this, yeah. Um, a certain connection, an angle, a perspective. Horizons, as we say. Hashkafas oilam, a weltanschauung. And really, in this case, it's a weltanschauung and beyond the weltanschauung, you know. But uh, there's always the need for internalization and struggling with internalization. And especially, I don't have to tell you, that we're living in a time where so many struggles are emerging that they really they really did not discuss uh, 20 years ago and 30 years ago when I was a foreign yeshiva student. Uh, this was not the conversation. It was a very rare and uncommon conversation. Today, it's all over the place with people from all walks of life including the very religious community, the Hasidic community, the non-Hasidic community, the Chabad community, the Litvish community, the Yeshivish community, modern Orthodox community, especially in terms of identity and stress and anxiety and trauma and addiction and depression and, and leaving Yiddishkeit and faith and, 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 and psychology and self-awareness and relationships and trauma. This is like, I don't know, everybody, I don't know everybody, but so many people are struggling with it. So many people are struggling with it. And I think it behooves all of us, all of us, to dedicate our our time and our mental space to help ourselves, our loved ones, our friends, and our communities, and the entire Jewish world, and the entire world, with with finding finding the light within a very dense psychological and emotional darkness. So it really behooves us at this time to go back to these uh, infinite wellsprings of love and light, and depth, and enlightenment that the Baal Shem Tev and the Alter Rebbe and all the great Hasidic masters and the Rebbe revealed, and Rebbe Yoyal so faithfully taught, to really revitalize a generation with uh, 
with love and with clarity and with purpose, and most importantly, with that sense of inner inner meaning and purpose and conviction and happiness. My battery is dying, so I'm just changing the battery. <laughs> You're putting in a new battery? I have you know, a new one. You have a new battery? I mean, we could just wrap it up. You know, you... You say my battery died, and I'm sorry. Thank you. Uh, that's all I got tonight. Just change the battery. You just put in a new battery. Okay, so I guess you have more to say. <laughs> what do you want to tell us? I did want to mention, this is really also a sad night for me, because I just learned a few hours ago that my dear beloved uncle passed away, my father's baby brother. His name was Reb Shalom Jacobson. He was 74 years old. And he actually, I should say, worked with Rabbi Yoel for many, many years. He was a member, a founding member, of an organization called Va'ad Lahafotzas Sichais, the committee to uh, disseminate, to transcribe and disseminate the Rebbe's talks, of which Rabbi Yoel was a obviously leading member and transcriber. So Reb Shalom dedicated his life to teach and to disseminate the teachings of Torah and of Chassidus and of the Rebbe. And today he uh, he sadly returned his soul to its maker. And he was really one of those Jews that you could say about him, uh, a real, you know, a person who was deeply, deeply refined, very loyal, very dedicated, very authentic. He was born on Zion Adr, the birthday of Moshe Rabbeinu in Pucking, Germany after the war, and he was born in the same state like Moshe Rabbeinu, which means circumcised. He was born after a bris. And my Zayda, Reb Simon, my father's father, was a male, and he did the bris, but there was no bris to do because he was born on Moshe Rabbeinu's birthday in the same state. The Medrash says that this is a special, special state, that this is my uncle who returned his soul to its maker and was a true man of... Uh, of Messiris Nefesh, of sacrifice, of, of faith, of dedication, of loyalty, and of deep, deep conviction and moral values. And he worked with Rebiel for many years, and he was dedicated heart and soul to to bring people closer to the source of, of holiness, to the source of life. So I do want to mention that I did not want to cancel the event because it's just a few days after Rebiel's passing, and I thought that this was a fitting tribute both to Rebiel and to my uncle, was very dedicated to this work. So I just wanted to mention that. Our condolence to you and, and your family, and we thank you for uh, making this possible, despite uh, the loss in your family. And uh, I, I do believe that it's a fitting tribute, and uh, it's before us still. So I guess... Uh, I don't know uh, what what is at this point, but uh, we'll mention Reb Shalom Ben Simon. Is that the correct name? Reb Simon, yeah, yeah. He was my my father, my my grandfather. Reb Shalom was the third of three brothers. My grandfather, Reb Simon, was one of the nine young uh, students summoned in 1923 by the six Lubavitcher Rebbe. He made with them an oath to preserve Yiddishkeit in the Soviet Union in the 1920s and 30s when the Avsekhtia, when the Communist Party uprooted every last vestige of Judaism. Sadly, my grandfather was arrested, tortured, exiled, 
when my father was still a young boy, he lost his father, but then he made it out. He made it out of uh, exile. They made it out of uh, Russia through forced, forged passports. They made it to Canada, but my grandparents both died very, very young in 1953 and 1954 at the age of 53 and 44. And Shalom what remained a very young orphan, and there were no uncles and aunts and grandparents. Everybody was either dead or back in Russia. And my father raised his two uh, two little brothers. Uh, he put his baby brother Shalom at the, fa- the fam- Hasidic family who raised him. And ultimately, <laughs> my father ended up marrying the oldest sister of that family, the Lipsker family. So Shalom was raised by my other set of grandparents because his own grandparents died so young. But he retained that uh, very deep... Uh, very deep sense of pain and humility of a generation that really lived through so much and yet rose to uh, to great heights of self-sacrifice and dedication. And he, he built a beautiful, beautiful family, may they be well, and dedicated his life to really uh, teach and inspire and, and spread the light of, of Yiddishkeit and the light of, uh, of the Rebbe. <clears throat> and a lot of it he did together with Rebbe Oil. In the in the sikhs. it's getting late. What what else? Uh, it, we're getting to the good part of the fabrengen, right? This is where all the the secrets come out. The radical talk, you know. The four in the morning at the fabrengen. The bombshells. Tell us something radical. Shake us up. We'll we'll erase it from the recording if it's too uh, too much. <laughs> Um, I'll just just uh, maybe end off with just three 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 thoughts that come into my mind that I heard uh, I heard from the Bial. Uh Actually, actually four thoughts, but they're they're all, they're all pretty short, you know, brief brief and concise. But I think it's it's a proper way to finish. He once told us that he heard from the Rebbe, if I'm not mistaken, this is Shabbos Masay, I think 56, 56, I think it's in Lakuti Sikhs volume 2. He just said it over the way he remembered it. He spoke about the fact that it says in, in Kabbalah and Echsidus that davening is a ladder. And you go up from one state of consciousness to another state of consciousness. From the beginning of davening till Baruch Sha'amar is Asiyah. Then Psuke de Zimri is Yitzira, emotional inspiration. You talk about nature. You celebrate the divinity of the world. Then you have after Baruchu, section of Kriyashma is called Bria. It's we, we appreciate true infinity beyond the world. And then there's Shemina Esra is called Atsilas, where you, there's just oneness, the complete oneness. That's the highest level, Atsilas. So the Biel said that the Rebbe once said, Afabregen was talking, and he said, that's climbing the ladder. But there's something even deeper. And he said, what could be deeper? You're climbing the worlds. And he said, the Rebbe said, in Yiddish, meaning there's climbing the ladder. But before climbing the ladder, there's opening yourself up, that I'm going into a place of truth. He says, you know, in, in, in my language, I would say, you know, you can go to the gym, you could do the exercise, but there's that mode in your mind 
I'm going into that space. I'm going into that space of, of growth. And he said, the Rebbe said, where is that expressed in davening? The Rebbe said, Anton de Gartel. You put on the Gartel. He said, what's putting on the Gartel? It's not davening. You're not saying anything. Don't, what's putting on the, the Rebbe said, putting on the Gartel is, it says in Shabbos, Osir Hamyone, Hikonikras Hashem Alekecha, Shabbos Dafyud. He said, putting on the Gartel is basically, he said, it's Hanachas Hatzmusay. In a way, it's, it's what we call today showing up. You know, in a real, now you'll say, I heard this from Rabbi Yoel at the time. I didn't apply it in that sense, but you talk about marriage, for example, right? There's working out issues, there's talking, but before everything, just showing up. <laughs> showing up means you put away your phone and you just show up. In our language, it's called you put on the guard. You know, show up, be present. We're not climbing anywhere. We're not conversing, but it's showing up. He taught this to us. You know, there's davening, there's getting into it, but are you ready to show up? It's really the second, it's really a whole piece of Reb Chaim on the Rambam, but what the definition of tefillah is, I think it's the second Reb Chaim in Chidush Reb Chaim al Rambam. Another thing he told us once is, he said, in life, you only have to learn one mimer. That's all you need. You need to learn one mimer. But in order to understand one mimer, you have to learn another thousand mimer. And that was a line that captured it. His point was, when you go to the levels of DNA, you just need one strand of hair, one part of saliva. You need one mimer. You just need one mimer in your life to be able to help you align yourself with who you are, with your ultimate truth. But in order to get one mimer, you have to learn a thousand mimer. And it really told us that ultimately all the mimerim are one. They're ultimately all one. They're all about truth, all about living with truth, cultivating truth, dedicating yourself to truth, opening yourself up to truth. You need a thousand maimarim in order to get the one maimar, but it's really about one maimar, that's all it is. He also told us once, it says, Yaakov loved Rachel. Vayar Hashem kisnu rachma. God saw that Leah was hated. So he opened her womb and he said as follows. It says in Torah Ur, the Balatanya says that Rachel is Dibur, Leah is Machshava. Rachel is words, Leah is thoughts. Rachel is extroverted, Leah is introverted. Rachel is more projective. Rachel is the numerology of Ahi Ur, there's light, 238. Leah means exhaustion. Leah is more internal thought, subconscious. It's discussed in Zohar. Leia is Almadis is the hidden world. Rachel is Almadis Galia. So Rabiel said as follows. People love Rachel. Everybody loves talking. Nobody likes Leia. Nobody likes thinking. <laughs> Nobody likes reflecting. I'm talking about everyone liking to talk, so look who's talking. But he said, everyone loves talking. You know, you talk and talk and talk and talk and talk. Vayar Hashem kisnu Leia. God saw that Leia is hated. Nobody likes Leia. He opened her womb. He allowed Leah to have children. And he told us as follows. He says, everybody likes talking. Nobody likes to think. Meaning, people like to talk and shmuas and communicate and give ideas. He says, there's Leah. Leah means that you should, you should be able to go into a private space inside of yourself and just think learn, think, reflect, tune in, melt away in the light of Ein Soif.
Machshava thought. Just be there, be present. As they say today, you know, be mindful. Tune in. Don't, don't schmooze, don't, just go into that place of Pnimius. He says, Vayiftach es Rachma. God opens the womb. He says, when a person goes into that space, the womb opens and blessings come out. There are children. There are emotions. There are reactions. There are results. And, uh, and he says, there are powerful results. Another interesting thing I would say, and we saw this from him. It was not, the Rebbe was very introverted. I mentioned this before. It was very hard to get to know the Rebbe. There were people for many years who tested the Rebbe. It's not like you know, today the Rebbe has a reputation of being so great and larger than life. But in the early years, there were many people who struggled. And Rebbe Yoel himself was a very serious person. There were a few things about the Rebbe that really captured his imagination. He writes a letter to his father in 1950 or 51. He says the Ramash, Rabbi Menachem Schneerus and the Rebbe, is a very honest and authentic person. He says, you see that he'll talk. He starts crying. And he immediately stops crying as he goes on to the next subject. You know, most people, if you're talking and you get emotional, you start crying, you let the tears flow because it's good. It's good for the energy. You know, you let the tears flow and people take it in and people start crying. He said, by the Rebbe, he doesn't cry before, he doesn't cry after. When the words warrant tears, he'll cry for a few seconds, maybe for a split second, and then he, and, and then the next. In other words, he's completely one with what he says. There's never an act, there's never an expression, there's never like wallowing in the emotion in order to create an energy. He is completely one with what he says. He was very young, he was 20 years old. The Rebbe was very new, nobody knew about him. But the, the, these things, these things touched him. You know, he saw the, the earnestness, the authenticity, the Avaidus Hashem of the Rebbe. At his funeral, one of his close students told me that what really connected him was the Shabbos before Rosh Hashanah, Tavshin Yod Aleph, a few months after he came, a few months after the previous Rebbe's passing, the Rebbe asked that they should sing the famous Nigan, the Dveikas, the Rosh Hashanah Diketnuah. It was a Rosh Hashanah melody of the Alter Rebbe. The Rebbe asked him to sing it. They started to sing it. And he said the Rebbe put his head down on the table and the way he was crying from the depth of his soul. He says he just saw the living embodiment of what you call dvekas, of oneness. He just saw it. And uh, since Rebbe Yoel at the end of the day was a very warm, genuine Jewish soul, he just had a certain deep emunah and a certain Hasidic spiritual feel. So all the intellectual brilliance of the Rebbe touched him, but all as a continuum, a reflection of that dvekas, of that just absolute oneness with, with Emes and complete dedication to truth without any shtick, without any drama. I don't have to tell you that in spiritual leaders, spiritual leaders, they use drama and shtick and uh, fireworks and sensationalism, you know, to leave an impression. It's called theatrics. And sometimes it's not bad. Sometimes they actually mean well. Uh, by the Rebbe, there was no theatrics. No, Sometimes people didn't like it. The Rebbe was not dramatic. Uh, he would never, never, he didn't, the Rebbe couldn't even exaggerate. It was, everything was meticulous and precise and real. And Rebbe Yael also, Rebbe Yael, 
Rabiel did not. Uh, Rabiel did not display theatrics. He did not display that. That's why some people couldn't really understand. You know, they came to a class, they found it boring, and they left. There was no theatrics. He was not that type of person. He would convey. If you were interested, you listened, and you heard what you heard. And if you weren't, you know, he would not uh, try to uh, pull you in through external, external methods. The last thing I would leave all of you is. Um, so much to say, but last thing I would leave all of you is something I once heard from him. And uh, again, I, f- I personally appreciate very much the bigger picture of something. And the Yoyal really appreciated that because the Rebbe really embodied that. Like, no narrowness. The Rebbe did not believe in narrowness. I don't mean only narrowness in character, you know, pettiness. I mean narrowness in thought. Everything was part of the picture, everything. He didn't have to exclude reality, he didn't have to amputate reality. And I think I heard this from Rabbi Yoel. I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm not sure if I heard this from Rabbi Yoel many years ago, or, or maybe I heard it from somebody in his name, maybe not. But I'm going to say it because it's certainly uh, based on ideas I heard from him. And he said, in the last generation before the war... There were two streams that developed in learning. One stream is much more well-known because he created a lot of students, and that's known as the Brisker Derech, authored, developed by Reb Chaim Brisker, Reb Chaim Soloveitchik, who passed away, oh, Chav Aleph of, 21st of Av, 1918. He was considered one of the greatest Lithuanian sages, the Rosh Hashiva of Alajan and the Rav of Brisk, Reb Chaim Brisker. And uh, he was very close with the Rebbe Rashab, the fifth Lubavitcher Rebbe, as is known. And Reb Chaim Brisker was a brilliant, brilliant mind. In fact, Rabbi Zevin writes that some of the ideas of Reb Chaim Brisker, of Bris, you can find in the Kuntras Acheron of the Alter Rebbe in Shulchan Aruch. So Reb Shlomo Yosef Zevin writes, and he was one of the great Kainim of the last generation. And what was the uniqueness of Reb Chaim Brisker? What's called Nituach, Higoyen, dissection. You know, you have a contradiction of two Rambams, and he says, take the Rambam apart, go to the skeleton, go to the core of the issue, and you'll right away see that this is a din in this, this is a din in this, this is Gavre, this is Hefz, the ability of dissection, of, of getting into the core of something, getting out of the externalities, defining the, the meat and the essence of the theme at hand, and then you have much more clarity. That's the briskaderach. He had a Chavrusa, another great sage, the Rakat Shavagon, Rabbi Yosef Rosen. Rabbi Yosef Rosen didn't leave students like Rabbi Chaim Soloveitchik. Even though he was a good communicator, but his writing is very, very difficult. He didn't have a yeshiva, but he was considered the genius of unparalleled genius. Sarah Torah. Rakat Shavagon passed away in 1936. Um, he was the Rav of Dvinsk in, in, in Latvia. And the Rakat Shavagon was a Chavrusa of Reb Chaim. They were born, uh, I think, the same year, or t- around the same year, or 1856. Reb Chaim died in 1918. Reb Chaim passed away in 1936. I think Reb Chaim was maybe a few years older. Uh, a few, I don't remember. They were both born in the 18, 18, 1850s. The Chaver had a different approach than Reb Chaim. Chaver, he actually, yes, he'll get into the details and to the nitty-gritty of a sugya, but primarily, he takes every theme in Gemara. He'll take a simple question, 
that the Gemara discusses, and he'll trace it back to a fundamental, abstract idea that is connected to philosophy, theology, psychology, ideas in life, a very abstract idea, sometimes connected to science and physics, and of course, halacha. And then he'll show how a similar argument is expressed in another hundred places in Gemara, but they all can be traced back to this abstract idea. In other words, Reb Chaim sees something and he wants to go deeper and deeper. He uses a microscope. And the Rekachavar uses a telescope. The Rekachavar will take something and he'll trace it higher and higher and higher to transcendent ideas. And once you trace it to transcendent ideas, he takes it out of this specific incarnation and therefore he can show that there's another hundred discussions in the Mara or Rambam that all revolve around this. For example, Rabbi Jehovah will, will discuss an argument about, about chametz and he'll see it as a manifestation of an argument about chaymer and surah. What's more important? Content or form, right? Raw matter or, or energy. And then he'll show many other arguments. So Rabbi El said like this, really, Reb Chaim is Mamala Kalalman, and the Rabbi is Saiv of Kalalman. Reb Chaim, Reb Chaim was a Litvak, but what Reb Chaim is showing is, Reb Chaim didn't like connecting things that are disconnected. Go inside here, and, and let's just get it. Let's just get to the core of this. And that's what he believes, and he believes in the details, in the nuances, zooming in. The Rukachavah says Saiv of Kalaman. Rukachavah is Enoi Matzah. Rukachavah is Ayin, right? Rukachavah says, let's go to the infinity of reality. And there everything is part of infinity. Zoom out. Don't zoom in. Zoom out and see the full infinite picture. And the detail is a manifestation of the infinite picture. And that's Rukachavah. And they're both so rich. One is called Hafshata, one is called Halbasha. Halbasha means you put on more garments. In other words, you bring it down more tangible, more concrete, more manifested. And the Rakachavar, he takes you out. Hafshata. <laughs> he divests you from the garments. You know, he goes deeper and deeper, a higher layer, a higher layer, a higher layer. And then the Bioel would say, and this is so true, the Rebbe taught that Mamali and Soiviv are all manifestations of Atmos. There's Hashem's core. It's not finite and it's not infinite. It's infinite and it's finite. It's a microscope and it's a telescope. It zooms in and it zooms out. As you said, it fuses the paradoxes. And he said, when you learn the Rebbe's teachings and when you heard the Rebbe's teachings, you saw always that attempt of fusion between Reb Chaim Brisker and the Rokachavar, between Mamali and Soiviv. The Rebbe loved speaking about Atmos. The Rebbe embodied this concept and the Rebbe's teachings there was very much a brisker component in the sense that he could dissect, dissect a Rashi, dissect a Rambam, dissect a Gemara, dissect a Sugi, dissect a Halacha, towards bare bones, and very much develop things like the brisker Derek, like Reb Chaim did, you know, showing this is an aspect of this, this is a component of this, a component of this. But the Rebbe also, this constantly, he was a student of the Rakachavar, and he quotes him more than anybody else outside of the Chabad world, constantly quoting the Rakachavar. The Rebbe loved the abstractions and, and tracing everything back to its, its transcendent divine ideas. 
The Rebbe loved Lishitase, showing that Tanoim and Amirayim throughout Shas have a singular pervading theme that is manifested and it trickles down into dozens of arguments, but it's really based on some transcendent theme. You know, Reb Meir argues with Reb Gamliel if quantity prevails or quality prevails. Reb Meir argues with Reb Yehuda about present versus future. Reb Yoshiyoh argues with Reb and You know the argument? Reb Yoshiyoh believes that the collective prevails in Judaism. And Reb Yoinesen believes, no, the individual prevails in Judaism. Uh, the Rebbe did this in 1977. He went through the whole Shas. Rabbi Yoshia, what, what does Judaism believe in? Community or individuality? Both. But Rabbi Yoshia says, you always choose collective over individual. Rabbi Yonison says, no, you choose individual. Now, if you're looking at more, you're not going to find this. But the Rebbe saw this in Rabbi Yoshia and Rabbi Yonison, and he shows that there's 20 arguments in Shas between Rabbi Yoshia and Rabbi Yonison, all about this, including how you pay a fifth. What's a fifth? Including if you bring the carbon Pesach on Erev Pesach, which is Shabbos. It depends if it's a communal offering or an individual offering. That was very much the record Chavra style, you know. Take it to a level that's beyond and then show how it's manifested in the details. But here is the uniqueness that by the Rebbe, he never got stuck in one paradigm or another paradigm. He shifts and constantly navigates and goes from Amale to Soiva, from Soiva to Amale, from Rebchaim Briska to Rebchaim to Rebchaim Briska. He'll speak in the most simple way, in the most abstract way, and ultimately it becomes one, and there's always a lesson for life. Because the Rebbe tried always to introduce what's called Atzmos Ein Soif. Atzmos Ein Soif means the essence and the core of all reality, where every detail is important, and you can really zoom in and reveal the richness. And in those very details, you can find that ultimate abstraction where all the details merge into one larger, infinite, transcendent state. And in life, we we live in both worlds because we ultimately are the ones who can who confuse both worlds. I'll never forget uh, Sukkis. The Rebbe, the Rebbe could not understand why by Simchas Beisasheva, the greatest of the great would stand and juggle. The Mishnah says in Sukkah, people are going to be learning it soon in Dafyaimi, that Rabbi Shimon ben Gamliel would juggle torches and Abaya and Levi. They juggled eggs and wine. Imagine, imagine Rabbi Shais, you have the greatest rabbis of Rosh Hashivas today. By Simchas Beisasheva will start juggling. Yeah? What, what is everybody going to say on WhatsApp? But, but in the Mishnah and the Gemara, the greatest, the top people, Rabbi Shimon and Gamliel, the head of the Sanhedrin, he would juggle, by he would stand and juggle. Today, the clowns do it, you know, the clowns. The, the Bachram who, who left Yeshiva, you know, the guys who left Yeshiva, or at least are not, you know, the greatest steigers. You know, the jugglers, but, but, but that's not what happened. And the Rebbe in his classic sicha, you know, he went through the whole process. It was, it was a 45-minute presentation that was very, very deep. But the one point I'm saying is, what is juggling? What is juggling? Juggling is one, one, one bottle goes up, one torch goes up, the other torch goes down. But a moment later, the process gets reversed. And he said, that's the essence of life. The essence of life is you always have to be able, you know, to go up. You always have to be able to anchor yourself in the source. As Mesugabun and Eibin, Fatman Nishtuntin, Rabmeir Primishlan says, when you're tied above, you never fall below.
But you can't stay above. You can't stay above. You can't remain aloof because God wants you to change the world. God wants you to be present. God wants you to be there for yourself, for your spouse, for your family, for your community, and for other people. You got to come down. <laughs> you can't be afraid of yourself. You got to come down. You come back down. <laughs> but don't get stuck. <laughs> don't get stuck here. Don't get stuck in trauma because you're not traumatized. You go right back up. You're atzmos. You're, 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 you're a representation of Hashem. Hashem is not stuck. <laughs> Hashem goes down because he's still up. And he goes down and he's still up. And that's what the juggle is. The juggling is the art of life, you know, of, 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 of the Ratsi and Shuv. And that's the, so this fusion of Reb Chaim and the Rakachover, you saw it in Nigla, you saw it in Chassidus, you saw it in Avoidus Hashem, in what you would call today psychology, uh, self-growth, inner emotional work. And you saw it in the relationship with the world, the relationship with the world. You embrace the world. You don't run away from anything. You elevate the world, but you never get stuck. You never get stuck by its paradigms because you're anchored in, in a place that's, that's fully transcendent. And I, I take this moment. I set it at the grave and I say it here to everybody who's listening now or, or listening later. And that is, I think all of us, all of us owe a very profound debt of gratitude to Rabbi El Khan. I speak about myself because I'm the one speaking. And that is, over the years, you know, he opened up my eyes in Tanya. I was a yeshiva boy in Boston for two years. At night, I took a headset. I walked around the Charles River, for those who know Brookline. And uh, I did exercise. And I learned through the whole Tanya with Rabbi <laughs> the whole Tanya with Rabbi Yoel Khan. And then I took notes and it became the foundations of my own uh, privilege to teach Tanya over many, many years. And then all the shiurim that I sat by his feet for years, just listening, sometimes enjoying, sometimes not enjoying, sometimes understanding, sometimes not understanding, sometimes getting frustrated, and very often quelling, quelling away in ecstasy. And for having the privilege of listening to him, watching him, hearing him repeat the sikhs, explain the sikhs of the Rebbe, teach the Rebbe as my marim. And for this, I owe him an eternal thank you, especially to, also to his wife, Rebbe Tzinleya Khan. Uh, may she be well for really, you know, being the, the, the soulmate of a chassid, of a gun, who allowed him to to teach and to write and dedicate his life to to spread and teach Torah to so many Jews. Often, you know, days and nights he was away, away from the home. And uh, Rabbi Yoel was a person, like every single person, you know, Rabbi Yoel did not canonize people. He did not believe in canonizing people. And therefore, we're not going to do that. Rabbi Yoel was a person. He had great, great great virtues, great, great virtues, great qualities. And uh, so many of us, myself, owe him an eternal sense of gratitude to say to the Bioil, thank you for really helping all of us, each in our own way, open our eyes to the hafshata and halbosha of chassidus, to the 
infinite abstractions and infinite relevance of uh, of Chassidus and of the Rebbe in our lives. Before we wrap up here, I just feel like it's the logical continuation or conclusion here. As I said, I think a, a theme emerged from all the different points. In fact, that is the theme. The theme is that from all the different points, there's an essence. Whether it's Havshot, the Halbasha, abstraction, the concrete, the halachic, the mystical, uh, the infinite, the finite, the spiritual, the material, the philosophical, the practical. Like we've spoken about all of these paradoxes and how ultimately they're all they're all in one line. They're all one straight shot, one DNA, one essence. I think after the few hours we spent bringing that out, maybe, just maybe, there's enough of a background and the, 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 the time, the setting might be right to properly convey what Mashiach means. Because there's no word in Judaism or in the world that's more misunderstood than Mashiach. And I think when, when we spent a few hours talking about this dichotomy and this paradox, this nimnohan nimnois, I think maybe, maybe you could speak about Mashiach. So what's, what's coming up for you? Just to find it in a sentence or two, what, uh, what's coming up for you? I feel like the, 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 the people get lost in trying to compartmentalize. First of all, this, this unseen thing, nobody's ever lived through it. No one's ever experienced it. So what is it, you know? And I think people try to define it. And, and some define it as an end to their personal problems. Some define it as the ultimate revelation of, 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 of godliness. Some look at it with, 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 with dread of some, you know, theocratic monarchy. And <laughs> it, 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 some of it, some look at it as a supernatural era of, of the resurrection of the dead. You know, it's like, how do you define it? How do you put a label on it? And, and I think that it takes a lot, you know, like you said before, it takes, you have to know a hundred Maimotim to learn one Maimotim. You have to talk for hours about these paradoxes to be able to intelligently utter the word Mashiach without it meaning exactly what it doesn't mean. Yeah, I'll tell you a little uh, story with Rabbi Ayel. The year that the Rebbe passed was 1994. We were learning. We were older yeshiva boys. I wasn't married at the time. And naturally, I don't have to elaborate on this. It was a very confusing and painful and disturbing and difficult time. And that year was fraught with a lot of challenges and fragmentation and arguments and debates. You know, naturally, Rebbe Oyel, some people were upset at him. So... He then spent a lot of time teaching us. 
And we would go to uh, the, the Koilul building that was empty, and he would give us a lot, a lot of classes that year. I learned a lot from him that year. He would just teach Sichis and Maimarim, Samachvav and Ayim Beis, and uh, versed a lot, a lot of the Rebbe's teachings. Anyway, once it was the yard site of the Alter Rebbe, I think, Chavdala Tevis, probably 95, 90, yeah, probably. And he was sitting and he told us a story. He told us the following story, such a moving story, he said. By the way, Rabbi Yoel was saturated with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of Hasidic stories. They wouldn't always come out in the classes, only when he had to choose a story to articulate his message. And I told you, he didn't look for stories for entertainment, but he was really a reservoir of of of, of Hasidic shemaisas, of stories, of, of anecdotes, and of melodies, of negunim. He would sing... Uh, Sing very, very beautifully and very inspiring Nagunim. He knew, he knew many, many of the melodies. He had a very, uh, deep sensitivity to, to Nagina, to, to, to Hasidic melodies. Extremely deep sensitivity to it, to the nuance of it. In any case, so he was sitting with us and he says, you know, after the fourth Chabad Rebbe passed away, the Rebbe Maharash, um, uh, the Rebbe Rashab took over, but it took him 12 years. So 12 years, Chabad was without a Rebbe. This is 1882. There was an older brother, Rebbe Zalman Aaron, who didn't want it, and the Rashab didn't want it. And he says, Rosh Hashanah, sometimes there was barely a minion. Nobody came, you know, there was no action. <laughs> the Lubavitcher Rebbe, Rebbe Shmuel, passed away in 1882. There was no new Rebbe. So there was really, you know, the Rebbe Rashab did his thing, and he, he said some Maimarim, but he didn't officially accept the mantle of leadership. So it was very, you know, there was not a lot of happening. Very, very small crowd came for Shabbos, for Yom Tif, to the town of Lubavitch in Belarus. And Rabbi Yael said, two of the old chassidim, who were still by the Tzamech Tzedek, met in Lubavitch. And one of them, one of them started to cry, you know, nostalgia. You know, the good old days. Tzamech Tzedek, Tzamech Tzedek, they said, had a half a million chassidim. Not that they all came in one time, but the whole Russia, the whole Russia was filled with his disciples and students and, and people who were inspired by him. And now, after the Rebbe Maharaj passed away, you know, a few, a few decades later, there's, there's very little going on. And the other Chassid looked at him and said, you know, don't, don't put, you know, don't, don't think this story, it's not, what do they say? It's not over till it's all over. It's going to be very good. Anyway, they both met a few decades later. The Rebbe Rashab, the fifth Lubavitch Rebbe, assumes leadership and he builds Lubavitch Chabad into a glorious spiritual empire of, of avoida, of learning and of davening and of, and of leadership. The Rebbe Rashab became one of the extraordinary leaders of Russian Jewry. He builds a yeshiva with hundreds and hundreds of students during a time when secularism was was abducting the souls of millions of Jewish youths. And in all the yeshivas in Lithuania, there were, there were a few thousand students. And he built a beautiful, amazing yeshiva time, and in the early 1900s, it was, it was pulsating with, 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 with hundreds and hundreds of souls and guests. And these two old Hasidim come back together to Lubavitch. And they see hundreds of young people inspired, invigorated, learning from the Rebbe. And Abiel tells us, one of them turns to the other, and he said, I argued with you then. I told you that it's going to be good, right? I told you it's going to be good. But even I, the optimist, the believer, 
didn't imagine that it's going to be so good. I never imagined. And Abiyah looked at all of us. And this is a few months after the Rebbe's, after Gimel Tammuz, after the Rebbe's passing. And you know, this was, everybody was broken and, and, and confused. And Abiyah himself was not having an easy time for obvious reasons. You know, his whole life was, was upended. And he looked at us and he says, I'm not telling you it's going to be good. <laughs> I'm telling you it's going to be so good that I can't even imagine that it's going to... I can't. Like that chassid said, I, I knew it's going to be good, but so good I didn't imagine. So Biel said, you know, Mashiach is going to come. He said, and it's going to be so good in a way that nobody of us, no, no, nobody, nobody imagined. And, you know, I think part of that, part of what he was saying... And the Rebbe wrote this in a letter to the second president of Israel, Yitzchak ben Svi, that if Mashiach is going to have to be the moment that we're going to be able to look at Golos and say, aha, it makes sense. It means that the Mashiach that we're imagining doesn't even scratch the surface of the real Mashiach, doesn't even begin to capture it. Because I want to ask you a question, Rabbi Shais. Can you imagine the most beautiful world that justifies Six million deaths. Can you imagine the most amazing, incredible utopia that justifies so much trauma and suffering for 2,000 years? And the answer is no, I can't. I can't. I'm sorry, I can't. So what is it going to be about Mashiach that we're going to look back and say, as the Novi Yeshaya says in chapter 11, the Aftar of Achron Shal Pesach, On that day, we're going to say thank you to Hashem. What is going to happen? And the answer is, I don't know, but I realize that everything I understand about Mashiach doesn't even begin to scratch the surface of what Geula means. There's something in Geula that is is so powerful and so authentic that it's going to actually allow you and me and all of us to look back at 2,000 years of Jewish history and say, ah, for this, it was worth it. Now what? Free tuition? No shidduch crisis? Great, I'm game, I'm happy. <laughs> no problem with, with, with finances, with illness, with corona, with, with, with cancer. I'm, I'm game, I'm in. It's wonderful, it's incredible, it's beautiful. <laughs> no Sahara. I'm game. But are we really, are we really understanding it? And the answer is we're still looking at Mashiach from a gullus paradigm. When I think Mashiach, I'm stuck in exile, and I'm imagining from my gullus, my gullus paradigm, gula. Can I really, really, can I really emancipate myself now and think about Mashiach from a gula perspective? You have to know a lot about Mashiach in order to think about Mashiach as you should think about Mashiach. You already have to have a foretaste of this to really be able to open yourself up to just uh, another dimension of reality and really not be defined by spiritual trauma, by physical trauma, by emotional trauma, including including the trauma of Gullus, and really open ourselves up to something that we really have a hard time opening ourselves up to. 2,000 years of Gullus have convinced us that this is our place. It's probably one of maybe the most important revolutionary idea of the Rebbe that our job is to emancipate ourselves from the mindset of Gullus 
and open ourselves up to the mindset of Gula. And you know how much fear there is in that, my friends? You think it's simple, right? Oh, Mashiach, yeah, there'll be free sushi and free tuition. Do you know how challenging that is? Do you know how much insecurity and resistance I have to really go into a, go into a space of Gula where I don't need Gullus anymore? I don't, I could let go of my Gullus attachments and paradigms? So yes, that's, uh, <laughs> That's that's a big one. That's 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 our challenge. This is our opportunity. And and yet the paradox is that when Gula comes, it doesn't just get rid of Gullus. <laughs> you know, like they never said, putting the Aleph into the Gula create the Gula. That's it. It's it's redefining Gula. It's lifting up Gula. It's it's re it's 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 revisiting Gula from a Gula perspective. It's the old, that's everything. the ultimate. That's the ultimate paradox. That yeah. if it were just to fast forward to the end, why'd you put me through the torture? Yeah. yeah. But that somehow, it's it's taking all the trauma and revealing that this itself is your greatest opportunity to touch the divine and to shine. And, and, and I would argue that this idea is so deep and so intellectually demanding that without immersing oneself in chassidus to the best of one's ability, each one to their own ability, but without immersing yourselves in the nuanced thinking of chassidus, Mashiach is almost, a, dare I say, a meaningless word. Because it doesn't mean what we think it means until we're ready to approach it with this sophistication and this depth. And yet, paradoxically, with simplicity. Sophistication, simplicity. And how do you convey that? How do you convey that in a a slogan, in a a, a tweet for 2021, where everybody wants something condensed into into a vort? Yeah, yeah. Um, I once heard from the Rebbe, I think this is Beshalach 84, Memdalad. <laughs> the allegory, the illustration still, I, I see it. I could see it with my eyes. The Rebbe is describing a Jew who has a red handkerchief. Those are his words. And it's tied around his neck because it's Shabbos and he can't carry. There's no Erev. So it's tied around his neck. And, but, He's a, he's a gentleman, so he doesn't tie, some people tie it around their neck. He, you know, he has it in his house, he has it in his locker, he has it in his shul, and he says, Mashiach comes. And Mashiach says, let's go to Eretz Yisrael to build a base of Mikdash. And the Jew says, I can't let go of my red handkerchief. <laughs> and Mashiach says, forget your red handkerchief, let's go to the Gula. He says, but what's going to be with my red handkerchief? And I was a kid. And I couldn't understand who cares about a red handkerchief. Like, and the Rebbe kept on talking about this red handkerchief. Of course, today I understand that this was the most profound metaphor. You know, who of us does not have the red handkerchief, that handkerchief that I need to scratch my nose, (laughs) to get rid of my dirt, my survival skills, my handkerchiefs, my comfort zones, that which I use to ease my pain and to numb my stress and my paradigms that I have built and my attitudes and my relationships. And for the Rebbe, it was all a red (laughs) handkerchief, 
a red handkerchief. You'll analyze why it was red. On, on Rosh Hashanah, he used to use a red handkerchief for the shofar. Whatever, probably some deep Kabbalistic ideas about gvura and, and, and redness. I'm not sure. I have to go back to the Sikh. I'm talking now from memory, 1984. I was uh, before Bar Mitzvah. But uh, the Rebbe was Get out of Golos. Get out of Golos. And I was a kid, and I was thinking to myself, I don't have a problem. I'm, if Mashiach comes, I'm going. But I was 10 years old. I was 10 years old. That's why it's good to be 10 years old. Today, when I'm a little older, I'm still 10 years old in some ways, it's not the physical red handkerchief. It's my emotional red handkerchief. What an illustration. You know, my emotional, my hang-ups, my obsessions. But I don't call them hang-ups. They're survival skills for me. This is my MO. This is my modus operando. But it's stuck. It's based on, it's based on limiting stories. It's based on pain. It's based on anxiety. It's based on the fear that I'm weak, that I'm small, that I can be abused, that I can be tarnished. Can I open myself up to the opportunity of living in a different paradigm and seeing myself and yourself and ourselves as as divine ambassadors to the world who are indestructible, invincible, filled with infinite possibility and infinite potential. And yet there's still a lot of pain in the world. We're all confronting pain. And the ability to be able to incorporate that, not ignore it, yet see ourselves as mysterious ambassadors of a mysterious God, who are here as his messengers to heal the pain and unite the world is our task. Now you're getting to something deep. Oh, I thought the, I thought you mean the, the everything till now was the appetizer. This is the warm up. You're talking about an identity of a Jew as someone who has the power to bring healing to the world. That not just are things going to be good, that it's going to end up good for the Jews. But this very empowering thought, not just that I'm impervious to the damage that's being leveled at me, but that I'm I'm the healer. I'm the healer. Yeah. This, this this is this is much deeper than we normally think. Even when we speak about neshama, we speak about chelak mamish. So we think about it in terms of okay. So you, you you can you can transcend. You can rise above. You're you're untouchable. This is more than that. This is and you've come here. And you can bring healing to the world. So not just the world can't change you. Much more than that. You are here to change the world. Yeah. And, and, and dare I say, on a deeper level, it's not just what you're giving to the world. It's what you're giving to your creator. And that's deep stuff. And that requires intellectual maturity to even touch that kind of discussion. It's very, it's very deep stuff. It's another 
fundamental idea of the Rebbe, particularly expressed in a famous Sikha of Matas Masse, Tovshin Membez, 82, 1982, printed in Lekutei Sikhas, volume 23, Parshas Matas Masse, Menachem of, and in many others, but there is one of the fundamental points. And he says something so startling and so inspiring. He says the month that we're in is called Menachem of, we comfort the Father. It's not called of Menachem, the Father comforts us. We comfort the Father. And then he says these words, I'm, I'm saying it in English, obviously, that I'm explaining it the way I understood it, that Hashem is our Father, and Hashem is divinity, and Hashem is godliness, and Hashem is holiness, and Hashem is goodness. But who are we? We are the The Gemara says in Shavuos Memches, the child who surpasses the father. How? That itself is because the child captures and embodies the essence of the father that transcends even the consciousness of the father. Rabbi Yoel once explained to us, he was teaching this idea to us. Rabbi Yoel says, why is it that parents care for, and this touched me deeply because he didn't have children biologically, and he had gave this illustration. He said, why is it that the greatest artist cherishes his painting, but it doesn't come close to the way he cherishes his children, even though he invested much more in his paintings in terms of time and money and space and years. And Rabbi Yoel told us, he said, because your painting is your maisa, it's your action, it's your energy, it's your creativity, it's your wisdom, it's your resources, it's your talent. He says, your child is your etzem hanefesh. Your child is the essence that, that you don't even know about. It's beyond your knowledge, it's beyond your consciousness. But in your child, you see a self that you don't see in yourself, but you see it in your child. Your child brings out parts of you that you would never be aware of because your child captures the essence that transcends awareness. This is what Rebiel would explain to us from the Rebbe and previous Rebbes. So the Rebbe's idea is that we are the part of God, so to speak, that is deeper than the Father. So the Father, Hashem is the Father, is, is, is so sad by Golos. And we, the child, who are embodying, embodying Hashem's essence, Hashem's essence, like a child embodying the Father's essence, can go down into that darkness and look at our father and say, it's going to be all right. We can embrace our father. We can comfort our father. Say, it's going to be all right. And in that sense, we bring out the true essence of Hashem, which can see in the deepest darkness the light. And only the Jewish soul can do this. If you send down any other spiritual creature, They'll get lost in the darkness. They'll become devastated. The Yiddish Neshama and the Yiddish Guf, which is the deepest essence of Hashem, is the part of Hashem that He, so to speak, sends down into the most difficult place. Like we are the God that comes to places that godliness will not go to. Godliness will remain high above. The Jew will come down into the worst places because he could, she could. And we will become the healers. And we will say, don't worry. We're here. The truth of Hashem is going to prevail. And we comfort the Father. And there, of course, the Rebbe adds in his Sicha, because the Rebbe never liked when these words were taken out of context. He says, and this is the idea that's articulated in Nigla, in Masech Baba Metziah, Daf Pei Dalad. 
Rabbi Yeshua looks at the heavenly voice and says, Sorry, we don't listen to God's voices. Torah is not in heaven. Halach is here. And Rabbi Yosser, Rabbi Yonasim meets Eliyahu and says, what did Hashem do when Rabbi Yeshua rejected his voice? And the Gemara says, Eliyahu Anavi said, God started to laugh. And he said, My children have triumphed over me. My children have been victorious over me. So here the Rebbe adds in that sicha, we see in Gemara, a clear idea. Hashem has a voice. The Jew argues with the voice. And Hashem says, my children were victorious over me. Really? We won Hashem? Really? How exactly? With our minds that come from God? The answer is, the child articulates the essence of the father that can't even be articulated in the voice that comes out from heaven. And that's why we come for the Father. Now, in terms of, of what that means today, as you say, it's not just deep. It's, it's the blueprint for healing. Because you know this well, so many of us are dealing with trauma and abuse and pain and anxiety and stress with themselves, with marriages, with children, with grandchildren fear and insecurity globally, locally, internally, externally. And and it's true. And everyone needs to be able to pursue the path of healing that works with courage, with acceptance, with compassion, with love, with support, with resolve. Don't be afraid of your emotions and of your trauma. You're bigger than it. But you're not just bigger than it. You're not just bigger than it. It's much more than that. You are not ever, ever traumatized. You are absolute, pure, infinite godliness that was sent into these places because you're the only one, you are the only one who can be trusted with taking these experiences and redefining them from exile into redemption. And I would argue that these ideas aren't just intellectually enthralling, which they are, but they are absolutely vital. And I don't think that anyone in the world today has the luxury not to be acquainted with, with these ideas. And uh, I think it's the responsibility of everyone who's studied Chassidus, anyone who's been a Talmud of Reb Yoel, anyone who has tried to internalize these ideas as best they can. I think it is an individual responsibility of everyone who has done this work to whatever level they've done it to communicate this message with whatever platform you have to communicate this to the world, because uh, this is, this isn't just, uh, this isn't for fun. This isn't for play. This is literally life-saving, and I don't believe that this message can be found anywhere else. I don't believe there's a substitute for it. And it's easy, like we've been speaking about the past few hours, it's easy to hear these ideas and to say, oh, it's deep philosophy, it's mysticism, it's, it, it's profound spirituality. It's easy to, that's dismissive. Yes, it's all of that, and at the same time, it is the most practical, most essential, most critical information for, for, 
literally saving lives. And, and I think we have to have the, the courage to present these ideas with that level of urgency. That's, that's my commentary for tonight. Yeah. I, uh, I second that, and I think it's really, uh, it behooves us to be able to go into this place, and much more than intellectually, but really viscerally, with our flesh, because the great accomplishment of Mashiach is not an idea, and not even an emotion, but something that, that the flesh, the visceral uh, human being, will naturally and organically be a channel for this truth i think i think it's i think it's worthwhile to conclude our uh, fabrengen with that famous sikh of the rebbe that he said sukkas tafshin khafalov 1960 later printed in lakute sikhs volume 20 yutas kislov sikha and he spoke about two purposes of learning khsidis based on a talk that he heard from his father-in-law. One is, chesidus is like going to mine for coal. And one is, chesidus is delving into the depths of the seas to find pearls. And he said, coal helps you warm your home and ignite your home. Pearls is basically jewelry to enhance your looks and make you look beautiful. And he said, chesidus has two purposes. One is, chesidus gives you warmth. It's a cold world out there. People are apathetic and indifferent and we're lazy and we have struggles and we have cravings. And Chassidus warms you and inspires you and it gives you light and vision and perspective. And he said, that's beautiful and that's necessary and it's vital. And just like you breathe oxygen every day and you eat every day, you don't rely on yesterday's oxygen and yesterday's food. You need Chassidus every day to feed you and nourish you. And by the way... <laughs> The Rebbe then was one of the few times that he mentioned his name while he was talking. The Rebbe would not mention his name often, but sometimes he did. And you realize that this, in this talk that he was talking, not only to the crowd, but to himself, he started to say, it's not enough that there's a person who knows thousands of Maimorim and he repeats them and he knows them by heart and he explains them. And then he, st- he said his name. He said, it's not enough that Mendel Schneerson yesterday learned this. And you realize, I suddenly, when I heard the tape, I realized that the Rebbe, when he was talking to the audience, he was actually, first and foremost, just talking to himself. Because I never understood sometimes the Rebbe would speak about such lofty levels and people barely understood what he's talking about. Then I saw he's talking to himself and also to the audience. And then he said there's a second aspect of chassidus, and that's pearls. It's not in order to inspire you, just to inspire you or inform you. It's really not about self-enhancement or self-realization. It's really to celebrate your intimate oneness with God, because you're one with Him, and therefore you're the most beautiful and exalted soul, so you have the best jewelry. Chassidus is an invitation to swim in divine awareness and divine consciousness without self, without any agendas, without any spiritual agendas, without any uh, rewards, without even spiritual accomplishments. It's simply, it's not even going into the earth, it's going into the water. It's not going into the place where the self-consciousness is going into the water where you completely become invisible. And he said it used to be that we could speak about the coals because we have to inspire ourselves. He says, but now we're getting ready for the chuppah. And for the chuppah, the kala has to be dressed up beautifully. So he says, now is the time, Daloi Galos, get dressed up. 
put on the jewelry and realize that you deserve, you owe it to yourself to learn chassidus just for the sake of learning chassidus, just to experience God, just to be intimate with God, with no other agendas. You know, the, the metaphor I would simply give is, you know, you have a marriage, a relationship, let's talk so that our lives should be able to become better and I could do things for you and you could do things for me. And then there's a much deeper relationship. I just want to be with you. That's it. You want to be with me. There's nothing else. There's no, I just want to be with you, being together in safety and security and vulnerability. And uh, Rabbi Oyel, I think, embodied for us um, such a life he never stopped learning, he never stopped thinking, he never stopped teaching, he never stopped being submerged and breathing 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, chsidus, more chsidus, and more chsidus, and more chsidus. The well was infinite, the curiosity was infinite, the commitment was infinite, and the joy was infinite. And he taught us to not only see it as the coals in life, or the coal in life, but also as the pearls not just for an agenda, he would sometimes tell the Bachel, just learn, just learn, just lose yourself in the learning. Just lose yourself, go into that world and allow yourself to become submerged in the waters of the divine. As the Rambam concludes his words, the Matzi and the Enei Matzi in the beginning of the Rambam become fused at the end of the Rambam, where he says the world, the earth, will be filled with the knowledge of Hashem like the water covers the sea. So you have the fusion. The earth, planet earth, where we are self-conscious, will become filled with the divine knowledge, like water, like the water covers the sea. May we experience that speedily, speedily in our days and in our consciousness. Okay. Well, we... uh went a little bit over the hour that we planned. <laughs> so uh, I guess we got to do it again sometime. Continue talking about these ideas, the coals and the pearls, the life-saving aspect of it, the coals, and also the just the beauty of truth. knowing God a little bit better. The joy, the truth, the ecstasy, the oneness. Yeah. And the truth is we can get to the pearls by going through the coals because... If I go into the pearls because I'm trying to escape my my pain, I'm never experienced. The, I'm never experiencing the pleasure because I'm in a state of avoidance. In other words, if I'm running to be with you because it's too hard for me to be with me, I'm not even being with you. I'm just trying to avoid me. So I think we all have to remember that we have to really be able to embrace and respect our pain and find a way to emancipate ourselves from being controlled by it so that we can give ourselves the freedom and the luxury to be uninhibited and to just fall in to the divine embrace without blockages, without needing to avoid anything. So in simple English, we have to learn chassidus. Well, you want to trace this back to the Bioloso? No. <laughs> Avoidance and uh, the difference yeah. between av- <laughs> between avoiding pain <laughs> yeah. and 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 dealing with pain. Yeah, yeah. The Bioyel would describe this. He wouldn't again. He used his own terminology and his own words and his own vocabulary. But I think in his words, this was very much the difference between 
makifim and pnimim, which means in a much higher level. Makif is when something is not really integrated inside of me. I'm not ready to go there. I let things float above me. I make sure they remain in the ethereal, in the nebulous, in the heavenly. Makif means they're at the peripheral. They maybe surround me. They sometimes overwhelm me. But I will never allow them to go inside of me. They will never become part of me. I don't know how to integrate them. I don't even have that ability to do that. So I just, you know, it's something above, inspirational. I could never be really, really honest, really thorough, really scrutinize who I am and really integrate it. And uh, Rabbi Yoel, in his own way, taught us that makifim is, is, is a very impoverished experience. It sounds good, but it's really coming from the inability to embrace me, the inability to make peace with who I am. It's what we call avoidance. It just has a very nice spiritual name, and we use sometimes spirituality to escape. Pnimi is that ability to be able to talk about me, be vulnerable, integrate it, uh, address what's disturbing me, what's blocking me, and finding a way of emancipating myself from my own inner prison. And then... From the pnimi, I can go to the makif, which means I can really transcend myself, but not from a place of avoidance, but from a place of, of intimacy. And then in makif, I can go from makif hakarev to makif harochek. Makif hakarev is the view of harava, where it's above, it's makif, but it's still, you know, connected to my comfort zones. <laughs> and makif harochek is the distance, the aloofness that completely transcends me, where I really allow myself to become a conduit for infinity, and I don't have to deal with self-consciousness anymore. And from there, I can bring it back down again. The job. And then, and then I can go everywhere. Then I can go everywhere because oh, then Osha, my trauma... Abstract, I can concrete, no, theoretical, practical. Because then my trauma is just an invitation for awareness. And that's where healing happens. In other words, when my trauma is not me, when my trauma is just an invitation for awareness, for working something through, for removing toxicity, for finding the light and the vulnerability, for making me humble and real. So then the trauma is... Or even say it more, like you did before, that it's the opportunity to heal the Father. It's the opportunity to heal the Father. It's the opportunity to to confront that which nobody besides you and I can confront and not fall apart, but stay there and believe in your infinite ability to transform into light. And then you can go everywhere. You can go, you can go everywhere. Um, uh, Rabbi Yol would repeat, uh, this is already my days, when I was a kid, the Rebbe gave a Yutas Kislev 1980 talk about Yosef, Yosef Hurad Mitzrayma, Yosef descended to Egypt, and the Medrash says Hurad comes from the word Vyeud Miyamad Yom. He ruled. 
He didn't go down to Egypt. He ruled Egypt because, of course, by going down, he became the prime minister. And the Rebbe says, come on. At this point, he went down. He was not ruling Egypt. He was a slave. He was a prisoner. It took many years from the age 17 till the age 30. <laughs> took many years till he ruled Egypt. And the Rebbe says, there's one more interpretation in Medrash. Hurad, you could also read as Hurid. He brought down the Shekhinah with him. And the Rebbe, in his inimitable style, says the first two interpretations become fused by the third. Because the moment you bring down the Shekhinah with you, the meaning, the moment I see, I never went down. God went down through me. God is going down through me. So then I'm not going down anywhere. I'm going to rule. <laughs> I'm not going down. I'm going to rule. What do you mean? But you're a slave. You're a prisoner. You're a traumatized victim. You're an abused victim. Your brothers threw you into a pit. You're not a ruler. You're a victim. Not in Yosef's mind. I'm not a victim. I was put here. I was sent here. I'm working with God. I'm the Shechina here. Shechina is not a victim. The purpose is that I should ultimately become a ruler by working through the darkness and transforming it into light. And then I'm, I was always a king, even from the first moment. But I'm not a detached king. I'm the king who is a nobleman and a prince and an aristocrat and a royal person, even in the depths of the abyss, because I'm the divine ambassador <laughs> into these places. Now, it's so hard to take this seriously, isn't it? It, it's not that it's hard to take it seriously. I think it's scary to trust that it's true. Because this is what I'll just say from, from my own perspective. It's not that it's hard to take it seriously, like I'm incredulous about it. I think it's 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 the personal risk, it's the vulnerability. Like if all of this is true, what are the implications? <laughs> In other words, if all of this is true, I can't blame my mother. <laughs> I can't blame my mother. What do I do? Oh yeah, yeah. You can't blame your father, you can't blame your mother, you can't blame your brother, you can't blame your sister. You can't even blame your teacher. You can't blame your principal. You can't even blame the system. Exactly. So what do you do? All my survival skills are gone. This is my survival skill. I blamed you. I blamed her. I avoided the pain. I created a substitute self, a shell, a compensation for the real self because it was too painful. And now you're like, you can go back there and redefine it and go out from Golos to Gula. But it's so hard to trust because our amygdala, sorry for that expression. I didn't, I didn't hear it. We'll give the Rabiel version of it in a minute. <laughs> right, the Rabiel version was not amygdala. But our amygdala, of course, the reptilian brain, as they like to call it. Nefesh Bahamas. Bahamas, very good. Nefesh Bahamas, that's Rabiel. The reptilian brain, it's a reptile. It's a Nefesh Bahamas, it's a reptile. Nose, fight, or flight. Either run away <laughs> or be aggressive, or just freeze, detach, space out. <laughs> don't, don't become alive because your emotions are dangerous. And, and, and we remain stuck there. We, we, we really remain stuck there. And Alter Rebbe, in the whole Tanya, 
every chapter speaks with tremendous compassion to that part and says it exists and it may exist for many years. Don't worry about it. But you're never ever a slave of your reptilian identity. You're never ever a slave. You really have that ability to escape your fear and insecurity. You know, Rabbi Chase, I did get an email a few days ago from somebody and he writes to me that he used to learn chassidus, but he stopped. And the reason is because he's suffering from terrible trauma and he did not find anywhere in chassidus a source that would really address his trauma. The only ones who addressed his trauma were secular therapists and psychologists and healers. And he says, and that's the key issue of my life. So I stopped learning this material. Um, I read the letter and it was very sad for me to hear because I think, and correct me, maybe there's a different way of saying this, but I don't know that there's one chapter in Tanya that is not addressing trauma. Yes, he does not use the word uh, trauma. He does not use the word abuse. He does not use the word uh, insecurity. He does not use the word self-loathing. He does not use those words. But I don't see even one chapter in Tanya where the Alter Rebbe is not empowering a person and invigorating a person and showing you and teaching you and helping you breathe in this truth that there's no trauma in the world ever that can define you, stifle you, and control you. I'm sure you'd agree that there is a great need for more translation. As yeah. much as we've accomplished in Havatsasamayonis, as much as we live in unprecedented times, there's still look, if one person is still suffering and doesn't know where to find his answer in Chsidis, that itself is the biggest proof that there's not adequate translation and that we need to translate more. Right. And I think also people are often confused about the balance between, you know, going to therapy or having a good support system in the therapeutic community and and the teachings of Yiddishkeit, the teachings of Torah, the teachings of Chassidus that address it as though there is a contradiction here. And, and this is the whole night we're talking about the fact that contradictions aren't contradictions. So, so, so there's really, it's, it's so important to understand there's really no contradiction here, like really no contradiction here. Of course, sometimes you need a good healer, a good doctor, a good therapist, a good teacher, a good mentor, a good confidant, a good <laughs> wife. Huh? If, 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 you don't, if you don't eat a piece of cake in the morning and then you want to go learn this and think for hours and then go daven, it's not going to work. Right, you have to. Yeah, you have to fuel the body. You have to. You yeah, know, your, your blood today, sugar. Today it's not a piece of cake. Today it's green juice or or cucumbers. Okay, whatever, <laughs> whatever floats your boat. But the point right. is, you tend to that that physical need in order to be able to be receptive to spiritual life. Right. So if I'm living in a place of trauma, and then I open a chapter of Tanya or a Sikha or a Maimer. I hate to say this, I'm going to filter it through my trauma, which means I will not understand the word. Until, until my body has been soothed and grounded, just like soothed. I needed to 
eat the piece yeah. of cake if my blood sugar is yeah. and, and just like if, somebody's, if somebody has a cardio problem challenge, a neurological challenge, you're not going to say, oh, we don't go to a cardiologist, we don't go to a neurologist. That's ridiculous. Sometimes I have to heal myself. Sometimes I need a lot of help with that. Sometimes I need some external methodology or internal methods, whatever it may be. And today there's a lot of stuff coming up, so you should go to the best and the brightest and find out because a lot of things are available out there. And um, on the contrary, this opens us up. And I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, I once heard this from, I think I heard this from Reb Chaim Shalom Deitch, may he be well, from Jerusalem in Hadditch. He was talking about, it was the yard set of the Alter Rebbe, and he said that the Alter Rebbe says in the introduction of Tanya that everything he writes in Tanya is basically transcripts of conversations he had with Hasidim privately. And his, his, his terms, the, the, the words of the Alter Rebbe are, there was a conversation of love that, tra- that transpired between us and they revealed to me all the secrets of their heart and their minds. So Chaim Shalom said these words and I really cherish them. He said, if you read through a chapter in Tanya, even one line in Tanya, and you do not hear a conversation of love going on, you did not learn the chapter of Tanya. You got to re reboot your system. Why is Dalton Rebbe writing about his private conversations with people and that he liked them and he loved them and they loved him? He's writing a book. Come on. It's not about your diary. The answer is he's telling you that all these conversations, every piece of advice that I have given was based on one premise, absolute love and affection. I love you. I believe in you. I cherish you. I want your best. And these are people who told me everything. And from a place of love, I responded. So if there's one chapter in Tanya, whether it's chapter 14 or chapter 43, (laughs) whether it's chapter 27 or it's chapter 39, and these are demanding chapters. <laughs> these are intense chapters, as you could study in the Rabbi Shays Taub's Tanya map. Every line of Tanya is pulsating and saturating with infinite love. And I don't know that there is healing in life, like the healing when you're sitting at the feet of somebody who is gushing forth infinite divine love to you and faith much not only in God, but in your ability to be that channel for the divine. And if I'm not seeing that in the words, okay, that's fine. I don't have to judge myself, but I have to ask myself, what is sitting in me? There's something sitting in me that is uh, obstructing that flow. And you know what? I bet you there are people listening to this and saying, why did they hijack a program about Rabbi Yoel, and they're talking about trauma and therapy, and all this stuff has nothing to do... <laughs> nothing to do with Rabbi Yoel. Nothing. Nothing to do with Rabbi Yoel. This is Rabbi Shays Taub hijacking and abducting another show about trauma, like all your other shows with, with Melly. Who did you do a show with? with uh, who's the... Sub- People can find it. They can find it. Whoever wants to find it can find it. Okay. So here we go. Suddenly the Bioil became a trauma healer. When for for, for 91 years, he didn't know what the word trauma means. Now you're uh, hijacking him for your agenda. For your agenda of traumas. So, uh, okay. So first of all... The point, the, the, point, the point is well taken, and I understand the perspective. 
And truth be told, probably at an earlier stage of my life, I would have maybe um, professed the same perspective. Uh, you mean you would have been the guy saying it? Maybe, maybe at a certain stage. I mean, uh, I, yeah, I, maybe. Uh, you know, I guess it depends which mood or state of consciousness I was in. How, idealist, how idealistic I was that day. But how much cake I ate that morning. So I, I, I understand it. I understand it. And sometimes I can even respect it a little bit because there's something special about Puritans. There's something special about people who uh, who are not ready to allow anything to be tarnished with secular language. On the other hand, I would say emphatically, words I once heard from the Rebbe of Abrengen, this was Yutas Kislev, and he said, and I quote in Yiddish, I heard it on a tape, Yutas Kislev, 1966, Tavshin the Sicha of Kuntrus in Yanush on the essence of Chassidus, Yutas Kislev 65, not 66, the end of 65, and the Shabbosim after, which Rabbi Yoel wrote up. It's called On the Essence of Chassidus, Kuntus and Yanush Chassidus. Rabbi Yoel wrote that, and he taught it to us. It was a ma- ma- amazing classes. What is Chassidus? This is the Rebbe said, Yutas Kislev 1965. If you listen to the to the MP3, to the t- used to be the tape. Today it's the MP3. I don't know what it's going to be tomorrow, but it used to be the tape. I had every tape of the Rebbe in my dining room, like 1,500 tapes, albums. And then in a day, it was all, you can get it like on a little SD card. Right? I had, I paid thousands of dollars. I had like albums. Every, it was very impressive, white, beautiful albums that I wrote on with my pen over. And it was great. It was my whole dining room, like the top of my dining room. And then in a day, it was like on one one SD card. It was like pretty insulting. You know what I mean? I had all these tapes and and I had it all, and it was like on an SD card. And then, and then I get a message from Shalom Mardechai Rabashkin in prison. He was put into prison then, right? And they don't allow MP3s. They don't allow MP3s. They only allow tape recorders and tapes. So he's asking, does anybody have the Rebbe's recordings on tape recorders? So I take every tape of mine, and I ship it off to Otisville Prison, where Shalom Mardachai is there for seven years, and he gets a job as a chaplain in the synagogue, so it allows him to daven shachris for an extra few hours, and learn Gemara, and learn Shulchan Aruch, and learn this, and learn that, and listen to the Rebbe's tapes. So that's what happened to the tapes. So anyway, I was listening then to the tapes, and Yutas Kislev, the Rebbe says, and I quote, I can't say it's verbatim, but it was pretty verbatim. He says, he said, and that's why our Rebbe's demanded that everything you learn in Chassidus has to be able to be applied to people's lives in a very real way. And if not, if not, you're missing the most essential part of Chassidus. Because if it's real, it has to be real. And if it's just philosophy and it's nice ideas and it's spiritual ideas, it's not real. It's not godliness. If it's real, yes, it can be translated into every language. It can be applied into the most brute and painful situations. And yes, when somebody comes to me or when I come to myself and I'm dealing with deep, visceral, emotional confusion and pain and suffering and trauma, if every Indian Exodus is not applied 
to the real life's questions and lemmas and challenges of a person, I am stripping chassidus from its core. I may be presenting it with glorious intellectual beauty, but I'm stripping it from its core. Because you know what its core is? Its core is not an idea. It's not an idea. Its core is the visceral manifestation of, of real truth, of real healing, of real love, of real infinity. He goes even further. What are you denigrating Torah and calling it a medicine for a sickness, for, 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 for moral sickness? That's the greatness of Torah? Yeah. Yeah. That's where you see the infinity of Torah that it applies to the lowest of human experiences. Right. And if you can't see how the loftiest truth applies to the lowest of human experiences, you're not getting it. Right. The question is, is anybody still up besides you and me? I know that you're up and I know that I'm up. I want to know if anybody else is up. Or we put everybody to sleep. That's my only question. At least, you know, maybe the so, you know, that's worth something. Okay. Which is fine. I told you before, one of the things I learned from the Bioyal was, Rabbi Shays, it mattered completely not how many people were present. I'm telling you. <laughs> you know, I'll be honest with you. Today, like always, people die and people eulogize. And when he was alive, he taught for many years. And sometimes people didn't show up because he was very deep. He was not, uh, I told you, he was not the dramatic theatrical speaker. And he went straight to the text. He was just interested in t- giving you what it says and not trying to impress you. He, you know what it is? He wasn't interested in, in making you feel they have to, that you should invite him again. <laughs> he didn't have that. <laughs> You're a speaker, so you understand what I'm saying, right? The chazonim and the speakers understand what I'm saying. Yeah, every gig no? is marketing for the next. It's for the next. He didn't know what marketing is. He didn't know what a gig is. You ask me to come, I'll say, I'll speak. He said what he said. And he finished it. Uh, I remember once he was speaking about mitzvah, not one person was listening. And he just said, nobody's interested. He sat down and it was over. It was next, next. You know, I would probably have to go to therapy for a while. You know, nobody was listening. Not one person was listening. Not, not one person is intelligent enough to listen. It was off. You know, it was like the impalas, you know, when they get bit by the cheetah and they shake it off for 30 seconds and the trauma is gone. Yeah. It's like a simplicity of, 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 a, of a child. But it was a very unbelievably, I see somebody here on Zoom is lighting their cigarette. It's bringing back memories of Rabbi Yael's classes. It's like, it's like 35 years ago, 30 years ago when he started. <laughs> but Rabbi Yael didn't smoke in many, many years. So uh, he really, it really didn't matter. He could sit down, come to the shir, 7.30 in the morning. I was sitting. I didn't like to miss his classes because they were, I learned a lot from them. But it was early in the morning, very early in the morning in yeshiva, because seven thirty was the time for chesedah. Seven thirty to nine, nine o'clock he got ready for davening. Nine thirty he davened, and then eleven o'clock till seven was gemara for eight hours, gemara and halach, and then eight o'clock he would come back. There was a class of chesedah, eight to nine thirty, and then his ma'ariv, and then you learned on your own or whatever you did, everybody to their own. But he would come off in seven thirty, and guys weren't there, you know. I tried to be there when I was learning then, in time Chetvim in seven seventy. Sometimes another few guys were there. There were two, three guys who were very meticulous, 
And it was completely irrelevant. He would sit down and he would start. And sometimes with three people, the shear was as intense, as brilliant, as profound, as delightful as there were 300 people. Sometimes it was the opposite. With three people, it was much better. <laughs> and the truth is, and again, I, 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 don't, I, I, I don't mean to compare this, um, but one of the things you saw by the Rebbe was, and I heard this from one of the older Hasidim, he said, in 1951, the Rebbe, he saw 1952, he came in for Shabbos. He was there for Shabbos, he was a kid. And the Rebbe put on the tablecloth himself. Imagine, Rebbe Shei said, the Rebbe put the tablecloth for his own fabrengen. Imagine in later years he would put the tablecloth, right? Later years there were a thousand people who would do it. In 1952 he came in and himself he put the tablecloth for Shabbos. There should be a tablecloth. So sometimes it was a very small crowd. Not always. Sometimes they were bigger, but sometimes it was a tiny crowd. You listen to the tapes of those Fabrengans, the same intensity, the same earnestness, the same expansiveness, the same vision as when he's speaking yeah, to 10,000 people and on hookup to another 30,000 people and on cable television, maybe to another 300,000 people. And knowing that at least tens of thousands of people are going to hear at least parts of it, where in other years, earlier years, there's no hookup, there's barely a mic that's not working half the time, and you know there's, there's, there's 30 people sitting or less, and uh, half of them uh, may not even understand what he's talking about. The same earnestness, the same vision, the same depth, the same expansiveness. It's unbelievable. It shows you what says in Chesidus, the Rebbe Rashab has an expression, etzem bilti meshtana, which means the essence doesn't need any validation. It doesn't need any accolades. It doesn't need to uh, impress anybody or anything. It is. It won't change. It, it stands out on its own. It shines because it is. It doesn't shine because people frame it and cast a light on it. Uh, so the atzmi, even when he's in, on his own, when there's nobody there, it's exactly the same as when there's, uh, there's... I have a picture hanging in my house, and people come here, and they never see this picture. It's Tisha B'Av. The Rebbe's sitting on a box with glasses. You know the picture? It's from an angle. He's reading Kinnis. Tishabov on a box with glasses, 1991. So it's not a happy picture. You don't even you see his angle. So people ask me, why do I have it in my house? So it's a very interesting picture. But the story is, my brother asked Friedrich Vyshinsky. You know Friedrich Vyshinsky? He was the Russian artistic, brilliant photographer of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. He did the best pictures. Black and white, brilliant pictures. My brother asked him, Friedrich, what's your favorite picture of the Lubavitcher Rebbe? from the thousands. And he said, this one. The Rebbe is sitting on an angle, reading Kinnis on a box. So my brother says, why? You don't even see his face, you don't see his eyes, you don't see, you know, the the elegance, the beauty, the splendor, the, the refinement on the Rebbe's face. And you know what he told him? <laughs> as an artist, as, as a Russian, he grew up in real Russian communism, he knew the Russians very well. You know, he came from a very secular perspective. And he says, you know why? Because you would never guess from this picture that 5,000 people are looking at him. You know, 
Imagine you're sitting and you know that 10 people are looking at you. Everything changes. And 5,000 people looking at you. You know, your whole self-consciousness is going with sugar. And there the Rebbe is sitting on a box. He says, you would never know there's 5,000 people looking at him. It's like he's in the privacy of his room. In Chesidus, that's called an atzmi. A real, real atzmi. Which means you're always in a place of essence. You're never in a place of... Uh, of impressing anybody, even in a spiritual sense. You're just in a completely true internal space of, of, of atzmius. A lower level, which Hasidim always aspire to, is called pnimius, which means to be authentic, to be natural, to be organic, never to fit in, try to fit in, no social conformity. Don't say things because other people are saying it. Just be real, be truth. The Rebbe Rashab says, a pnimi doesn't compare himself to people who are lower than him. He also never compares himself to people who are higher than him. He's never jealous of them. He never tries to copy them. He never tries to emulate them, even if they're higher than him. Because he has to be authentic. It's a very powerful idea. Uh, so, you know, Rabbi Yael was a pnimi. He was a pnimi. He was, uh, he was a pnimi. He was, he was real. He was authentic. No shtick, no dramas. Uh, you couldn't get him into the world of shtick and dramas. He just didn't uh, acknowledge it, and he had a he had a he had a deep Hasidic soul. What do I mean? He he could sniff out the distinction between between the truth and falsehood. Like he understood real humility. That is, it's 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 not about I'm humble, and fake humility, which is about you know, I'm a very humble man too. I'm not just brilliant, I'm also humble. Anyway, so... Uh, <laughs> What's the Uvechein? Give me homework. Oh, he's saying after we said that everything needs a Bechein, you need a Bechein. Yeah. So if I would ask Rabbi Yoyal, What's the Bechein? Yeah. What's the Bechein? I think Rabbi Yoyal would say... <laughs> Maybe I would say the first thing is, that's what he would say. You got to learn chsidus excessively, excessively as he did. Friday night, he could finish a four, five, six hour meal with the boys, the yeshiva boys or guests, intellectuals who would come, people would come. You know, most people conk out and he would go to the couch with a hemshech tofrish samach vav one of the deepest Hasidic works, and he would study for hours or an Ayim Beis. This was by him very natural. <laughs> so I think that would be the first Obechein. The first Obechein is that people should should learn and not just learn it with agendas, but just really just learn it, learn it and, and, and drown, drown in it, drown in it. Like a mikveh. Lishma with the nefesh hachaim zot. With the nefesh hachaim. In other words, yeah, with a gishmak. But the real gishmak is ultimately is is melting away, you know, in the oinig tainogeliki, which is uh, the divine pleasure. Like you, yeah. you, like you said a few hours ago, it's one it's, thing. The Biel told the Rebbe said it's the same thing. Yeah, very powerful. Um. I think that would be the first Ubechein of Rabbi Yael, because that was his thing. That was uh, that was his his hallmark. You know, Kachinich Siddhis and Lebnich Siddhis. It wasn't that he gave good classes. He gave good classes. It wasn't that he was smart. He was smart. He knew the stuff. He knew how to explain. 
It's that he he had no other life. Most people, good people, were compartmentalized, you know. He had no other life. This was it. You know, 24 hours a day, wherever you would catch him, on Kingston Avenue walking, you know. This was his life. This is what he breathed. So it was like it was it was it was like a baskel. It was like a voice from from a different milieu because it was like the Rebbe once said in a fabrain about my great grandfather Reb Gershon Ber Pahara, who was a chassid of the Tzemach Tzedek, and he said these words. He said Reb Yoel wrote it down. It's from the early years by Reb Gershon Ber Loihoya a description. There was nothing in his world but Torah and Avoid, and nothing else. Yeah, he's speaking about Reb Yoel. You know, people, they build careers. Yeah. They accumulate money. Sometimes for very good reason. They need to support themselves. They want to give charity. They create a family legacy, a family tradition. They create institutions. They create infrastructures, schools. They write books. Whatever it is, each one in their own amazing way. You look at Tribuel. There was no... uh, He wasn't planning infrastructures and creating legacies and investing in in, in this type of reality that they're even spiritual infrastructures. It didn't exist. And you thought about it. It was was very, very inspiring. This doesn't mean that every opinion that he ever had, you know, was never mistaken. It could be he made errors. He was a human being. He was mortal. He had his perspectives and his prisms. But there was something very, very... uh, what should I say? Completely transcendent of, of politics, um, in the sense of like a childlike simplicity of very purity. So I think that's one big obechein to be able to learn chesedus like that and to be able to be like that to, to 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 each one in our own way. And I think the second obechein was Rabbi Yoel. At the end of the day, in the beginning of the day, he was a chassid, which means. He was not Mr. Genius. That was not his thing. He was not, you know, an Einstein or a professor or would have had three PhDs. You know, people ask me if he was a professor in university, what type of mind? Yeah, he would have been great. And they say that Abshleim Kaberman, who was the son-in-law of the Stipler and became the Rosh Hashiva of Ponovich, he was a Chavrusa with Rabbi Yoel in the 1940s in Achet Mimim under Rabbi David Pavarsky, who later went to Ponovich as well. His son, Rebetel, is a Rosh Hashiva today. And Reb Shleim Kaberman, the Rosh Hashiva of Ponovich, who was a genius, and Reb David Pavarsky, the Rosh Hashiva, came home, he would tell his son, Rebetel, he says, I have two geniuses in my class, Reb Shleim Kaberman and Yoel Khan. He says, oh, but Yoel is, Yoel is better. <laughs> Yoel Khan is much better. This is the 1940s. So later, Reb Shleim Kaberman, who goes to Ponovich and in the Litvisha world becomes one of the great uh, Ga'inim, Unfortunately, he, he, he falls ill. He dies, you know, relatively young. But he was a, he's a great mind. And he was a chavrus of Rabiel. And he once said, he said, you know, if Rabiel would have stayed here in Israel and would have come to Panovich, which Rav Kahnman built in Bnei Brak, he would have been one of the top Rosh Hashivas and he would say his own Torah and he would explain a sugi. And today, he's repeating the Torah of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. Rabbi Shlom Kaberman said this about Rabiel. Now, if you would tell this to Rabiel, for him, this would have been the greatest compliment Ripslemka was saying, you know, it's a pity. We had here uh, the top top tier of literature, Rosh Hashivas, maybe one of the top. In term, I told you, he was a brisker. Rebiel was a brisker. Precision, meticulousness, dissection, compartmentalization, definition. There was nobody like him for definitions. Structure. Oh, 
His structures were structures. <laughs> he taught you how to think through a theme. In Gemara, in Nigla, in, in Chsidis, in, in Sugi, in Rambam, in the Rebbe Sicha. Yeah, that's what he taught. But for Rabbi Yol, this was the greatest compliment in the world. The greatest compliment in the world is that he's a conduit for, for the Rebbe's teachings. It was Mamash. I'll tell you something. <laughs> Everything brings up another memory. He once came to Fabreng in Monsi. There was a problem. Rabbi Simcha Werner, who arranged it, wanted an English crowd. Rabbi Yol couldn't speak English. So half the crowd was Yiddish, but half the crowd wouldn't understand. So he asked me to serve as a translator. Okay, so uh, <laughs> I was a bacher. I was a bacher. I never did this. So I sat in a room. Yeah, I had a hookup to Rabbi Yoel. Everybody sat with headsets. And uh, Rabbi Yoel would talk and I would translate in English. Okay. Now, Rabbi Yoel calls me in before. He says, what are you going to do? I said, I'll translate. He says, nah, <laughs> nah. Don't translate what I'm saying. Don't do that. Take the ideas. Yeah? Take the ideas. That's ideas from, from, from the Rebbe, from Chesedus. And you'll develop them. You understand? He was telling me, God forbid, not to translate his words. Like, like, don't take my words, you know, so seriously. Do your own thing with them. Actually, I have to say that I didn't mind translating his words. But for me, it was actually much easier because... I knew the Bioil styles. I heard him for many years. You know, I knew his Yutas Kislev Abrengens. And so, like this, this gave me a luxury, you know, to develop a little bit. And uh, Rebiel was explaining a concept, and it was it was very, very deep. So I, uh, I gave an anecdote just to illustrate it. So half the crowd started to laugh. <laughs> Loud, you know. And Rebiel <laughs> stopped, and he says, what? Why is everybody laughing? Was is the gelechter? You know, why is everybody laughing? But fine, he moved, everybody finds it funny and, and he moved on. But it was really very, uh, it was just touching, you know, he was, for him the greatest privilege was, you know, he found the Rebbe as his Rebbe. It was not easy. Again, people don't understand this. Today the Rebbe is, you know, the Rebbe. The Rebbe is the Rebbe. In 1950, they didn't know who's going to be the Rebbe. There was a question. There were different opinions. And the Rebbe was very, very private. And Rabbi Yoel discovered the Rebbe in a very deep and personal way. And he said, at some point, this is my Rebbe. And I am a student. And like Rabbi Rechber was for Rabbi Chaim in his world, Rabbi Yoel became a real, real student. And that became his life's mission. And therefore, the second Obechein is... That as a chassid, the Biel would always say at Fabrengens, you know, it's not just learning chassidus, it's living chassidus. It's being an emissary, an ambassador for Yiddishkeit, for Torah. It's living the vision of the Rebbe to light up the world, to influence people, to bring in positivity, to uh, bring all of our brothers and sisters closer to their Father in Heaven. Um to saturate the world with Torah and mitzvahs. So Rabbi Yoel always, in, in, you know, he would speak deep stuff, and then at the bottom line, he would always say, you know, learn chassidus, and, and be a conduit for the, for the vision of Hashem to change the world, as the Rebbe taught um, so lovingly and so profoundly for so many years. So I think these two obechains 
are very appropriate. But if you would like to add a Nubachain, as somebody who listens so patiently to uh, the musings, maybe that would be appropriate, and then we could say goodbye. I, I, li- I like it. I like your bottom lines. They're okay. good. That's be a, be a, uh, learn Chassidus and be a Chassid. Or be a Chassid, learn Chassidus. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I o- would also say Chassid comes from the word Chesed. Rebuel was a nice man. He was a kind man. He was a generous man. Uh, no, he didn't distribute millions of dollars for charity because I don't know if he had a bank account. I doubt it. I don't know if he ever went into a bank in his life in 91 years. It's, it, we should mention it. We should mention it. He lived in America. He did not know the ABC. I don't think he went into a bank. He went, there was a grocery Essen bench, and after Fabrengen at 2 in the morning, he would go and take a drink because his voice was parched or he would come back from Lakewood or Muncie or Borough Park Thursday night, 1 in the morning, 2 in the morning, and he would buy himself a Coca-Cola or water after speaking for 3-4 hours and answering questions. Um, uh, so uh, he was, uh, you know, he was really, uh, he was not living in, in the world that we live in. He just didn't live in that world. He lived in the world of Ur, Ma'ir, Ein Saif, Tzimtzum, Kav, Rashimu, Bligvul, Sviris, Tziur, Pshittas, Metzias, No Metzias, Saiv, Vamale, Atzmos, Ur Ha'atzmi, Ur Ha'kolul, Achtos, Eschalkos. I'm using now terminology of Chabad, but that's where the world, uh, they were once at a Kiddush Shabbos afternoon, and people were speaking politics. You know what they speak at a Kiddush, right? The latest news of the hour. The Bioil is there. He says, can we talk about some practical things? So somebody says, sure. Like what? I kid you not. He's like, Eir Meyer. Eir Meyer. Now, for those who don't know, Eir is one of the favorite words of the Arizal, but the Alter Rebbe turned Eir into a central teaching. Eir is the manifestation of the Godhead. Of, of the of the essence. And Moyer is the source, the luminary. And much of Chabad Chassidus is about the interplay between the essence and the manifestation. Because the manifestation creates all the problems, it creates all the trauma, because manifestation means that it's filtered, it's condensed, it's stories. And the essence is is always, you know, unchangeable. And Alter Rebbe said that light is that reality that could manifest the essence without Without distortions, so there is hope for humanity, right? Reb Shays, that's Oiren Meyer. But you know, after you want to know the Bioil's language? You want the Bioil's language? After five hours, I hope everybody understands that talking practical does mean Oir and Ma'ir. Okay, maybe you have to translate it. it. Those Uyr. are the ideas. Oir is Oir is talking about trauma without going into trauma. Shefa Shefa is. <laughs> is much more filtered. Oyer is accessing the inaccessible in a way that can be integrated. That's revolutionary. It's revolutionary in all spiritual teachings. Accessing the inaccessible. That's Oyer. This was the Alter Rebbe, one of the Alter Rebbe's grand ideas articulated in Samachvav. And Rabbi Yoyal went to town with this. This was his thing. So they said... Practical. He said, for him, this was so practical. What, 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 what else is practical? Chocolate, Chinese food, sushi, what, Biden, Trump, liberals, conservatives. 
Yeah, for us, that's the exciting world or the crazy world, you know. For him, that's, that's, where, that's where reality happens. And the truth is, that's where reality happens. That's where reality happens. That's reality. Everything else is just, uh, you know, a very poor manifestation or copy. And if you can trace it back to the source, you find the ultimate chemistry of reality. So if you want the real chemistry of reality, you go to Eurem Meyer. It's like quantum physics versus Newtonian physics, you know? You talk about quantum physics, everybody gets excited. That you got from Rabiel, right? Quantum physics, Rabiel spoke about? Rabiel did not, I never heard the word quantum physics. I heard the word physics and the word atoms. Atoms. But, but, Rabiel often did speak about nimna hanimnoyas. Nimna hanimnoyas is a term already of the Rajbah, Rabbeinu Shleimah, in the 13th, 1300s, which means that God could move clockwise and counterclockwise, his particles could move clockwise and counterclockwise simultaneously. There were other Jewish philosophers who refuted this idea, Rabbi Yosef Albo. He refuted it. Tzamech Tzedek and Chabad embraced it as the Kabbalists did. In quantum physics, it became common language. Clockwise and counterclockwise simultaneously. Schrodinger's cat is dead and alive, light, particles and waves. The Rebbe used the language often. Not so often, but, but the Rebbe did use the language, especially in letters and in conversations that he had with uh, scientists, physicists, yeah. uh, naturalists. Um, the Rebbe was very well aware of this. And the excitement in quantum physics is because it's, it's a vocabulary. The Rebbe was in Berlin when quantum came out. Exactly, uh, exactly. Heisenberg, yeah. And, and uh, the Rebbe says, the Rebbe writes in a letter that, uh, that quantum physics revolutionizes philosophy and theology more, more than, he said, the landing on the moon was just a predictable outcome of science. He says there's much more, revol- somebody wrote to him about the landing of the moon, how revolutionary, and he says the real revolutions are quantum physics. He says, how does it affect, it teaches us what free choice is, it teaches us about miracles versus nature, very interesting insights. Um, Rabbi Oyel, at least in his classes, this was not his language, and it wasn't his interest, you know, what he did privately, I don't know, but... Uh, but my point is, the language is so exciting because it takes you to a deeper fundamental place of matter, right? Now, if you want to have the soul of quantum physics, you go to chsidis. If you go to chsidis, you have the soul. Particles and waves is a physical manifestation of motzi and ene motzi, of finiteness and infinity. And it goes deeper and deeper. Adam, 99% of it is empty space. Very little of it is matter. You could put in all the matter of the physical world into a carry-on suitcase. That's a fact in physics. It's a fact in physics, right? If you look in Shara Yichud, chapter 3 in Tanya, the Alter Rebbe says, if we had microscopic, spiritual, divine eyes, we would look at matter and we would not see physicality. We would see divine consciousness. Max Planck, the father of theoretical physics, quantum physics, who won a Nobel Prize, wrote that we used to think consciousness is a derivative of matter. Today we know that matter is a derivative of consciousness. What makes it matter is just my perception perceives it as physical matter. If I would have different lenses, I would see divine energy. I would see energy. The Alter Rebbe says he gets to the soul of it. 
He says, you would see divine energy, Dvar Hashem. And that's why 99.9% of the atom is empty space. So when Rabbi Yoh spoke about the practicalities of Oyer and Moyer, right, without using it in these words, he was really saying that if you want the most sophisticated, elegant <laughs> articulation of science, physics, psychology, philosophy, biology, astrophysics, cosmology, geology, botany, etc., go to the world of Iron Meyer, <laughs> and there you will discover the divine chemistry that constitutes the underlying composition of the micro and the macro. And, and when you could see the world from that prism, everything, everything is one. And the observer and the matter also fuse into one. Trachgut, Vedzangut, my thoughts affect reality because reality is so much interconnected with our thoughts and our, and our brain waves. And we, uh, we create the real world. We create the world of organic oneness, of Geula consciousness, of Mashiach, of harmony, of infinity. Okay, Chavre. <laughs> <laughs> Getting tired yet? Tired? You don't become tired. I don't become tired of these concepts. How do you want to finish? I don't want to finish. The Rebbe once, the Rebbe once finished off Abrengen, and he said like this. He said that he that the Rebbe Maharash, the fourth Chabad Rebbe, had a daughter Dvarileya. She had a toy. And it fell and it broke. And she started to sob. She wants a new one. They said they'll get her a new one. Right now. So they tried to fix it. It wasn't working. And you know when a kid throws a tantrum? The world stops and she's screaming and hollering. We'll get you a new one. No, no, I want this. It's not rational. Hours and hours and hours. And the Rebbe said nobody could control her. Nobody could calm her down. At one point she got exhausted she wanted to stop. But how do you save face, you know? Stop crying about such a tragedy? So the Rebbe said these words. The Rebbe said, the Dvaridaleya, the Enikul, the Rebbe, Rebbe Marash's daughter, stopped crying. And she says, Don't think I'm stopping to cry. I'm just taking a break. So the Rebbe said, The Fabrengen endet sich nicht. The Fabrengen is not seizing. We're just taking a break to be able to take a deep breath and go into the next one. That's how I would like to end. All right, so let's take a break. Yeah, and and if I may say, if I may say, maybe on a more emotional level, Rabbi Yoyal lived Chassidus so much that in many ways his death is not the end. It's a break. Because as I heard from Rabbi Yoel, who heard this from the Rebbe, or from a friend of his who heard it from the Rebbe, maybe Noska Garari, bittel kenisht bottle veren. The only thing that can't get nullified is nullification. Or in simple English, the only thing that can't cease to exist is something that's not defined by existence. It's defined by uh, no-thingness. In other words, when you're in a state of bittel, 
When there's no ego, when you're aligned with the source, you can't get nullified because the you is one with the source. So many ways I feel, you know, Rabbi Yoel, Rabbi Yoel passed, and it's a very big loss. Of course, for his, you know, close ones, his wife, and close relatives, and friends, and students, and disciples. And for all of us, it's a very, very profound loss, and a very sad loss. It's the end of an era. But, if Rabbi Yoel would hear this, he would go, eh, eh, Hakenishtenchainik, which means, you know, stop making a fuss about me. And uh, in that sense, as a person who really lived, lived Torah, lived Chassidus, so his passion and his ecstasy and his life, it doesn't, that doesn't end his influence, his wisdom, his commitment, his humility, uh, his conviction, his values. It doesn't end, even though there's a hefzik, there's a break, but it lives. It lives, it lives in this fabreng, and it lives in hundreds of others, in hundreds of others' homes and hearts and classes and fabrengans and, and lives of, of people who were touched by him, taught by him, inspired by him, who continue to fill the world with divine knowledge like water covers the sea. That's how Rambam ends, you know. Can't top that. You can't top that. And Rabbi Yoel was the one who wrote many of the Rebbe's uh, extraordinary siyumim on Rambam. Um, either he wrote them himself or he was uh, the chief editor. And, uh, you know, he, he, he really demonstrated to us the extraordinary depth that the Rebbe revealed in the Rambam. In every line of Rambam, in every word of the Rambam, the Rebbe has probably more than a thousand, a thousand explanations on Rambam, Mishnah Torah. More than a thousand. That's unique. It's something unique. Um, just like he has, I think, around 120 um, siyumim on Shas, on tractates of Shas, 120, around 120. And each one is a, is a, is a, is a bombshell, is, 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 you know, most of the Masechtas, on the whole Shas, um, but on Rambam, the Rebbe has enormous amount of explanation, just like on Rashi. There's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of Rashi's. Throw the number. But, uh, but the Rebbe's Siyumim on Rambam were very, very special, beginning with the one that we focused on earlier, 1975, Tavshin Lamed Hei, Motzi and Eni Motzi. We, so that's, yeah, those words were really inculcated in us, that the world filled with Hashem's knowledge, Kamayim Liyam like the water, the water covers the sea. Amen, amen, can you hear I want to thank Rabbi Yosef Schaefer from Los Angeles. I see you, Rabbi Yosef, for instigating and inspiring and uh, making it all happen and promoting it. I want to thank my dear colleague, Rabbi Shays Taub, for agreeing to be able to share the platform of such a special tribute to such a great man and such a great chassid and disciple of the Rebbe. And finally, I want to thank all the participants throughout the night, those who are here, those who are sleeping at their screens, those who already went to bed, lucky you, those who will watch it in the future, those of you in Europe, I see some Europeans who just woke up and uh, they have... Uh, they're all fresh, they just said Maidani and they're waiting for another, you know, they're ready for, they're ready for a beginning... 
But to all of you, I really want to thank you so much for uh, for joining us and being here with us and uh, learning and living and celebrating and growing together. Thank you. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.